Enjoy the horror fun, Doctor. And don't forget to watch the big giveaway afterwards. This is a WWAR special bullet. Police in Haddonfield have just made the grisly discovery of three bodies in the upstairs bedrooms of this house. It appears that the murders took place sometime early this evening. Authorities have confirmed that all three of the victims are teenagers, two girls and a boy. Police are searching the entire area for a mental patient who escaped last night from the Smith's Groveworn County Sanitarium. He is now believed to be at large in Haddonfield. This is Robert Mundy, live. Welcome to Horror Movie Podcast, where we're dead serious about horror movies. We usually produce a bi-weekly show that's released every other Friday, but for the month of October, to celebrate Halloween, we're bringing you a five-part series featuring in-depth reviews and analysis of the entire Halloween franchise, Horror Movie Podcast style. So for episodes 27 through 31... You're going to get a new podcast release every Friday in October. And that ends on Friday, October 31st, which is Halloween Day. And yes, episode 31 corresponds with the 31st. So it's just meant to be. Anyway, this is episode 27, the first of our five-part series. And in this first installment, we'll be covering John Carpenter's Halloween from 1978, Rick Rosenthal's sequel, Halloween 2, from 1981, and Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, from 1982. And I am your host, Jay of the Dead, podcasting from Salt Lake City, and my co-hosts tonight are the Wolfman, Josh Legary. There are many of me, Jason. <laughs> you, you actually do that just as well as the actual wolves do it. <laughs> yeah, well, I just to I had a lot of face-to-face experience with actual wolves, so... <laughs> Um, I gleaned a little in those <laughs> death-like interactions in Alaska. But yeah, I'm really excited about this episode. I'm a big fan of the Halloween franchise and particularly the first film. So it should be a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. After a long absence, he is back from the grave. He is Dr. Walking Dead himself. We welcome our good friend, Kyle Bishop. <sighs> Sorry, listeners, I have been surviving the zombie apocalypse of department chair, but <laughs> we're, we're recording this somewhat in the summer, so I'm able to, uh, to do a little drop in to see how the podcast is getting along. <laughs> well, I tell you, you are still an official fourth co-host of this podcast, Kyle, and the listeners have missed you. They have been requesting him, haven't they, Wolfman? Yeah, absolutely, and I don't blame them. Uh, there's been a large <laughs> void left by your exit of the podcast. But. That's true. Well, we'll we'll slip in now and then. Yeah. I, uh, I've got this chair thing in the bag, so maybe we can do a few more uh, appearances this year. <laughs> cool. That sounds great. And by the way, in case you're wondering, the amazing but subtle Dr. Shock will be joining us later on in this episode. And just for, um, you know, for fun, so the listeners know, we're actually recording this episode far earlier, as Kyle said. This is not October 3rd today. We're actually recording this on the same day as the, <laughs> the Sci-Fi Channel's debut of Sharknado 2, the second one. So we just want people to understand our level of sacrifice here because we're missing that. <laughs> 
That is correct. <laughs> you know Kyle would be watching that instead of doing it. And it's, it. it's just not going to be good unless you watch it live. So, <laughs> Well, just as a warning for people, we typically don't reveal spoilers on Horror Movie Podcast, but in order to discuss the Halloween franchise as in-depth as we're hoping to go, we're going to discuss spoilers for the entire film series. So just be ready for that in this episode. Well, Jay, I would say if, if any of our listeners have not seen Halloween yet... <laughs> They need to just pause things right now and go rectify that grievous sin against horror cinema. (laughs) Right. I totally agree with you. Absolutely. So you can bet that everybody listening to this podcast has seen it multiple times, I I would say. But anyway, that reminds me of one more point, too. We're going to discuss each film at hand by itself and on its own terms, like we're reviewing them in a vacuum. So just one film at a time. And then during episode 31, we're going to do a franchise overview where we'll cross-reference all 10 movies and so forth. So without any further delay, let's move into our feature review of John Carpenter's Halloween from 1978. Halloween night. A small American town. I spent eight years trying to reach him and then another seven trying to keep him locked up because I realized that what was living behind that boy's eyes was purely and simply evil. Halloween, the night he came home. Halloween was directed by John Carpenter, who also co-wrote the screenplay along with Deborah Hill, who was also a producer. Halloween was released in theaters on October 25th, 1978, according to IMDb. However, there's a great site called thenumbers.com, which indicates that it was October 17th, which may have been a limited release. Do you guys know which is the case? Hmm, I've never heard that detail. Okay. Well, I like to look at stuff like that for some reason, because, for example, if we're going with the October 25th release date, Then exactly 35 years later, on that same day, you guys, which was October 25th, Horror Movie Podcast aired its first episode with Kyle Bishop, Wolfman Josh, and Jay of the Dead. Well, clearly that's the right date then. (laughs) Yeah. Not according to Wikipedia, though. (laughs) What does Wikipedia say? It says Halloween premiered on October 25th, 1978 in Kansas City, Missouri at the AMC Midland Empire Theater. There we go. And sometime afterward in Chicago, Illinois, and New York City. Nice. There you go. But it's Wikipedia's fr- never wrong, so we're going with that. <laughs> That's yeah. right. Its first screening was on the anniversary of this podcast 35 years prior. <laughs> Anyways, everybody knows the premise. In a town called Haddonfield, Illinois, on Halloween night 1963, a six-year-old boy named Michael Myers stabs his sister Judith to death which a, with a butcher knife while he's dressed in a clown costume and a mask. Myers is institutionalized until 15 years later when he escapes and returns home to Haddonfield again, where he begins another killing rampage on Halloween night, 1978. Now, guys, we can approach this discussion however you two like. In fact, I'm going to let you guys just totally lead the way. But first, I just want to get a couple things out on the table and I'll shut up, I promise. Among all the co-hosts on this podcast here, you three guys... Um, this is in your personal top 10 all-time favorite horror movies. Dr. Walking Dead listed Halloween as his number 8 all-time favorite horror film. Dr. Shock listed it as his number 4. And Wolfman Josh 
has Halloween down as his number one all-time favorite horror film ever. So, Wolfman, since this is your favorite horror film, would you lead us, kick off the discussion? Yeah, that's funny. I was was thinking it was number two after the thing, but... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this is absolutely one of my all-time favorite horror films, and those, those it does fluctuate between those two uh, quite quite a great deal, depending on the time of year and uh, the mood I'm in. So if we did record this around uh, the fall, then yeah, it probably was my favorite that at that point. Um, I love Halloween. John Carpenter is one of my all-time favorite filmmakers, um, and to see him at kind of this early stage in his career doing something that was kind of far above what other horror filmmakers were doing at the time and essentially popularizing, you know, as we talked about in our proto slasher episode, um, what would become the slasher genre, uh, which is, you know, I think a favorite of a lot of horror fans and certainly a favorite of mine. You know, a lot of that has to do with the the mystery element and the um, kind of detectives that are usually on the trails of these guys. And, um, Halloween is kind of a, a prototype for a lot of those films that came afterward. Um, from everything from, although it doesn't come up in this exact film, <laughs> uh, the familiar familial relationships between uh, these killers and, and their prey, oftentimes uh, the, the detective that's on the trail, uh, the use of different instruments of, for killing, and, and particularly you know the knives and all these all of these things. I think you know created not to mention the incredible um, you know photography that was borrowed from you know Hitchcock uh, to a large degree from German filmmakers from a lot of uh, classical um, sources. Um, you know I think John Carpenter was bringing kind of a fancy fancy pants approach to um, what well, was probably at the time considered really low-class cinema. Um, I think he really elevates um, the material here, which is, which is pretty simple in, you know, at, at, its, at its heart and mm-hmm. uh, made just a classic film. Yeah, I, th- I think what, what you're getting at there is, is really the revolution that this film launched. And, and I attribute so much of that to Carpenter. Because like you, uh, The Thing is such a, a masterpiece of horror. And what Carpenter does, which really paves the way for so many other filmmakers, is, is like you said, Josh, he takes something that's so simple. Uh, the, the elevator pitch for both of those films would, would really be 30 seconds. <laughs> yeah. But, but it's the mastery that he, uh, he manages to, to put into there with the layers of all the things that you talked about, the cinematic elements, uh, but also, crucially, the, the score. Uh, just this this amazingly powerful iconic score that that sets the tone for everything, and so proto slashers are awesome. Uh, but for me, Halloween's the one that is like the first that really kind of gets the formula right and sets the yeah. stage for everything that follows. No, I agree absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know we we often say or talk about in the horror community about how mainstream film critics don't appreciate or recognize horror, but I just want to point out here, um, Roger Ebert recognized Halloween for what it was, you know, what, what you guys are talking about there. When, when he first reviewed it, he rated it four stars, which is his highest star rating. And I just have a little excerpt here. If you don't mind, I'll read what he wrote about it. He said, Halloween is 
an absolutely merciless thriller, a movie so violent and scary that, yes, I would compare it to Psycho. It's a terrifying and creepy film about what one of the characters calls evil personified. Halloween is a visceral experience. We aren't seeing the movie. We're having it happen to us. It's frightening. Maybe you don't like movies that are really scary. Then don't see this one. Credit must be paid to filmmakers who make the effort to really frighten us to make a good thriller when quite possibly a bad one might have made as much money. We see movies for a lot of reasons. Sometimes we want to be scared. I'd like to be clear about this. If you don't want to have a really terrifying experience, don't see Halloween. <laughs> so that sounds like appreciation, right? Uh, do you feel like... You, you, well, certainly compared to uh, his you know, feelings about the Friday the 13th franchise. It's, yeah, <laughs> it's night and day. So, But see, jo- Josh explains this. It's, it's cinematic. It's, it's um, almost artistic in its aesthetics. Uh, because it's all about a slow burn, so you you pretty much know the whole movie just from watching it. Okay, this guy's going to come and try to kill people, but it takes so <laughs> long to manifest uh, <clears throat> that there's really no release. There's no there's no real chance to catch your breath in this movie, and and it is shot so well and edited so well that I think that's why a, a mainstream film critic would would recognize the artistic quality of. Uh, a genre that is sometimes maligned, and it really does kind of elevate it to an art film. Well, that release that you're talking about is, um, I think, really significant, especially as we get deeper into the horror genre as, as things progress. That element really starts to fade out almost completely, <laughs> and uh, it's all about release as opposed to tension, you know? And oh, absolutely. This, fil- this film just builds and builds and builds that tension, and uh, I think that's why it's so satisfying, even though. You know, again, for horror fans, there's not hardly any gore in this film. But no, the no. Fact that, yeah, go ahead. But it, well, it, and and that's where it is an interesting film. It it builds on the suspense. It's suspense. It's suspense. Is it going to happen? Is it going to happen? Uh, now, sometimes films then never deliver. And while the horror isn't particularly gory, you do it doesn't pull the punch. So there are some there's some pretty memorable kills in this film, uh, but they're not so gratuitous or so numerous that you become numb to them. And so that that when you get to the climax and you have kind of the showdown in the house, you're still pretty scared. It's not like, <laughs> well, I've I've seen twenty teenagers get murdered by now. Uh, and, and that's I think one of the failings of the Friday the thirteenth franchise is it just becomes a revolving door of creative kills. Whereas Halloween, they make them count, if that makes sense. Wow. I love what you're saying there, Kyle. That's um, <laughs> it's actually really eye-opening to me because I'll, I'll tell you the truth, and this is heresy, but, I, you know, this is what I do. <laughs> Halloween, <laughs> I really appreciate. I really like the film and everything. But for me, you know, because it is a slow burn along the way, I think that affects it's rewatch value for me. I mean, how do you guys feel like that when you rewatch it? Doesn't it seem a little bit laborious? That's the not word. for me. Uh, not for me. No. Yeah. I watch it pretty much every Halloween and, uh, it doesn't diminish at all. If anything, I think it, it, it's the fine wine. Now are the, the scares maybe diminish, but I think my appreciation of the film for what it is, uh, is, is richer each time. Mm-hmm. Because it's it's a really scary movie uh, because it's a, it's a more nuanced development of the fear. Yeah. 
I think almost the opposite of you, Jay, that a movie that has kind of really shocking visuals and shocking images and dramatic kills are awesome the first time through. Hmm. And then you're like, eh, buckets of blood. Okay, whatever. Uh, to me, to me, the, that doesn't sustain it as a, as a film. I need layers, things to look for and to notice and and things to build on. And that's going to keep me scared time and time again. And and I don't want to make this about the thing, but you know, it isn't the Carpenter's other key film from this period. He does the same thing there. And where that movie is more gratuitously, uh, violent and, and grotesque, it shares uh, something of the of the pacing that makes it rewarding time and time again. Hmm. Neat. Yeah, I agree. And I think um, one of those things that keeps it interesting that we haven't, you know, talked. We're still kind of talking thematically, but I feel like Nick Castle's performance as Michael Myers. Um, he's such a cipher, and for me, like the way he, the way mm-hmm. this character moves and acts and kind of observe. <laughs> observes his own actions almost from an outsider's point of view. Um, They talk about later films that he's kind of an act of nature and he had, there are a few moments like that, but he also has just this incredibly um, childlike curiosity almost about a lot of these things he's doing. And so to me, the mystery in that performance really captivates me every time I watch the movie. Absolutely. And that's another thing that I think is undersold and people don't get, but just the the cock of the head right mm-hmm. where yeah. where one of the greatest moments in that film to me is when he we're talking about the kills right when he pegs the kid to the wall yeah and he mm-hmm. stands back and he does that like puppy dog head where he's like oh, huh, yeah. that guy actually stuck yeah and and you can kind of see that really childlike thought process <laughs> where he's going I just wanted to try that, and it worked. Huh, well, I'll go try something else horrific. Uh, (laughs) It's an amazingly subdued acting job that makes the dude so much more terrifying. And I was thinking about this before the podcast. So, yeah, uh, Jason has a mask, too. But for some reason, the hockey mask, to me, is completely unexpressive. Yet the white Bill Shatner mask... (laughs) says so much and does so much for me uh, that whenever you see that face, even if it's in the bushes or in the back part of the screen or in soft focus, there's a thought process that somehow comes through that mask. And I don't know why. Yeah. Now, now see, I've noticed that as well. Now, do you think that we are attributing things to what we're seeing there just because we're visualizing it and interpreting it? No. No? No. Josh? <laughs> no, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I've heard wow. a lot of um, I've heard a lot of interesting commentary about the creation of the mask, and and they they ask why did you use so many you know different masks in the film? Was it to show you know different expressions and different uh, you know thought processes of the character at different times of the film? He's like, no, it's, it was the same mask the entire time. There was <laughs> mm-hmm. we didn't change anything. You know? Right. I mean, well, I, it's so I it's, I agree with that idea that you know it allows you to kind of put your own fear onto that blank slate to some degree but, i think that that's does, such a testimony of the acting of the body language yes, yes that people recall it having different expressions and i think that's less a factor in this film that that vessel idea of michael myers because i think um that's what he becomes later on i think in this film he really is a character uh, yeah. more so than any of the other movies wow right. and, and to me the worst thing you can do is take the mask off 
because uh, the mask is the character, and, and it's how the mask is portrayed. I mean, the, also, the jumpsuit is great. Yeah. It's yeah. such a, it's a, just a, such a great <laughs> overall costume. The stature, right, this just juggernaut. Yeah. But, but and and uh, you guys. It's really right? a terrible costume in all actuality. I mean, it shouldn't work. <laughs> it does as well though. as it does. It works <laughs> tremendously well for how but simple. See, you the guys know. Are. You guys know my zombie bias. One of the reasons why I think Mike Myers works so great is he's just plodding. Yeah. He doesn't jump out of the 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 door. He doesn't chase you down and and mow you down. He stands in the background and just watches for a while. <laughs> yeah. And then he just kind of sidles into the room or, or that awful, wonderful, sublime moment where he has the, the ghost costume on and he doesn't even move. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How terrifying is that? And to have a, have a, to have a mask over a mask, <laughs> be that frightening. And glasses on top. It, it shouldn't work. And the glasses are, it should be comedic. Right. It should be ludicrous. It should never work. On, Yet it's one of the most terrifying moments of the film. For me, that is the scariest moment in the film. And I'll tell you what I love about that, just real quick, since we're on the, the sheet thing. They actually managed to have a character in the classic, most generic Halloween costume, which is the ghost with a sheet over her head, you know. And they actually managed to make that scary. And, and the fact that the film is, you know, set on Halloween, it's called Halloween, I, I think that's just a just a tribute to how smart it is. It's very good. Brilliant. Now, Josh, you, you actually kind of, um, blew me away a minute ago. And, and I think I want to side with you on that. Like when you were talking about how, since the mask is kind of a blank slate, um, that we can attribute our, or interpret fear and put on there what we, you know, whatever we're interpreting. I don't know. Like I'm Kyle, pretty sure I didn't think of that. Just, just, just well, <laughs> I'm pretty sure John Carpenter or Rob Zombie or someone said that along the way. Just, well, just for clarification. <laughs> no, I know. But I mean, I, I was impressed when you said it and I just wondered like Dr. Walking Dead. I mean, how do you feel about that? It seemed like you disagree or, or how do you feel? Well, I wouldn't say I disagree. Okay. It's one of the reasons why this has repeat viewability is it's so much open to interpretation. And it just, it's, it's in a, in kind of way it is that blank canvas, that, that mask is the blank canvas and the audience is able to see what they want to see, or they can project their own fears on it. To me, it's fright, most frightening when it is, it's most blank. The idea that this isn't really, especially in this film, this isn't a killer who has a mission or an agenda or a vendetta. It's just empty which is which is and you already mentioned it but i love uh loomis's line he's just evil there's nothing there <laughs> mm-hmm. there's nothing there to this guy and so that's why the mask is the perfect artistic uh representation of that mike myers is everyone and no one he's the embodiment of that which we fear most which is the void it's the it's the thing that that can frighten anybody in whatever they way they want to be frightened because they could project it onto the the white screen of the mask <laughs> and not only that but I, you know it's also when you start talking about his motives um you know i mean i think we've a lot of people have talked about the possible um moral uh implications of a lot of these slasher films the fact that you know he goes and he kills his sister you know while she's having sex when she's supposed to be taking care of him or um but 
you know, really Carpenter doesn't give you much there. Um, there's almost nothing by in, in the way of motive until the right. second film. And so that's another thing that just it's so scary because you just have right. really no idea why this is happening. <laughs> right. Yeah. Lack of motive is always more frightening. Uh, lack of explanation is always more terrifying. Um, that's why I prefer zombies that come back for no known reason. Because then, because then you don't even have an explanation to fall back on. Yeah, yeah. It's just like, hey, this guy's going to kill us all. Now, yeah, he does kind of go after the sexually promiscuous and the drug users, and he is ultimately, at least in the first film, defeated by the the pure virginal, uh, nerdy babysitter. <laughs> but he does go after her, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and and so I love that, and I also love that the kids are imperiled without actually being killed the little kids mm-hmm. yeah uh which is such a great way to show that that this isn't this isn't an avenging angel who's only going to take down the promiscuous right. um he's going to threaten everybody although then it kind of inadvertently set up the rules yeah that happened <laughs> that happens <laughs> well speaking of um undefinable things i want to talk about the concept of the the shape and it just his his boogeyman status. Now, um, as it opens, okay, Michael Myers, he, he seems to be just a boy, okay, and not yet evil incarnate. But maybe you guys, I don't know if you agree or disagree with that, but we hear during the course of this film, we hear Dr. Loomis say many times that he's something much more, and I have a couple quotes here in a minute. But first of all, I guess my first question is, do you guys think that as the film begins, when he's six years old, do you think that he's just a boy at that point? Or do you think that this kid was evil from the beginning? Well, I think it's interesting the way it's depicted, because I don't feel like the kid playing the role gives us evil in his eyes. Like, he doesn't he doesn't appear to be evil. He appears to be confused, mm. almost lost or something. And so yeah. I've, I've always read that into the character, I think. Yeah. Um, and then I know, again, I'm sorry to do this. I know that a lot of people don't appreciate Rob Zombie's version, but that is something, even though, again, as we've said, all this, this blank slate, no motive stuff is a lot scarier. I do appreciate that attempt at the psychology behind it because that there's something going on with this character yeah. that, that fascinates me and that I, that I think about and wonder about as I'm watching the film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what ruined Zombie's film for me completely. Um, because I, I had a lot of fun. I was going to write a book about it, but I didn't have enough time. <laughs> as, as you look at all the remakes of the 70s horror films that came out in the aughts, or whatever yeah. we're calling it, mm-hmm. almost every major horror film from the 70s was remade. And almost every remake tries to rationalize the villain, justify the villain, sympathize with the villain, uh, recast the villain. And I think the two that were most egregious was the Halloween remake and the Last House on the Left remake. Um, Because we do have this trend to humanize the the bad guy. And to me, I just, that for me, that's not my kind of horror. My kind of horror is the, the dead eye, inexplicable force of nature, whatever we want to call it. And I, and I agree uh, with Josh's reading of the, uh, the kid, but I think you can also kind of read into that a vacuity, which is kind of yeah. terrifying. So, yeah, yeah, maybe the kid actor wasn't strong enough and maybe he wasn't pure evil, but he just like killed his sister and he shows no comprehension or remorse or feeling or emotion. That's um, and so I don't know. We don't know enough about it to know what triggered it. Mm-hmm. The if If I wanted to really 
upset everyone and potentially bore people. Uh, it comes from the Freudian psychology. Let's Do bring it. Freud to the table. Do it. He's a normal kid, we can assume, because he's not in child protective services or in a <laughs> mental institution. Right. Until he sees his sister having sex. Uh, which is what Freud calls the primal scene. Yes. And Freud, Freud writes about that when a, when a child witnesses people having sex, there's a fundamental psychological break, a fundamental shift and change. And so for whatever reason, and that's why I think if we're going to do any kind of serious discussion of Mike Myers, you got to talk about it in terms of sex. <laughs> his monstrosity is born from his sexual awakening, and it's a sexual awakening that he responds to through violence. And that's where the idea of, oh, he's killing kids who have sex is less interesting to me. And the idea that Mike Myers processes sex must result in violence. And, and yeah, there we go. He, he wields a knife, phallic symbol. He sees this kid penetrate his sister. So he has to go penetrate his sister and he ends up killing her. And there he goes down his path. So you are all welcome. Yeah, no, I, for the I Freudian say, sex talk. I will say that I, I really enjoy that interpretation. But if I am looking just at the text, he doesn't actually see the sex happening until he's already has the knife in his hand. So I don't like we know that he's outside the window as they're kind of fooling around on the couch. Mm-hmm. But they're clothed. They're right, not, right. you know, and, and so it is. I mean, again, I just an element of it that I think, although you're, you know, that Freudian reading is. Um, probably the most um, compelling that I've heard. On the other hand, it's like, well, that's that's actually not supported. And and, and part of me, and this is heresy, I'm sure, in the horror community. But a part of me wonders if a lot of these, you know, loose ends that leave the film so up for interpretation aren't just because they didn't put that much thought into it, because <laughs> because Carpenter didn't really take the film as seriously um, right. as he did, you know, his other work. Yeah. And so I and so I do wonder if that had something to do with it. Well, that that's the that's the intentionality fallacy, and and if if all we could do is analyze on intention, then we get pretty boring. And I so this is I but get the, criticized all it, the time because this is this is my job. I try to find meaning that was never supposed to be there. Right. And besides, did didn't you see the the outtake where he actually sees her having sex the week earlier? Because <laughs> like, that because that's what. That's what I meant. <laughs> so, Kyle, if you don't mind, if just real quick, if you don't mind explaining that, because yeah, I think a lot of people who listen to um, like film theory or people try to really like critique a film in depth, a lot of people do argue. They say, "Hey, the director never intended that," or like yeah. they'll say, "Yeah, right." Like they meant to do all that stuff. And and I really like the way that you defend that. So, could you just do that real quick? Yeah, well, I give you the really short version. Okay. Uh, who cares? Uh, who cares what was intended? <laughs> the, the the death of the author theory, and this is where people get all excited, is the idea that once a work of art is created, it becomes it do, it no longer belongs to the creator. Mm-hmm. And so, obviously, people are a little defensive about that position. Uh, the <laughs> psychoanalytic approach is that everything is there, whether it was supposed to be there, because we're always operating on a subconscious level. And uh, and just in going back and relooking at things, we can find things that were there to begin with, but maybe weren't there on, pur- on purpose, but it doesn't matter if they were on purpose, because they're there anyway. Yeah. And so, uh, but, but I think it's kind of rewarding, because what it does, and this is the teacher coming out, um, it really develops critical thinking skills. So, 
this is this is probably this isn't really the point of the podcast, but I had a critical reading. Josh close read my reading and found a flaw in my structure <laughs> so we could continue the discussion and, and force me to try to defend my position uh, better. Yeah. That's how we figure out why things mean and what they mean and, and why they're important. But um, most people would scoff at our attempting to find <laughs> meaning in Halloween to begin with. So. <laughs> well, I, I tell you, my... Okay, so I have this theory that I'm sure you guys will shoot holes in, but um, and and it's kind of like hard to get there. So I'll try to articulate it. Since he is the boogeyman, all right, and that and that's um, that's not just me. I mean, that comes from Loomis. That comes from the film and everything. Yeah, it makes me wonder a, a couple things because, like, in the, it makes me wonder if he is kind of an antichrist type figure because. For, for those familiar with the Christian story, um, you know he grows up as a boy, and he's um, he has a a relative, as far as we know, a relatively normal boyhood, except for a couple of moments when he's, you know, teaching and doing things that are a little bit unusual, and then you know at a certain point he kind of he goes and does his thing. Well, this is like the opposite of that, except with evil. And since there's all this talk about how he's evil incarnate, I wonder if it's some kind of a flip side to the Christian story. Crickets. You guys are like... <laughs> Keep going. I think, I'm, I'm, I, yeah, I think that for the analogy to bear out, there's got to be more points of parallelism. Okay. Well, yeah. Um, let's see. That's what I'm saying. The, the bridge that I'm building here is um, there aren't many supports on it, but uh, just a couple things then. So Loomis at one point refers to... Michael Myers as it. And then when he escapes the asylum, um, he says the evil is gone. Okay. The idea that he's pure evil. And then when they encounter that half eaten dog inside the house, that's still warm, (laughs) he says a man wouldn't do that. Um, You know, the guy with him, the cop says that, and he says, this isn't a man. Yeah. And then at the end of the film, it's like, um, he says it was the boogeyman. In fact. Yeah. So, um, and you can't kill the boogeyman and he doesn't run because he doesn't need to. Another, yeah. another interesting thing there is like at one point, um, Lori is looking through the comic books with the kid and there's laser man, there's neutron man, there's tarantula man, and none of those are real. But then right after that, the boy says, Lori, what's the boogeyman? And she's like, oh, he's, he's not, you know, later on she says he's not real. But we find out that he is real. And so this this idea that the film is going for about him being pure evil, I just wondered, what do you guys think? What do you make of that? Well, like I said, I, I, it's, it's really appealing to me, the idea of a character whose motivation is just, well, evil. But the, the problem is, evil is such a, a, a non-secular term, but the, the film doesn't ever take that angle with it. So it is a little bit of problematic to cast Mike Myers as pure evil, but then talk about it in terms of psychology, not in terms of morality. And so your your supposition here makes me think about that as as probably a little bit of a flaw in the film. Um, because I would think that if if we're going to attribute so much to evil, why isn't there more of a of a foregrounding of ethics and morality, particularly in terms of religion. And because if my recollection is correct, 
religion is pretty absent from the whole film. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, where it, where it's often prevalent in horror films. Mm -hmm. And so it, 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 maybe that's one of the reasons I like Halloween is it comes across as such kind of a steely cold scientific, uh, version of, of evil or the boogeyman or the antichrist, uh, where it's kind of like the rational, the rational person's antichrist. I don't know. Good ideas. Wow. I mean, there, there's so many answers to all these questions in the other films, you know, and the, and, and, and that's annoying about those other films, I think, because <laughs> they're not answered particularly well. Um, yes. You know, and so I don't know. That's uh, one thing that I, that I, that I'm just thinking about as we're talking and this, I don't have a particularly uh, good um, conclusion for this idea, but I just, you know, Sam Loomis, um, as his name is, comes directly from, character in psycho obviously mm-hmm. alfred hitchcock's psycho yeah sam loomis and in, and in that film loomis is kind of the obvious good guy character and his intent is to take down anthony perkins anthony perkins character norman bates who is clearly um suffering from some kind of psychosexual problem you know psychiatric problem and so that naming of that character maybe is another mm-hmm. support for playing mm-hmm. into that kind of sexual nature of Michael's crimes. Good. I love it. Yeah. And, and that's where intentionality becomes such a fun point of debate. Cause you could say, Oh, Carpenter is just like homaging Hitchcock. He's saying, oh, I'm going to take this to the next level, but no, it, it does bring in, uh, the, the psychosexual element and, and you have to kind of recognize that Mike Myers is kind of a postmodern manifestation of, uh, of Norman Bates. Where where Bates did have a motivation, but he ended up being a, a vacuous figure, where his own entity, his own identity, is subsumed by that of his perception of his of his mother. Here you have that, but it, but the vacuity is not filled by anyone. Uh, so I yeah. think that's I think that's a pretty interesting read, which would make a fascinating academic paper. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, so get on that, Josh. Okay. <laughs> yeah. When I go back to school at SUU, I'll... <laughs> <There you go. laughs> That's right. Now, one of my favorites, and not as favorite as um, Kyle Bishop, of course, but I, I do like John Muir. I guess that's how you say his name. He writes things about horror every once in a while. And when he wrote about Halloween, there's this little paragraph I want to read to you. He says, and what of Michael Myers? And this comes from Horror Films of the 1970s, Volume 2. This is great. Anyway, he says, his evil evades any specific pinning down. He functions on a multitude of levels as a character. He is simultaneously a boogeyman, child, id, and animal. Take your pick. One thing is certain, however, he cannot be explained in the rational language or lexicon of psychology. He does not suffer from a specific, diagnosable, or treatable mental disorder. Not surprisingly, then, Dr. Loomis describes this particular patient just as an ancestor from the dawn of civilization might have voiced concern over a demon. Myers is purely and simply evil, period. So, and, and, you know, I like how it it talked about the id in there. And, um, Kyle, if you don't mind me putting you on the spot, just, just in case people are rusty on their, um, (laughs) psychology, will you describe the id? Yeah, we'll bring some more Freud back in. Okay. <laughs> uh, the id, uh, and, and the German, it's the S, which really makes more sense, which is it. 
Because so when Freud wrote about this, he talked about the I and the it. And we translate that into id and ego for some reason, which makes far less sense. Uh, the it is the it. It's the thing. It's the thing part of your personality. So the thing wants food, sleep, and sex. Uh, not necessarily in that order. Right. And, and so for society to function, we have to have the ego, the overmind. We have to have a higher rational thinking. So you look at a dog. If you give a dog enough ro uh, raw chuck, it'll eat itself to death because it has no system of saying, hey, I got to, you know, this is too much meat. I got to stop. Um, so the id is the drive that says, hey, uh, I'm attracted to that woman, but she's with another guy. I will go pummel him to death and then I will have sex with her. Uh, that's what we want, right? But we don't do it. <laughs> uh, and and so what Freud would talk about is a lot of the psychopaths lack the ego. They don't have that check and balance. They don't have a part of their brain that says that is not acceptable. That is not social behavior. <laughs> and the, the greatest manifestation of it really comes in the werewolf, which a lot of people forget is actually kind of a Freudian invention. Uh, the idea that the the human is the ego, the wolf is the id. And that's why those films are all super sexually charged. The idea that he's going to lose control and then the animal is going to come out and it's just going to do what it wants. And then the human has to wrestle with it and bring it back into control. <laughs> so maybe a longer answer than you wanted, but, no, it's but, perfect. but that's what I see is true. I agree with you. The, the quote, absolutely. Uh, Myers has no ego. He has no, there's no moment when he's like, is this wrong? Uh, should should we talk it out? Should I go back to rehab? No, he just is, and I keep using the term, but I think it's so effective. He is the juggernaut. He just does what he does, and there's no rhyme or reason or explanation necessary or or possible. And that's why Loomis is so freaking terrified of him, because as a psychiatrist, he defies everything that is supposed to work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's good stuff, Kyle. Thank you for answering that. And I even, nine, nine years of college, ladies and gentlemen. I even put you on the spot there. <laughs> so when, when he lifts up, I mean, this is more to this, this monster, this, this juggernaut here. When he lifts up the Bob guy with one hand, so yeah. he's clearly not like Arnold Schwarzenegger built. You know, he's just a regular built guy. But he apparently has superhuman strength because it seems effortless. Like he's not right. even struggling to do this when he sticks him to the door. Um, well, see that—that's the monstrosity. A kid who's been in a in a in mental institution since the age of six mm -hmm. would probably be pretty scrawny, wouldn't he? Do they have weight rooms in these facilities? Does <laughs> no, I, you I know, I, I. But the idea is that he is just this thing. He is this monster. So it, it defies rationality or reason, and you you just accept it, right? Yeah. He's going to just lift that guy up and peg him to the wall, which is completely implausible and impossible. But he's pure evil, man. Yeah, he is. He can do whatever he wants. <laughs> what what do you make of, and both of you, I mean, either of you, like, what do you make of his grunting noises? Because, like, it's interesting that he is otherwise a silent character, except you do hear these animal-like grunting noises when he's doing things. Um, that, that made me think that the intention was to think of him more as an animal than a human being. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's interesting. Now, um, in the IMDb trivia, 
they talk about how the killer is referred to as the shape, and this is because of this in in the script form and in the credits at the end, he's called the shape. But also, IMDb says the word shape was used by Cotton Mather and Nathaniel Hawthorne in reference to the Salem witch trials to describe specters or spirits of oh. the accused doing mischief or harming another person. So, I, I don't know if that was intended. Uh, what I heard about this, and I'm sure you guys probably know more about it than I do, is that, especially in the script, when the scene where Michael Myers jumps on top of the car, it's described oh. in the script as, like, there's a shape that jumps on the car. It, yeah. it, is that your understanding of how that came to be? Probably, but I like the retcon to, to tie it back to Mather. Mm-hmm. We don't quote Mather nearly enough because he was crazy. Uh, <laughs> but but yeah, that idea that he is this embodiment of spirit, I think it's probably, and, and Josh can probably speak to this better because he's in the industry, I think it was probably a placeholder. <laughs> yeah, yeah well, like, I mean, when you're writing a screenplay, typically um, the first time you describe a character on scene or on in the script, you kind of put their name in all caps. You should give a short description of them, maybe their, maybe their age, so that the person casting the film um, you know, can choose an actor that's appropriate to bring to the director. But um, a lot of the time, you, know, you, don't, the, you don't want, as a screenwriter, to reveal to the reader who, who a character is yet, just to make the read fun for, you know, for the person reading the screenplay. Mm-hmm. So they'll often put like a man, you know, or a shape is a great example. And then later in the screenplay, you'll find out, well, that shape was Michael Myers. Um, and so off, yeah, oftentimes that's just a, not, not as much a placeholder as a, an impression to give the reader of, um, you know, of what we might see on screen before we actually know who we're looking at. Yeah. But there's something about that. I mean, I know that it seems like it was done initially as just kind of a practical convention right for screenwriting purposes but well, not necessarily but i mean that that's very common but i like that i do like the idea well all the ideas that you guys are talking about also just that the basic idea of he's just a shape you know he's just yeah. a, something we can't we can't uh, put our fingers around we can't quite get a grip on him yeah, and, and we can't we can't of course know exactly what happened, but so much of the film he is exactly that, especially the first half of the film. He's just a shape. Uh, he's he's almost yeah. an abstract shape. If you if you look at some of this, just take a still shot mm-hmm. uh, where he is looming in the background, or he's or he's slipping on the car, and you don't get a good look at him, or or he's he's just kind of there, right? He's this amorphous uh, blue <laughs> jumpsuit with a white mask. And and I also like the idea, even though this is my term, of him as kind of a force, or he maybe he begins as a shape and he becomes a force, as as that shape starts to take form and to interact with the others, the other people around him. Um, I think it's a good way to think of him, uh, because it does maintain that animal nature, that it, that thing that you know. It's hard to relate to a shape. Yeah. Uh, where where <laughs> once you name once you name a monster. It's different, right? Now it's a person, mm-hmm. uh, and so I, I do like that. Uh, I like that a lot, actually. And, and even more than the grunting that you were referring to, I love the breathing. Um, yeah, from the time he's a little kid, but just hearing that breathing behind the mask. We talked about the breathing when we rever- reviewed um, the town, the dreaded sundown. The vi- visually being able to see that character breathe, 
But I, hear, I think hearing it in this, especially since we're often seeing things through this character's point of view, mm-hmm. to hear yeah. that breathing it is a very creepy and very kind of primal, animalistic um, thing to be experiencing. Um, that through another person's eyes, basically within their body, essentially. Espe- right. Especially since, like, you know, other than the grunting, the only sound we're getting from him is the breathing, which is like involuntary. And it's like the most primal, basic thing, noise that a human makes, right? So yeah. that's kind of yeah. weird. Now, I well, do- we, we need we need to talk about it because we brought it up. Do it. We could we could do a whole hour just on the opening segment because it's shot from from the audience perspective, mm-hmm. and, and people have made a big deal about this. And there's a lot, a lot that's already been written about it, but it was kind of revolutionary. I mean, it wasn't the first film that that used the camera as the audience's eyes, but um, it it almost contradicts one of Carpenter's intentions. So, uh, also going off the Internet Movie Database trivia, all these things we've been talking about have really really helped Carpenter's goal, which is to make the the killer unrelatable. That you don't relate to him, you can't empathize with him, you can't see any emotions. He's yeah. this thing, right? This shape. But once you put the mask on the camera lens, you're telling the audience you're the killer. Yeah. You you are him. You you are doing this thing. You are in this action. Uh, it's such a famous sequence. So here's another stupid technical term, but uh, Kaja Silverman came up with this idea of suture, and it's 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 well, I don't know if she came up with it. It's usually talked about in terms of literature, but what you do with suture is the same thing you would do in a surgical suture: is you bring two things together and you knit them into one thing. So by using the camera to recreate the visual perspective of a character, the audience is sutured to that character; they become one and the same. And it becomes really, really problematic in a film like Halloween because the audience is the voyeur. The audience is the little kid. The audience is the murderer. Yeah. Uh, where where the, the audience is looking up at the knife in their hand as it kills the, the girl. That's so used now that I think we need to remember that it wasn't then. It was a really big mm. deal and it really yeah. freaked people out. Yeah, I mean, we <laughs> talked about this in, during our proto-slasher proto episodes. Um, episodes. Because yeah, pe- Peeping Tom does it, right? Peeping Tom did it. Um, and Psycho does it to some to some degree when uh, he's looking through, you know, the hole oh, yeah. at, at the Janet hole Lee wall, in the yeah. shower. Who, yeah, by yeah. the way, is Jamie Lee Curtis's mom, actually. Mm-hmm. Which I just yeah. I forgot about that bit of trivia. But, um, but and, and the Steadicam had been around for six, seven years at this time. But I do credit carpenter for really being the first person to um combine those two elements and really feel like you're walking as this character around i don't think that had really been done in that way before that combination of of the pov and the steady cam and i think that really ups Uh, the ante and becomes something that horror um films particularly slasher films and stalker films use for you know yeah because in in psycho hitchcock uses the more standard shot reverse shot so right. we, we, we see Norman Bates, then we see through the hole, then we see Norman Bates. So we are sutured to him, but he's the one doing the looking. Right. Mm-hmm. At, in Halloween, because we don't see the kid until later. Six minutes. There, yeah, there is no sense of, oh, we're just seeing what this kid sees. It's, 
who are we? Where are we? What are we doing? Yeah. Uh, we're complicit with this. And then the big shock, the reveal is, oh, my gosh, uh, it's a little kid. Which, what a crazy scene that is. I mean, like you say, <laughs> we're, we are peeking through someone's window, you know, watching them fool around. Right. And we're walking into a kitchen and picking up a butcher knife. What an insane what an insane place to place put put your audience basically. <laughs> oh yeah. But see this is and I haven't thought enough about this, but so for the opening gambit, the audience is the killer. Yeah. And then for the rest of the movie, the audience is as far removed from the killer as humanly possible. Mm-hmm. So what is is this accidental or is Carpenter doing something here by saying, Okay, you're gonna be the killer and now you're gonna be the victim? I don't know. I, I, yeah, I, I, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. I hadn't thought about it until we kind of kind of sussed it out here. But there is a there is an audience perspective shift when we jump ahead 20, 20 years or whatever it is, seventeen years. Fifteen, yeah. Fifteen. So so there's another paper. So somebody out there can write that paper because I don't have <laughs> an I don't have an answer for that one. I think there's something really interesting going on. Well, yeah. s- speaking of the shift there, um, what I think is interesting about that is. Uh, I believe that we horror fans, the viewers, are later assigned to the little girl Lindsay, and, and this isn't in a in in as direct a way. I wouldn't call this sutured, but I think we relate to her because Lindsay's the little girl who's watching the horror movie so intently, and I think she represents the horror fan or us, and she is one hundred percent completely unhelpful because she's into the horror movie. And that's kind of how we viewers feel because we're not there to save the victims. We're there to watch people get hacked up for whatever reason, like because it's scary, you know. So she's only watching horror movies. She's she's completely unhelpful to um, Annie when she's calling for help, except at one point. But anyway, um, when she goes out to the laundry room, when they lure her out, I, I feel like they did that to to make us worry because not only is it a little kid that's in danger, but this is the person that we're relating to in the film at this point. And anyway, I just think that they make her a horror fan to make us more sympathetic toward her and maybe to relate to her. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And I always tell my students, if you're, if you're reading a book and the characters read a book, pay attention to what's going on, pay attention to what they're reading. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that once you see a character watch a film, what they watch is super important, but you're right. Then, then you become them because then you have a shared thing, right? Yeah. I'm watching you watch that, uh, rather than I'm watching you watch them. <laughs> so, so that's, that's, I think it's a good read. I think we do become, uh, we become kind of aligned and let's, you know, let's, you don't want to underestimate the sympathy that comes with the younger character. Mm-hmm. I think the younger, the younger, the character, the, the softer we're going to be for them. Yeah, I, I like all these things you guys are saying. I think there's a lot of watching in these movies. Obviously, I mean, Michael yeah. Myers is doing a lot of watching um, throughout this film, and I, and part of that's I think an ingenious way that Carpenter builds tension is to set a frame and put our actors in the foreground or the background, and um, having this, uh, you know, the antagonist basically in the frame with them without their knowledge. It happens several times in the film. And um, I've, that's such an effective way of um, of creating, you know, scares and tension. But also, you know, it's doing two things. Number one, it's giving the audience one up on our character. The we we are experiencing that these two characters are so close to each other, but 
but our our protagonist has no idea. Um, so again, it's putting us kind of uh, closer to the perspective of the of the killer, of the antagonist. But then also, um, well, I guess I just conflated those two those two points I was going to make. But yeah, I, you know, I, I find that pretty interesting as well. This idea of watching, and again, not to get into the other movies, but the it plays different roles as the films progress. This idea of watching, um, you know, uh, comes up time and time again in different different ways and different filmmaking techniques are used to kind of to, uh, to show that the Myers is, um, I, I don't know, again, like this idea of this childlike curiosity, you see him observing himself almost mm-hmm. um, from outside himself and so curious and almost yeah. without understanding of what he's doing. You see that quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I, but I think it does get us back to the idea of the id. We, we watch these serial killers, these slashers, these, these monsters with a kind of a grim fascination, but also I think if horror movies are truly honest with themselves, a little bit of envy, right? There is that sense of, <laughs> uh, to get back to the, the Greek catharsis, it's like, man, I really would love to just kill a bunch of people, so I'm going to watch this movie to get that sensation, <laughs> to feel what it's like, to figure out what it's like. And so I think, I think the argument could be made that for some audience members, they never cease identifying with with mike myers from that opening i think some stay with him and some shift their perspective and um as i watch it over and over the years my perspective shifts as i get older (laughs) because when i watch it now i'm with loomis man (laughs) so i'm because i'm the old doctor you're uh, the harbinger that's right when when 10 20 years ago i probably um I probably related more to <laughs> Lori or, or, or to maybe even the kids. So I've never been, <laughs> I'm pretty sure I've never been going, wow, that's awesome. I wonder if I could peg a guy to the wall. <laughs> well, I think that the, the horror movies, particularly slashers made a move toward, you know, obviously there were supposed to be rooting for the killers as these films progress. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, especially the Friday the 13th and, and Halloween and, the Nightmare on Elm Street um, franchises, I think, you know, the killers are obviously our main character in these movies. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, and, and to me, that also kind of explains why, you know, this newer trend of, um, you know, as they go back and remake these originals in which you weren't necessarily rooting for the killer, to try to yeah. explain that by get, getting us into the psychology of the killer. It makes sense, you know, because Halloween doesn't give you that um, the way Halloween, you know, five and six do, right? So, um, so if they're, you're going to remake it, then you kind of want to. And I think it's hard, even for me. Like I, you know, I, I wasn't, I wasn't going to a lot of movies in 1978, especially R-rated horror movies. So, um, so you know, I saw this movie later, and I saw it largely within the context of the franchise. And so, um, it's hard to remember. Oh, like we don't know that Laurie's his sister in this movie. How do I? How does this movie play differently if Lori's not his sister? You know, and um, yeah. I almost have to remind myself, Lori's not his sister, <laughs> as conceived in this first movie. Right, right. and that, that's why the study of a franchise is so fascinating. How uh, later filmmakers and writers kind of rewrite things and rescript it for their purposes. Because, because again, I, I know I'm kind of harping on the same point. To me, it's a lot scarier to think that this is just some kind of. Uh, embodiment of evil that's just taking kids out left and right. Um, the the backstory that comes later, the whole idea of oh, the sister, the blah blah blah, it's just less interesting to me. I I, th- I think monsters should be monstrous. Mm-hmm. As we get into Halloween too, I think we see 
um, that explanation of them being sister, you know, her, his sister is actually far more interesting as applied to Halloween one than it is applied to Halloween two. Um, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. it, it, it explains the motivations much more clearly for Halloween one. It gives that movie a lot of shape. Whereas I don't think it really adds anything to the story of Halloween two, to know that information. It's almost more like a plot contrivance mm, yeah. to explain why he's still looking for this person when there's a whole city of people he could be killing. Yeah. Yeah. And it does feel that way, but, um, we're, we're shifting so many different directions up. So to back up a couple points here, number one, that opening sequence, and I want to ask you about this, Josh, uh, because of your experience, it, the IMDb trivia says that it took two days to film that. Now, it, that's now, kind of surprising. <laughs> yeah, because it doesn't seem, I mean, it, it seems like a neat, a neat thing, but it doesn't seem like it would be two days worth of difficulty, but, um, I mean, here's the thing. It's two shots. The whole, the whole opening is just two separate shots. And so again, there's not, it doesn't seem like there's a lot to coordinate, but this is still in the early days of steady cam and, and, you know, and, and working in that first person with the knife and the, and the mask, that just may have been difficult to, uh, to coordinate. I mean, you know, now you see a movie like Russian arc where it's 60 minutes <laughs> of one shot and the entire, you know, hundreds of people in the cast and it's all coordinated. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, nuts. but, but at this time, this is, you know, this is pretty early in this technology and I'm sure it was difficult to get them to head upstairs to make out at the same time he's crossing the window frame and then he gets the knife and the other guy comes down back down the stairs, right. As that's happening. I mean, I'm, you know, I probably took, I can imagine that taking half a day. <laughs> <laughs> now, <laughs> At least okay. nowadays, you know, but, okay. but yeah, I mean, I guess two days doesn't seem too outrageous for the time period. What does this sound right to you? Because I was going to ask you too about the number of shots. Cause yeah, it appears to be like a single tracking shot, but um, according to the IMDB again, it says there are three cuts. The first okay. one is when the mask goes on and then the second and the third are after the murder happens. And then the shape is exiting the room. The little boy is, and this was done. They said to make the point of view appear to move faster. And I, I, I didn't catch that. I mean, I try to watch for that, but it's, it's hard for me to perceive it. Do you, do you catch that in there when you watch it? Um, I didn't, I mean, I saw, I saw it as two shots, so, okay. um, but it was three and that's, that's what shots. I would have thought too, is like yeah. two shots, but I, I don't know if it's correct. Well, for for what it's worth, I usually pay attention to stuff like that. But in this this opening sequence, especially, I my cinematic eye closes. Yeah, and I just get swept along, uh, especially in that opening. Uh, I just I don't even pay attention to that kind of stuff because it's so arresting. Mm-hmm. Even now, even after I've seen it so many times. Well, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is very arresting. That's a good word. So one more thing on the shape, you guys. Sorry about this, but that, that it really does fascinate me. Um, so my theory on the whole shape thing, and this is just me assigning one. Um, this probably wasn't there from Carpenter, but I think that he's the shape because he gives form to the evil, right? And we he's the embodiment of evil in a human being. And yeah. um and then this is kind of a dark path, but Michael Myers is fictional. But I think if you believe in actual evil or the devil, if you will, and and I'm I'm one of those people. I believe in actual evil, and I think the devil exists. So 
I think in a real way, um, Michael Myers is kind of scary to me because in a way he's a possibility in, in someone with my belief system because I think Eve was real. And so I'm not saying like the superhuman guy that can lift people up with a knife, but I think that um, evil being driven from a very dark place, you know, maybe driven through a human being, like, I don't know, maybe, maybe Hitler was Michael Myers. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, you know what I mean? Like, it's weird to me that it's like, okay, can a human be used as a vessel to deliver just hell on earth kind of, so to speak? Whether, whether or not it really can, it's a great horror concept. <laughs> <laughs> I get a little tired in real life. Uh, when people try to blame the horrific actions of people on some other influence. Mm -hmm. And so my conception of a, of a literalized personified devil is, is probably a little bit different. Uh, and so I like this, I like this depiction of Myers that he's not like a human being who's being driven by, by a satanic influence or being tempted to do things. Um, again, it's, it's the fact that he represents something that is inexplicable to the man of science, uh, that he, whereas we can probably rationally explain a lot of psychosis, we can't this one. <laughs> and yes. so, so yes. it's not so much to me that Myers is a human being who is a vessel for evil or being driven by evil. It's that Loomis, the only way Loomis can explain what he sees in Myers is that he is evil. Mm -hmm. And so again, the kind of what we talked about earlier, I don't think the line is a reference to God and the devil or, or kind of this moral or ethical thing of good and evil. I think when Loomis says he's evil, he means he's the absence of everything human. He's the absence <laughs> of what psychology tells about humanity. And he just goes, he defies every expectation and every rational uh, system. So that's why he's so frightening is he's just this force and again shape is what is in the screenplay but i think ultimately force is a better word because he does stuff he acts yeah um, and we we at least in the in the context of the first film we don't know why um on the topic of evil this is a quote that i that i came across and i um had forgotten about it when we were discussing this early earlier but since it came up again i thought maybe there's a chance to throw this in there and i do want to um, support what Kyle said, that it actually doesn't really matter what the filmmakers um, think their movie's about, <laughs> um, because our interpretation as an audience is just as valid, I think, once the film is uh, created. Mm -hmm. um, but this is a quote from Deborah Hill, who, again, was a producer, co-writer, and eventual wife of uh, John Carpenter. Um I don't know what year this was given in. And that's another reason why I say, you know, take this with a grain of salt or whatever. I, I think it's interesting. Um, however, I, it's a, uh, it comes from Fangoria, but the, the source I found uh, says that it was from an interview given with Hill in uh, 2006. And since she died in 2005, I think that's probably not <laughs> dependable information, but <laughs> right. uh, the quote goes something like this. The idea was that you couldn't kill evil. And that was how we came about the story. We went back to the old idea of Sam Hain, that Halloween was, Halloween was the night where all the souls are let out to wreak havoc on the living. And then we came up with a story about the most evil kid who ever lived. And when John came up with this fable of a town with a dark secret of someone who had once lived there, and now that evil had come back, that combination is what made Halloween work. 
So I don't know, kind of convoluted, but basically this idea is that, you know, that he, his evil is unleashed upon this town. Um, I, I like that idea as well. Yeah, I, I do too. And it is kind of puritanical. It does kind of have that, that Salem witch trial thing to yeah. try to pull Mather back into it. Uh, <laughs> but, but it is very, I mean, the, the story in a weird way is very much like a Hawthorne story. It's this idea of a little village that has a secret and then there's a reckoning. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, as I've written about extensively, that's, that's what the uncanny is. The uncanny is all about bringing a secret into the light, uh, a secret that is almost as horrific for the protagonist as for the antagonist. Mm, I like that. I do too. Well, there's a, let's see, there, there's a lot of like neat little things here um, that, that are descriptions of him in the film. But if, if you don't mind here, I want to just play one little clip here from, uh, Dr. Loomis, and I think it's probably the, at least my favorite description of him in the film. Here it is. I met him 15 years ago. I, I was told there was nothing left. No reason, no uh, conscience, no understanding, and even the most rudimentary sense of life or death, of, of good or evil, right or wrong. I met this six-year-old child with this blank, pale, emotionless face and the blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. I spent eight years trying to reach him and then another seven trying to keep him locked up because I realized that what was living behind that boy's eyes was purely and simply evil. So oh, that, That's a good clip. I forgot that he does actually mention the devil. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty cool stuff. But um, anyways, I know... We only have you for a little bit longer, Kyle, and uh, so I just want to turn it over to you and see if there's something specific you wanted to cover or talk about at Halloween before you go. The score, man. Okay. I'm going to ask you to. The score is so minimalistic, and it's so iconic now, but I think it's one of the most terrifying pieces of music ever written. Why? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, or, do I you think guys, or do you guys not agree? I, I totally agree, and not only the the most, you know, the obvious popular theme that you know, the film is known for. But even that piece of music that was playing behind Loomis, I think that's also another really effective reoccurring uh, theme that we see throughout, you know, the entire franchise. Um, but I think for me, it's it's kind of back to the simplicity. And, and it, you know, the music really fits the film in that way. Um, you know, it it's very simple, but it it's very effective in bringing out the mood, you know, that it's uh, that it's striving for. And those notes, you know, cut like a knife, as it were. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I think it is. I think it is very, very effective music. This is. I'm sorry. A quick tangent. I know. Um, maybe we shouldn't be wasting Kyle's time with this tangent. But you know, I um, you know, you put these ringtones on your phone, and um, and when you you know when you have kind of a stressful job, as I sometimes do, um, when people call you and you have a song on your on your ringtone that you really enjoy, or you know. It start you starts to kind of make you hate the song. I remember I had the uh, Kirby enthusiasm theme as my ringtone for a little while, and uh, and I just started to loathe it because <laughs> because I knew I was getting bad news every time I heard it. And so uh, what I did is I took the Halloween theme and I put that on everybody's. You know, I applied that to the numbers of each person that I knew I wasn't going to want to hear from. And so uh, every time that every time that music sounded, I knew. This was bad, um, and it was a perfect combination because not only 
They did not ruin a you know a nice cheery song like the Kirby Enthusiasm theme, but it really did kind of strike fear into my heart every time I heard it. And I you know I had this overwhelming sense of dread as I went to answer my phone, so it worked out perfectly. It does make sense because I think even people who haven't seen the film feel dread when they hear that piece. <laughs> well, I, and I I'm a musician, I'm a songwriter, and I think there my theory is I think there are two reasons for that. Number one, it's the intervals of the notes or the distance between the notes that you're hearing. There are certain intervals that make us um a little uncomfortable because they're they're less common and they're um somewhat unfamiliar to us. And this has um, some of those intervals in it. And the other reason is, is because this theme is written in 5-4 time signature, which is very bizarre and um, like completely unusual. So I think that in and of itself is a little bit unsettling for people, even on a subconscious level, even if they don't realize or know anything about music. And um, And I wonder if that's a little bit of an outsider artist genius on Carpenter's part, because he's not, he doesn't read music, right? Um, So he's, he's just playing what is working on him emotionally. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if that, that kind of plays into the effectiveness of it as well. It's a strange, it's a strange theme that probably a uh, skilled composer never would have come up with. Right. Which is what makes it so amazing and and so awesome because I think you're all, you're both totally right. And and it's such a great oral uh, manifestation of everything that's going on visually because it is, it is simple. It is simplistic. It is off-putting. It is dissonant. It is unfamiliar. Uh, And and so it, it just really adds um, a layer to it because I have colleagues who think that film studies is easy because there's it's so simple, <laughs> which we, we all know is stupid. Right. Um, but it really is that that musical score is the layer that I think cements it all together and makes it because I think it's a, I think it's a good film. I think it's probably a great film, but I think the music is what really makes it great. Um, wow. be, because it, it could have failed or been even a little hokey if you didn't have that extrasensory, you know, multi-sensory level of fear, terror, uncertainty, dread, all that stuff going on. Sure. Yeah. And the fact, I, I, Carpenter tells a story. I, I didn't rewatch any of the special features or anything for this discussion. I probably should have. But I remember there's a story that Carpenter tells about showing the film without music, without the sound design to um, some executives and them being really underwhelmed and, you know, and him saying, just wait for the music. And when he played it again for them, with the music, just how terrifying they all thought it was. And so I think that's what you say is absolutely true. I think from an experiential Mm -hmm. level. Real quick question, Kyle, before we get your rating. Um, I think this Halloween, the the whole franchise, and we'll be talking about this as we go, but I think it does some really unconventional things with its protagonist and antagonist. And I, and tell me if you agree or disagree, but to me in the strictest definition of the term, I would actually argue that Michael Myers is the protagonist in this film and that Dr. Loomis is the antagonist. Do you think that's accurate or not? I do not. Okay. Well, <laughs> well, why, why is it that you think that? Uh, I think that's a really interesting perspective, but I th- uh, y- you would have to explain and justify it to me quite a bit because, <laughs> because the traditionally speaking, the protagonist is the person who is trying to restore order and safety and security. And, and if you go back far enough in, in, in 
storytelling. That's that's the whole point of the protagonist. The antagonist is the one who's trying to stir things up and and break down the status quo and challenge conventions and upset the the pace of life. So Kyle, if you're going, he's he's trying to restore order. He's going home, and and <laughs> he's taking out the people that apparently in his mind need to be taken out. Uh, and, perhaps, but but see. <laughs> Don't all antagonists see themselves as protagonists? Yes, yeah, uh, exactly. Which because because you're always the hero in your own story, allegedly. Sure. So I, I think from the audience perspective, um, especially in '78, you know, we're we're talking about uh, the doctor, the the old, the wise man, the wizard figure, who is the the bringer of knowledge and trying to restore and save and and construct. I think you can do a very convincing and interesting postmodern reading with your perspective, mm-hmm. uh, but it's certainly not the classical or the conventional one. Sure. And if we had more time on this, I, I I do have a couple other things to throw at you. Maybe another day we'll talk about that. But before you go, I just want to hear. Um, your final thoughts and your rating on Halloween. Okay, yeah. The one thing I wanted to bring up is I think one of the most terrifying moments in cinematic history is a scene we haven't talked about, but it freaks me out every time. It's when uh, Loomis drives up to the insane asylum and everybody's just wandering around. Yeah. <laughs> and there's just all those people in their Scary. white robes or clothes. It's and very Night of the Living Dead. It is, but it's it's scarier for me, uh, maybe because I have kind of a of a natural fear of insanity or the insane. I think we all kind of have that. <laughs> it's just it the the tone and the style is so eerie and creepy. It really it yes. works for me on many many levels, and that that moment always freaks me out. Uh, and the other one I've alluded to it twice already is when you just kind of see him off in the distance. Mm-hmm. He's just he's just there. He's just standing there uh, doing his <laughs> thing. The fact that you see him in daylight, you know, rather than just always in the dark. Yeah, I I think that uh, I love Carpenter a lot, and I don't know why or how or if he he's lost his mojo. But for so many filmmakers and artists and writers, it seems like their early outings are so great, and I don't know if they they like blow their creative juices early but i think i think this is one of the quintessential horror films i think it paves the way for so much of what we consider almost cliche today uh but that was extremely innovative then i also love horror films made by people who are unknown with no experience just making it on a shoestring budget uh which which i think this one does have some ties to *Night of the living dead on that score so uh we still using the 10 point rating yes sir and halves are legal keep me up to speed uh i would i would give halloween a 10 like i said it's it's my number eight of all time i think as far as horror goes it's pretty much a perfect film do you do you tell people to buy it then is that a buy Oh, you, if you're a horror fan and you don't own this film, you're not a horror fan. You gotta, <laughs> you gotta turn. I own it. You gotta turn in your card, it. man. There's I, like 20 horror films you should own on on Blu-ray, and this is one of them. I have it on DVD. Well, but, we'll allow it. Okay. <laughs> also, to to intone uh, the great Joe Bob Briggs, it's also a film that has uh, knitting foo. Uh, and as a recreational knitter, I love to see the knitting needles brought out as a defensive weapon. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. All right, Kyle. Well, thanks for joining us tonight. We uh, And I can guarantee you the listeners loved having you, too. We really appreciate it. And would you tell them 
where they can uh, catch up with you. You're a, you're an author of uh, books and you're also on Twitter. Tell us your plugs. I do have things out there. Uh, my my one book, American Zombie Gothic, has been reduced in price, and it is available as an ebook through Amazon, so you can check it out. I am sort of frantically working on a follow up volume that's supposed to be done next year. Uh, we'll see if I get there. Um, I have a new piece coming out in the British journal Gothic Studies on World War Z and how it has transformed the Gothic narrative. Uh, for the 21st century. If anybody can find that for less than a, a large sum of money, check it out. <laughs> um, and then I am on Twitter at Dr. Walking Dead, where I try to give some uh, film reviews from time to time. I try to offer my insights into fantasy, science fiction, but mostly horror and lots of zombie stuff. Uh, I don't do personal or political tweets, if that makes people happier. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this summer, I've been deeply embroiled in the world of horror, survival horror video games, which is not something I've written about. So I'm currently playing The Last of Us. But mm -hmm. by the time this broadcasts, I will hopefully be done with it. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. And also people should know um, that you appear in the documentary Doc of the Dead, which we'll be talking That's about. That's right. On a future episode of this podcast. We, Doc of the Dead, at least is, as of late July, is available for streaming on Netflix. Mm -hmm. It's it's a pretty great star-studded film about the history of zombies and why they're popular. I highly recommend it, and not just because I'm in it. <laughs> All right. It sounds great. Well, thanks so much for joining us tonight. It was good to have you, buddy. Thanks for having me. I'll be back. Sounds awesome. Thank you. <laughs> Goodbye. So this is the final thing on um, this whole shape business. There's something that I like to call pure cinema, or at least when cinema is used as it is meant to be used. Like, in other words, we're, we're, what we're shown on screen is actually depicting or furthering the story, reinforcing it, making it stronger. And and I think the best example of of them reinforcing the fact that he is the shape is when Laurie's like Laurie Strode's like against the wall, and there's that dark doorway beside her, and then all of a sudden um, we see his face kind of materialize, his his mask yeah. comes up out of the darkness. Now there, there's brilliant shot. Yeah, I mean, like that—that's pretty amazing in the way that they did that. With um, I read that they used like a little dimmer switch, and then the light slowly caught the mask and lit it up. But, but even more than that, when you're watching this, it almost appears because the camera is shooting through this this railing by the stairs, and you don't really realize that. And it almost appears like you're looking through the mask, and you hear the breathing or whatever. And so as the camera raises you think that you're looking from michael myers perspective but then right. you see him appear behind her yeah. and you realize it's just the railing that is extremely effective and it's a it's a tremendous scare for the viewer yeah excellent pure cinema for me um another theme i wanted to talk about and this was fate and i think that fate plays a role in the halloween franchise um like when she's sitting in her class they're giving a lecture about fate. And I love when horror movies do that, actually, when when they talk about things that end up kind of playing a role or being a theme underlying in the film. And, and, and so, like, you know, they talk about how no matter what course of action is taken, they're destined to face a day of reckoning, which we've already talked about. 
and and so fate is personified in this lecture they're they're talking about fate being personified and then we've talked already about how michael myers personifies evil and how he's never changing kind of like fate uh, do you have any thoughts on the theme of fate in halloween no i mean i i, I definitely um it's another one of those things that for me plays a much larger role in the film if I'm looking at the film through the eyes of like a f- someone who's seen the whole franchise, because I think that's something that they come back to time and time again, particularly in Halloween H2O. That's a major theme mm-hmm. um, of Halloween H2O. But I think it's I think it's here. It's there. It's just not as obvious uh, without kind of the sequels pointing you in that direction. I think that's uh, that's a very uh, that's a very interesting thing that you're able to pick out of that. Yeah, I love that stuff. And speaking of sequels, back when we had the Considering the Sequels podcast, there's something that I like to talk about that I call a satellite story. I don't actually know if there is a term for it, but I've always called it a satellite story. And that's when you have a character in a film that gives you um, this little history lesson. And it's not really a backstory because it's not, it doesn't really belong to one of the major characters. Cause in that case, it would be a backstory, but a satellite story is usually something little creepy tale. Like for example, one of my favorites is in gremlins when she tells the story about why she doesn't like Christmas and how her dad was Santa Claus. And do right. you remember that? Okay. Mm-hmm. I don't want to spoil it in case no one's <laughs> seen gremlins, but, but, <laughs> but anyway, I thought you didn't like Gremlins, just as a quick aside. I I like it, but not for a horror film. I mean, for a kid's film, it's fine. But anyway, there's a satellite story in Halloween. And um, it's such a tease because it's when the the graveyard keeper is walking with um, Loomis and they're going to check out Judas' grave. And he talks about Charlie Bowles in Russellville about 15 years ago, he says, which happens to be the same time that this Michael Myers business happened with his sister, which yeah. I thought was interesting because it's like, hmm, was there like a comet or some meteor that made people <laughs> start killing people? And in this story, he says, after dinner, <laughs> this this husband came in and kissed his wife and children, and he went and got uh, a hacksaw out of the garage, and then he proceeded to, and then they cut, and they don't tell us the rest of the story. <laughs> And then we see that Judith Myers' headstone is missing and so forth. But anyway, I love satellite stories and I love it that they put a creepy little one in here because those always tend to make me feel a little uneasy. That's wonderful. You know, um, I that's something I hadn't identified, I guess, before. And uh, now that you mention it, that is one of my favorite things in film as well. One of my favorites is from The Burbs, um, where uh, Art, the neighbor, tells Tom Hanks' character, about uh, an ice cream vendor that used to live in the neighborhood. Do you remember that story? Mm, vaguely. Remind oh, me, though. It's so good. It's very similar to what you just described. He basically talks about how, <laughs> um, you know, he would, by day, he would be down at the soda fountain serving the kids ice cream, um, but he'd, he'd killed his whole family and they were in this basement. And the smell started to rise from the house and, uh, oh, and everyone in the neighborhood wondered what it was, but nobody asked him because they liked him so much and all this stuff. I don't, I don't remember the exact details, but the way that actor tells it um, is particularly uh, wow. fun. Wow. I, I wonder if that story that you're describing there is actually based on um, Mr. Freezy, who is associated with um, Richard Kuklinski, the Iceman, because oh, there, there was an ice cream truck driver <laughs> who taught Kuklinski how to kill so effectively, and they actually stored 
um, a dead body. This is real life, not in a movie. Stored a dead body in the ice cream truck in the freezer where they kept all the kids' treats. They kept a dead body down in there for two years and drove around and sold kids' ice cream with that body down in there because they wanted to disguise the time of death and so forth. But And anyway, that was kind of referenced in Ghost Dog, if it, right, as well? I, I, see, I don't remember it in that movie, but I did like that film. I don't remember yeah. that because I didn't know that story at the time, but... Um, that's cool, Josh. Good recall on that. Anyway, one other thing about the protagonist antagonist. Even if you look at this film in traditional, you know, classic terms, like where Laurie Strode is the hero or the heroine, and then the villain is Michael Myers. Um, you know, I think it's interesting or maybe even peculiar that they don't actually tangle. I mean, they see each other a lot in the film. But they don't tangle and clash until very late in the film. Right. Which isn't always well, the case. Well, he's stalking her. He's clearly stalking her. Yeah. Yeah, he is. He is. And it's, I mean, it's teasing that battle or that clash. But it, it, it doesn't get to that until very late in the film. I think it's a little unusual. Um, something else that cracked me up about this movie, Josh, is how scandalous it is about children. There are two instances. Number one, when... Bob, Bobby and uh, is it Linda, they were talking about what the, the plan was with going up and getting in the bedroom and he's going to rip off her clothes or whatever. Um, he, Bobby says offhandedly that he's going to rip off Lindsay's clothes too, and that's the little girl. <laughs> oh, <geez. laughs> that's, that. that's kind of bizarre, right? And then um, later, uh, they put both those kids, the boy and the girl, and, to, to sleep together in the same bed. So they fall asleep in the same bed, and that's kind of bizarre, too. It kind of makes me laugh. It's just weird. <laughs> my my kids are always trying to sleep in the same bed. So. <laughs> right. That, uh, doesn't, that one doesn't creep me out quite as much. Okay. Well, here's a crazy little fact. I, I love when there are dates given in a film, Wolfman. I love to look up, you know, any details about that actual date and history. Yeah. And on Halloween 1978, which is when this film occurs, that was actually on a Tuesday in real life. And on that Tuesday, there was a new moon, which meant that it was very dark that night because there was no moon visible in the sky. So um, very cool. that's kind of cool to me. But anyways, um, <laughs> did you I have love any- my moons too, Jason? Oh, yeah. I know you do because you're the wolf man. <laughs> so how... Now, this will be a weird question, asking the guy who is the biggest fan of Halloween. This is your number one movie. But do you have any issues or problems with this first Halloween film? Yeah, I, I actually do have a lot of problems with the film. Um, but they're not – they're all technical things. And so um, I think because all the other aspects work for me so well and understanding the time and budget constraints of the film – uh, there are things I can pretty easily forgive. Um, mm-hmm. They don't really, they don't really detract um, from either my appreciation or my rating of the film. Yeah. But it's actually kind of why I like zombies retelling. And it's why I even welcome another one because I kind of like, you know, as Kyle was talking about, you know, some of these topics earlier, I thought, you know, that would be interesting to incorporate this uh, Freudian idea into the film even deeper, you know, more blatantly, but I don't, I like remakes if they, I don't know, I guess that's not even true. I like, I like the, even the Gus Van Sant remake of Psycho, so I'm maybe not the best judge 
Um, <laughs> but I like the I like the idea of exploring these characters I love further, and I think that's why also um, you know sequels aren't quite as offensive to me as they are for a lot of people, just because. Mm-hmm. Give me any, give me any little nugget I can get out of these characters, and I'm happy. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Do you want me to call some of my problems with it out? They're mostly just little things, like, um, like a lot of it's editing, and that's another thing. That just the time period, it was a lot harder to be as precise with editing um, as you can be now. I mean, now you can you can really nail the moment perfectly. Then it was a lot more effort, a lot more work, a lot more time to get the editing as precise as, as you would nowadays. But Yeah, and this actually had two editors on it, so I find that interesting. Do you think it was like too many chefs in the kitchen, if you had to guess like what was the problem there? or or? What? I don't know, and I don't, want, I don't mean to be critical of the film. I, I kind of said this earlier when I was saying um, you know, maybe, maybe Carpenter just hadn't thought about it. <laughs> Right. Which is which I'm sure people will hate to hear me say, but um, but you know this film was rushed. It was written in three weeks. Um, you know they had a relatively small budget. It was bigger than his first film, but it was still only three hundred thousand um, dollars to shoot the movie. You can tell by the you know the lighting that you know they didn't have much to light their exterior scenes. On the other hand, I feel like that those um deficiencies actually make the film really great like to me the, <laughs> yeah. the way they light night in this movie is better than most movies in yeah, my opinion. serendipitously it went yeah exactly. it goes very well <laughs> yeah exactly and so i mean so yeah i mean a lot of the things that i have trouble with technically actually work for the film nice okay well that that's cool i mean see my my things are and it's some like a gritty almost more realism i guess yeah i think it does make it more realistic as well and i like what you said where a lot of the things are so small like most of my things are kind of nitpicky and um and honestly because of the greatness of the film and the way it's inspired other films and the classic nature of it i mean it is easy to forgive those my biggest gripe along the way was just the the pacing of it and and how how much teasing there is in the stocking portion. And I know for a lot of people that building of suspense is the heart of Halloween. And I tell you the things that Kyle said tonight um, really actually started converting me and opening my eyes to things. And so um, I'm kind of having a change of heart along those lines, but, but in terms of little things, there's, there's some issues with the age continuity, right? Because they say he's six in 1963 and then right. 15 years later you know it's supposed to be 1978 which is 15 years later and he would be 21 but in the film they call him 23 and that's not a big deal but it, it's just funny it's weird to me that they overlooked that but they yeah. fix it in the next film so they make a reference to it and like i said little stuff um annie i think her her character is has some weakness in the writing there because um, she's alone a good bit. And yeah. so what do they do? They have her talk to herself a lot of the time <laughs> that she's alone. And that, Come on, Annie. Yeah. And that's indicative of a weak character or, um, you know, a little bit of weakness in the writing because, you know, if your characters are alone, then you need to depend on it being cinematic to tell the story for the people and not have the characters. Yeah, but I'm in love with her. And so I want to hear what's going on in her inner monologue. (laughs) Okay. Um, My second biggest thing about this movie and man, and this is probably a budget issue, but I wish 
if there's anything that I could like quote unquote fix about Halloween, I think there needs to be a lot more trick or treaters, a lot more activity on the streets. Um, even if it's just once or twice somebody comes to the door, I mean, it is like a ghost town at night. It, it's a very quiet night. There's not a lot of activity. Um, but otherwise, I mean, Wait till you see what, what, what their hospital's like. <laughs> <laughs> right. But I will say, um, I, otherwise it's a great environment. Like I like the little babysitter block party that's going on and I love the community watching of Dr. Dementia. And, and by the way, and that's like, remember Dr. Dementia, six straight hours of horror films. It, is that Dr. Dementia? Was that a real um, person or is that just made up for this film? I would assume it was somewhat based on Dr. Demento, the radio guy, and just like a twist on that. But I actually don't know. I, again, you know, I, I wasn't really around and kicking during this original release of the films. Okay. Just curious about that. Um, but anyways... And the last thing on the slow building is, um, you know, because it opens like classic slasher. It opens with a kill. But then we don't actually see a kill until 53 minutes into the film. And, um, you know, so that's, like I said, that's a lot of buildup to get there. But anyways. There are other kills, though. Right. There are other deaths that are off screen, like the the guy he gets the overalls from, the mechanic, for example. Yeah, that's true. Um, <clears throat> anyways, I got I do have a few um, IMDb trivia highlights that I thought were noteworthy. These are probably from the commentary. So, um, but the original script was called "The Babysitter Murders." And, yeah, I heard them. And the events were supposed to take place over the space of several days, but because of the budget, they decided to just have everything happen on the same day, and that would help reduce like costume changes and locations. And then they decided that Halloween was the scariest night of the year, so it was perfect for this. So that's why it became Halloween. And I also... Um, Which is brilliant, and it's shocking. This is the first time we've there was a movie <laughs> called Halloween. I know, it's crazy. Like, from the invention of cinema until, up until 1978. like There should have been several films called Halloween by that point. What a great... <laughs> it just instantly communicates so much oh, to me. Yeah. Yeah, and, and probably some of that has to do with this film. But, you know, I mean, just as an American, I think your experience of this holiday as a child, the, there's, you bring so much to the film already yourself. You know, there's so much baggage you bring to a film called Halloween, which is great. Totally agree with that. Yeah. Probably. As opposed to maybe April Fool's Day or. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm sure most of the listeners know this, but there's actually a book written by Curtis Richards and it's called Halloween. And it's kind of rare, I guess. And I, I looked it up on Amazon, and they have one copy available, and it costs three thousand one hundred and fifteen dollars plus four bucks for shipping. <laughs> so, but I guess it gives more of the backstory, um, and a lot more details. But of all the reviews I read online about it, they said it's a pretty good novel. So, if somebody's got three grand, you should buy the Halloween novel. And let us know. (laughs) I bet you there are listeners out there, maybe one or two, that even own it. And then maybe they could tell us what they think about it. That would be great. I would love to hear about that. Yeah, that would be super cool. But yeah, I I personally don't have three grand for it. Otherwise, I would check it out. Um, Since this was shot in the spring of 1978, 
they had a difficult time finding pumpkins for this film. And, you know, I, that's something you don't think about, right? <laughs> Unless you're making yeah. the movie. But, you know, so that made me, I read that before rewatching it this time. And um, so every time I saw a pumpkin, I was impressed that they were able to come up oh, with those. <laughs> not just the pumpkins. Take a look at the leaves on the ground, Jason. They had, all of those had to be created in place. <laughs> yes. I mean, they, they did a pretty impressive job of production design considering, yeah. um, you know, again, like the budget they were operating under. And they even had to recycle those because of the budget. They had to collect them all again and take them and <laughs> rescatter them around, which I think is super cool. Um, this is something that I've always thought was needed in a film and I think this is brilliant. But uh, director John Carpenter, of course, this, like many films, this was shot out of sequence. And so what he did to give continuity to Jamie Lee Curtis's performance is he made this fear meter to show her what level of terror she should be at in her performance. And um, I think that's brilliant. And I wish that more films did that. <laughs> so. And by the way, this was voted the fifth scariest film of all time by Entertainment Weekly. Not that anybody cares what Entertainment Weekly has to say. But anyways, <laughs> so do you have anything else to say before we give our ratings, Josh? Uh, I don't think so. Okay. All right. Well, um, I'll go first because I think I know what your rating is already. <laughs> all right. For me, I do really admire this film i'm not as insane and over the moon about it as everybody else is and i think it's because i'm a little bit of an impatient viewer i think it's tremendous i think it captures that thing that we refer to all the time even though i know it was in from 1978 but it captures that feeling of the 80s horror that i love you know every time you watch it it's an experience i mean it feels like you're there in the film it's very affecting. There are some ways in which it's mind-blowing, for sure. I mean, I, like, like I described that scene of pure cinema, for example, or the scene when he's under the sheet as the ghost. I mean, that is crazy scary to me. Even though, respecting what Kyle said, which really did start changing my heart about it, I wish it had a little bit more of, um, I don't know, a little bit more of an exciting rewatch, so it didn't take quite as much patience on my part as the viewer. So... For me, this is still a must-see. This is a definite buy, but um, I give it an 8.5 out of 10. Let's say buy it for sure. What do you say, Wolfman? Well, I love this movie. I love... Um, there, there are some shots that, for me, just are unmatched. Um, you know, you've talked about some of the best already. You know, the, the head tilt, um, you know, the, the face appearing from the darkness. Obviously, I mean, for me, the the best or among those three um, is the one where he sits up behind her. I think it works on so many levels. Uh, Not only is it just terrifying (laughs) because this guy cannot be stopped. You're feeling at this point, but, but also again, I love that use of the kind of lingering frame by Carpenter that you've got the shot that just holds and, you know, we think we're, okay, something's been accomplished. We're done. It's time to relax. <laughs> and and then the audience knows that's not the case, but Lori still doesn't know that. And I love the way that that's played out. I also love the brutality when he breaks through that closet. That's a, a truly terrifying um, moment for that character. And yeah. uh, and I think um, it's super iconic as well. But I don't know. There's so many great things about this movie. Um, it is hard for me, I will admit, to separate 
um, the franchise from the film. Um, and now that the franchise gets particularly gets better, really. <laughs> I mean, this is one of the high. This is definitely one of the brightest spots of the franchise. But I, but I still but like just all that added history, um, all the backstory, all of that kind of plays into my appreciation of the film. I think mm-hmm. I, I just think it's impossible again to like watch this. It's very difficult for me, I should say, to watch this and not think like, okay, that's his sister. You know, that's just something that <laughs> right. is so ingrained into my subconscious as I watch it but sure um but I just do love the movie I feel like it's technically um so well executed for the budget it the the ways in which it's executed becomes so important for the horror uh the broader horror genre and the slasher subgenre specifically um for basically you know up until today and so um we owe a lot of I owe a lot of my favorite film experiences over the years just to this film uh, existing and John Carpenter's work on this film um, specifically. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it's a 10 for me. I, I have a lot of nitpicky problems with it. I do often wonder, was this all just a very lucky accident? Um, but, you know, I mean, there's, you know, there was clearly the things that are most impressive about it were clearly thought out. I think the things that seem more random to me are, um, or in the writing stage, which again happened over the course of three weeks. But, mm-hmm. but in terms of the filmmaking, uh, once the script was written, the production portion, and then the legacy of this film, I think um, it's undeniable that it's vital to the horror genre. Yeah, absolutely. So obviously that's a buy it for people, right? I mean, I own no less than five or six copies of this movie right now. <laughs> I've got, um, I've got the VHS I've got a DVD. I've got the DVD of the television version that has additional footage added to it. Nice. Um, I've got two Blu-rays right now, and um, you know, as we speak, the the new Halloween Blu-ray collection has not been released. But um, yeah, I'm debating that one still. It's <laughs> going to depend. It's going to depend on the special features whether or not I make that purchase. <laughs> I think you'll get it. I hope you do. So. That's great. Well, thanks for talking about Halloween with me, Josh. Yeah. The police have cordoned off the entire area. To repeat, three teenagers have been found murdered in a house in the northwest section of Haddonfield. The names of the teenagers have not... Okay, and at this point in episode 27 of Horror Movie Podcast, we still have Wolfman Josh here with us, and me, of course, Jay of the Dead. And then, I want people to know that we have the Mad Doctor here, Dr. Shock. (laughs) (laughs) It's good to be good to be back i'm real sorry i missed that uh, that first discussion of a, of a classic film but i'm sure uh, dr walking dead uh, did an awesome job uh, uh dissecting it with you two gentlemen so i'm um, looking forward to hearing that and it's good to be back and welcome back and we're gonna actually ask you about it here in a minute dave so no sweat <laughs> we'll still get to hear from you because i know the listeners will want to um, all right now before we move into this halloween 2 review we want to introduce our special guest that's here with us tonight. He hails from North Carolina, helps keep horror alive, and is often referred to as the Southern Gentleman. He is one of the great five, and I mean one of the hosts of Planet Macabre, and he's currently the host of the Land of the Creeps Horror Podcast. And his all-time favorite horror film, of course, without question, is John Carpenter's Halloween, and he enjoys eating ice cream while watching horror movies. 
and he has the very best horrorized nickname in the business. Horror Movie Podcast welcomes the original creature himself, Greg Amortis. Wow. I, I'm done. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> what an introduction, dude. Thank you so much. What's up, Horror Movie Podcast? <laughs> dude, I love you guys, man. Thank you, Jay. Wolfman over. Ow, 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 ow. Yes. I had to give my ass for Stevie Kachuk, who listens. That's for you, buddy. I did my worst Wolfman impression. And, of course, Dr. Shop, man. <laughs> yep. And I do love ice cream when I watch horror movies. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's one of my favorite facts about you. Well, well Greg Amortis here. See, I, I'm sure everybody knows this because you're already a celebrity. But on November 1st, 2012, on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno, Jamie Lee Curtis actually referred to Greg Amortis on air, telling the audience about your tattoo of her from Halloween. And man, I must suck at the internet because I looked everywhere to try to find an audio clip of that. Um, so could you tell the listeners what she said? The the gist of it, I couldn't quote it word for word, even though I should. I mean, I've watched it like a million times. But <laughs> basically, during this interview with Jay Leno, Jaws himself. What's up, Jaws? Yeah, I know him personally. I can call him that. <laughs> no, not really. no, basically what she did, she, she called me Larry. I'm Larry. Okay. <laughs> Whatever. You know, she put me in that little typecast as Larry. She said, you know, there's always that Larry that's at a children's book sign and it's got long hair, which I'm bald. I don't get that. But anyway, <laughs> she just basically went on to say, you know, this, this typical guy's there and then the tattoo and then I'm such a super nice guy and, and we're in love now. We're getting married soon. So. Awesome. Yeah. Congratulations. That is, that's well, great. Yeah, I'll, I'll give everybody invitations when they're ready. <laughs> nice. Nice. The, no, story, the, story when you, the story when you showed up at the um, <clears throat> book signing is probably my favorite. Her reaction. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know how to Do I give that story? Do we have time, Jay? Do it. We have time, please. I'd love it. All right, basic thing that happened during this book signing, it was in Greensboro, North Carolina, was with my great friend Kenny Caperton from the Myers House NC. You got to give a shout out to Kenny. What's up, Kenny? Uh, basically, we went to this children's book signing because that's what Jamie Lee Curtis does now. Her heart's in children's books, and she does a tremendous job. Really good artist, or not artist, but writer. And um, basically, we went, of course, to meet Jamie Lee Curtis, the great. Uh, so we sit back, all the kids are up there and she's reading her story. And, you know, of course, here's myself, you know, tattoos, dark night, the scarecrow t-shirt on <laughs> Halloween hat. You know, I'm decked out like I normally am. Kenny's there. <laughs> all right. So then it's time for, you know, autographs and she will not autograph anything but the book. That's fine with me. But when I walk up to her, typical, she looks up at me with that eyes like, oh Lord, here we go. And, of course, you know, she's talking, you know, how are you doing? And I'm introducing myself to her and, and uh, told her I had some tattoos. So when I show her my arm of Jamie Lee Curtis, which is on my right bicep, and I, I love it, uh, she looks up and in front of literally hundreds of kids, man, I don't know how many kids were there, but it was just a packed house at Barnes & Nobles. She looks at me and says, I'm going to say a PG version, she says the F word. And as soon as she says it, she puts her hand over her mouth like, oh, you know, she could not believe she just said this in front of a bunch of kids. <laughs> wow. 
Oh, dude, her face was just, it was horrifying to look at the way she looked. I mean, she just apologizes, of course. She jumps up, grabs my arm. She says, I've got to take a picture. She gets her cell phone out. Picture took. Then she proceeds to put me in front of the crowd, holding my arm and telling the whole crowd. She put me in her book. Her book was called uh, First First. <laughs> so it's basically, you know, the first time that you rode a bike, this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So she uses my arm as a first time she had ever seen herself tattooed on somebody's body. And she puts me in her children's book. So it was amazing. Just <laughs> uh, nothing's ever been better. Oh, it, it was amazing. Wolfman, you would have loved it, buddy. Dude, it's so good. That so is good. so legit. So, um, Greg and Mortis, I've always wondered, do you have... Um, like a digital photo of your tattoo of her. Cause I bet the listeners would love that. We'd put it in the show notes if you have uh-huh. one. Oh yeah, definitely. I'll send it to you for sure. <laughs> okay. That'd be super cool. All I right. Guess night before I go to bed. That's hilarious. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> neither Dr. Shock nor Greg Amortis were here for a previous review of the original Halloween. So before we move into the second film, we just can't p- pass up an opportunity to give these guys a few minutes to hear their thoughts on it, if they don't mind, because I'm sure the listeners like to hear from you guys. So, um, just starting with uh, Greg Amortis there, tell us mm-hmm. why you love the first Halloween so much. For me, much like a lot of horror fans, for me, it, it, it's a perfect film. I mean, it's a 10. To me, it can't be touched. The atmosphere of the movie, the musical score was instrumental in making this a perfect film i mean that music yeah and then the character of course of michael myers being a blank face that you know is such a stealth stalker to the point that you know he was so creepy with not having to do anything it was a shape it was a boogeyman it was somebody that could be your neighbor and you didn't know behind this mask so that But the main reason, I think, Jay, is because it was the very first horror film I remember watching Mm. as a little kid. I remembered coming in from, you know, trick-or-treating, and it was on TV on CBS. I think it was actually the first time it had ever aired on CBS, and I watched it. And I remember watching it on my little 13-inch black-and-white TV and just freaking (laughs) out of my head, scared to death, couldn't quit watching it. So much like a lot of fans, when they see their very first horror film and instantly becomes their favorite, Mm -hmm. that's one reason. But also, like I said, you know, the atmosphere, the characters, the the story plot is simple as Halloween is. Babysitter, stalked. I mean, you don't get no simpler of a story plot, (laughs) but it was just so well orchestrated. You know, it's such a low budget. It was that Pan Am widescreen where you got to see so much in that little screen that you're watching. And then the the whole music score that dunna, dunna, and it kept getting builder. And I mean, just that whole movie. That's <laughs> it, to sum it up, it's perfect. I mean, it's everything about it. That's why I love it. It's just an awesome film. And I know your rating on that, because I've heard you say it a lot, right? It's 10 out of 10. <laughs> oh, it's 10, 10 out of 10 plus 10. There's not a movie in the world ever filmed, ever made, <laughs> ever put in a, 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 I don't care what you do it. There's nothing in my eye that will ever touch Halloween. Butcher me, but it is. <laughs> nice. Okay, follow that, Doc. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah do that, Doc. Uh, okay, uh, ditto. 
Um, I, I agree, obviously, with with everything Greg and Mortis says. And and one of the things that always gets me about when I'm when I watch the movie is, you know, this is one of the movies where the, the killer could be anywhere, and mm-hmm. usually is everywhere. Um, he will jump out at you when you least expect it, and and you know, one minute he's you think he's on the other side of a door, and next thing you know, he's there. And it's it's something. It's an unusual thing where there's such tension as you're watching the film, that it's actually a bit of a relief when he jumps in and kills somebody because you finally know where he is. Yeah. You know, you're, you're watching this thing. You're like, oh, where is he? Where, where is this guy? And, um, and, and that, that, that time, you know, you talk about the blank face, but also just the standing and staring. You know, he'll just stand still and stare. He'll be looking in a window. He'll stand there and just look down the street without moving. Yep. You know, and I know Greg Morris. That's one of the things that gets you the most. The thought of somebody like looking in a window at you oh. or watching you. I know that's something that's that's nothing your, uh, scarier. Nothing. Yeah, um, but <laughs> th- there's that about this movie as well, and of course the score, uh, and such a groundbreaking, uh, such a groundbreaking film. Um, it's a ten out of ten for me too. I think it. I it's it's funny because it's not even my favorite John Carpenter film. My favorite John Carpenter is the thing. Mm-hmm. But this is right behind it at number four. Like the thing's my third favorite horror film, and Halloween's number four. So it's a ten out of ten. Blasphemer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> awesome. uh, it's the head tilt that he did that made it so cool too. Mm-hmm. I mean, I threw the head tilt in. That was amazing. Yeah. And this was filmed. I mean, I'm not going because we're going to move on with this podcast because I, you know, it's already been done, but. I don't know if anybody had said anything about this, but this was reviewed without music and was not very well pleasing. It, the music added this movie right. to a 10. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When people watched this without music, it was like, what are we watching? Music comes in, and then all of a sudden people are screaming. Yep. <laughs> right. That's significant. Yeah, that's awesome. Speaking of soundtrack and so forth, it, it's there's a thunderstorm going on right now. As we record this, that's a really strong one. I mean, I've I've had thunderstorms here (laughs) while we were recording, and you couldn't hear them. I mean, it sounds like it's right over your house there, Jay. I know it's like guys. Me and Jay, you know, are in the same state, but a little bit for you know, I don't know how far would you say we Mm -hmm. live twenty minutes away, something like that. Like as as Dave was talking, that same thunder just rolled past me. That was so wow. weird. I heard it. I heard wow. it. In, I heard it in the microphone at Jay's house first, and then it rolled past me a few seconds later. Yeah, that's it's, it's perfect broadcasting weather to review Halloween movies. But uh, I just hope the power stays on. I guess. And I, I guess the I guess fans are going to realize we're doing this a little early. You don't get too many late October thunderstorms in Utah. Do you? <laughs> that's right. That's right. Well, thank you guys for your thoughts. I know you'd have great things to say. And without further delay, let's move into our feature review of Rick Rosenthal's Halloween 2 from 1981. I shot him six times. I shot him in the heart. He's not human. Universal Pictures presents Halloween 2. More of the night he came home. Nothing within him, neither conscience nor reason that wasn't even remotely human. 
Okay, Halloween 2 was directed by Rick Rosenthal, and the screenplay was written by John Carpenter and Deborah Hill. Halloween 2 hit theaters on October 30th, 1981, according to IMDb as well as thenumbers.com. And in terms of a quick premise, you guys, um, you yell at me if you think I mess this up any, Greg Amortis. So Halloween 2 is one of those surprisingly rare kind of sequels that begin exactly where the preceding film leaves off. It's still Halloween night, 1978, and Laurie Strode and Dr. Loomis have just warded off Michael Myers, who got up and walked away after being stabbed, shot six times, and falling from the second floor. And so it picks up immediately with a little bit of the overlap to remind us of what happened in the first film as it ended. And so it proceeds to show us what happens the rest of that night as Dr. Loomis and the authorities continue their manhunt. Michael Myers and we see the shape continuing his murder spree around Haddonfield and we see Laurie go to the hospital for treatment with her brother Michael Myers in tow. So that's kind of the premise and let's kick off the discussion with our special guest Halloween expert Greg Amortis. How do you feel about this sequel? I really enjoy it. I think this to me is a a great sequel for the fact that you mentioned so well I, I totally agree with what you did on the premise this movie picked up exactly I mean like you said to the sacket that the first one ended that to me is a sequel I mean that I wanted to finish watching Halloween when it first went off I was like dude there's got to be more <laughs> well guess what Halloween 2 you know three years later boom it's out and I'm like finally yes yeah oh. <laughs> Rick Rosenthal talks about how that was the thing that made him want to direct the movie is that it was a continuation of the first film. You know, he was like this, you know, what makes made him feel, I don't know, comfortable with, you know, following up John Carpenter as you could say, this yeah. is actually just more of that movie, you know, and that's, that's cool. I think that's a cool idea. It, it was amazing. And as, as good of a film as it is, it is an excellent film and we'll get into all that, But to pick up after John Carpenter's direction and to take the helm of the director's role has got to be intimidating for one thing. And And he's a first-time director coming into this. He's just barely come out of film school. Uh huh. Um, So, like, the backstory is he had the same manager or agent, I forget which one, uh, as John Carpenter. And uh, so when he signed to this agent, the guy says, okay, this is what's going to happen is John's a big deal now, so he's going to be getting Mm -hmm. all these movie offers and when they come in, I'll say, well, John's busy, but I've got this young guy you should check out, you know? And so that happened a lot faster than he had anticipated when he got Halloween 2. Well, exactly. <laughs> and I mean, it was originally given John wanted Tommy Lee Wallace to direct this film. Right. And Tommy Lee turned it down or for whatever reason didn't direct it. And then it went to Rick Rosenthal, who I, I thought done a really good job. I thought he did. On that, on that topic of Tommy Lee Wallace, I think it's interesting because – you know, according to him, you know, in, in more recent interviews, and this is I'm quoting from the newest Blu-ray release at the time of this recording, which is before the um, the entire series Blu-ray came out. But um, Tommy Lee Wallace talked about how he felt the film was too gory and that it had kind of like uh, gotten away from what he thought was great about the first film, mm-hmm. and uh, and that's why he wanted to step away from it. 
which is funny that then he goes on to direct, you know, Halloween three and <laughs> <laughs> well, all that yeah. stuff right afterward. But yeah. yeah, the thing was, was that Rick Rosenthal, like you said, now Rick Rosenthal directed this film and it wasn't that gory. And John Carpenter came in later and added scenes because we got to keep in mind by this time, Jay, they had already introduced Friday the 13th in the series mm-hmm. and you're into that gore effect of slasher films so now you've kind of got the pressure of you know keeping the steam going so to speak the the fans reacted to friday the 13th like they did and they loved the gore of it so you know pressures are on john now okay this has kind of got your name attached to it you know you need to have more gore so rick's done with the film john goes in and refilms a bunch of the the gore scenes in it rick wasn't happy yeah. Rick was not mm-hmm. pleased that this was added to it, but, you know, John being John, he's got to do what he's got to do. I love that there's that gore effect in it. You know, me personally, I love the first one that had zero blood, and then you bring in the second one that's totally opposite, but it still kept the story the same, if that makes sense. It's still a simple story, but it's still yeah. effective. I mean, it's an amazing sequel, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. What do you say, Dr. Shock? Uh, I... I really liked how I felt it was kind of seamless the way that they were able to pick up on it. Despite the fact that it was a few years later, uh, I thought they did a good job with that. You know, you really do get the sense that it's immediately after, mm-hmm. Yeah. you know, which, which I was impressed with. Um, was, I mean, how many years was it? I mean, it's what, three years, four years, I think. Yeah. This is 81. The other one's 78. Yeah. Yeah so. yeah. so it's like three years difference here. But yet, it feels as if it could have been just like they put the cameras down and it's almost like, okay, now let's change the film and continue. <laughs> right. You know, it, it right. has that feeling to it. Absolutely. And I was, I was really impressed with that. Um, and, you know, it's, it's funny. I, we were just talking on The Land of the Creeps about how, um, you know, in Scream 2, you have Randy's uh, rules for, to, for a successful sequel. And it's a higher body count, uh, more blood and gore, and never assume the killer is dead. You know, and, and, and if, you, if, you look at, if you look at the sequels and you look at Halloween 2, I definitely think it fits into, um, it fits into that. I mean, it, it, there, are more, uh, there are more kills. There is yeah. more blood and gore in this one. Um, and you can never assume Michael Myers is dead. Obviously we found that out movie after movie after movie. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that as sequels go, this is definitely among my favorites mm-hmm. and I'd have to take a look. I'm not sure I change my list all the time, but there was a time when this was in, um, uh, my top 10, uh, movies as well. Uh, oh, I don't wow. think it's there anymore. Um, it's definitely in my top 10 slashers. There's no mm-hmm. doubt about that. Um, but no, I really, I really enjoyed it. And I, I, like I said, I was just so impressed of how they were able to pick up on it. You know, well, like you said, Doc, I, I totally agree with what you said with the way it seems seamless. And it did, other than the god-awful wig that Jamie Lee Curtis is wearing. But <laughs> other than that, I mean, it's seamless. But we got to keep in mind, Jamie Lee had already went and done The Fog prom night terror train her hair's already been cut so they had to put this god awful wig on her this looks horrible <laughs> but other than that i mean yeah charles cypher still looks the same i mean the characters so 
amazing, amazing job. Mm-hmm. And you got the same crew basically together. So you got the same camera, you know. So you know, it, it still has that feel of the original. So, you know, flawless to me. I love yeah. that they bring all the cast, like the minor cast members back. I think that's an awesome thing. But my yes. biggest complaint about this movie, though, I have to say, is that it's not. And yeah. honestly, this is my biggest complaint with all the movies in the Halloween franchise, although I love all the movies. I will say I'm a fan of all the movies. Spoiler alert for the rest of this <laughs> podcast. But but you, your main star is Michael Myers. And so the yep. most frustrating thing about these movies is when you've got a different actor with a yep. different gait – or or a different mask and some you know in a lot of cases the mask is terrible. This oh. one not this one's that's not the case. But you know although I appreciate the performance here for me Nick Castle is like where it's at. So yeah yeah he he and that's with all killers mainly. It, it seems like at very first one because they originated. So then it's like you got that that pedestal to try to reach up to, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Nick Castle yeah. had the walk. He had the 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 stillness the head tilt dick warlock done a tremendous job and dick warlock is a super nice guy i've met him a few times outstanding worker great character actor that kind of deal but he's not nick castle i agree (laughs) he's got a few really nice moments here i think um not to jump too far ahead but toward the end the i think when he's swinging the knife around yeah um when he can't see i think the scene you know when he's on fire he he does some awesome work in the movie Mm -hmm. but there are also some parts that kind of suffer from his performance a little bit. Scalpel. Scalpel. Yeah. Scalpel. Oh, sorry, sorry. sorry. <laughs> <laughs> now, I know that um, Greg Amortis, I think you said you emailed me and said you were watching the TV version last yes. night, I think. And then, Josh, you watched several different versions in preparation for this podcast, right? Or revisited them, I mean. Yeah, I mean, the we didn't talk about the TV version of the first movie, which is unfortunate, because I actually like a lot of the new scenes that they mm-hmm. they put in there. And I feel similarly about this. I, th- I think, like, with the TV version, I don't know. It's kind of like they're just their own thing. You kind of have to appreciate them in their in their own way. Yeah. And what Greg Mortis was saying about um, Rick Rosenthal kind of having a different vision, you know, they sometimes say that this TV version is actually the Rick Rosenthal cut. I'm not sure if that's totally true, but there definitely are a lot of extended scenes that, you know, it was clear that they shot during the original production. And in some ways, I like that movie better, or at least as well. Like, I think the tension, especially at the beginning of the movie, I like the way um, the TV cut is actually better than um, the theatrical version. I will say the theatrical version flows better if you watch them back to back. Like if you're going to watch Halloween one and then Halloween two, the the theatrical cut is is like these guys were saying. It's that perfect transition right back into the movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But in the TV version, as a standalone film, I actually like that cut better. And they they are kind of more faithful to that tension and like we were saying, without the gore of the original yeah. Halloween, it feels actually more like Halloween in some ways. On oh, that the TV version, hundred one, percent. One for instance, like like a big one is you know in the in the hot tub scene, you know not seeing the you know are we doing spoilers? I'm assuming we're doing spoilers on this. Oh yeah, I'm sorry. I should have said it at the beginning. So yeah, listeners, if you haven't seen Halloween two, make sure you watch that first because we're gonna talk about everything on this. Guys, so there's the scene when. Uh, when they're in the hot tub and Myers comes in and he, he strangles the guy in the back room and then Bud in the back room and he comes out and he, and he pushes the girl's head under the water. And it's kind of, it's one of those scenes for me that 
as a younger man, I appreciated that scene quite a bit. <laughs> but, as, but as I get older, it's like, that's oh, a little cheesy. Like that he pushes her head under the water and it gets that scorched. And why do they even make it go to that high of a setting in the first place? And why is his hand unharmed and her face is like melted off? And, and so in the, in the TV version, he shoves her head underwater, but you don't see that aftermath. And although, you know, yeah, as we say, you know, gore, you know, horror fans, we like our gore occasionally, but it's just kind of more interesting to not, yeah. you know, to see it the way it was presented in that version. Agree. Hmm. See, that's one of my scariest scenes in this movie is that uh, like that's one of my great fears is to be wounded mm. with um or injured with boiling water. So there's another one like resonates. at the beginning of the movie when the when he stabs that girl in the in the neck with the knife, which a lot of people will say, well, like that's kind of uncharacteristic for Michael Myers. Like, you know, he's not she's not getting in his way. She's not a member of his family. Like, you know, we're talking about in the in the life of the series. Those are kind of the things. Like, if you get in his way, you're in trouble. But if you kind of like stay out of his way. You can kind of survive the night, <laughs> yeah. and that's and that's kind of uncharacteristic for him to go and stab that girl in the neck, you know, that early in the movie. But it's a nice big gore moment in the film. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think one of the more disturbing scenes for me, and it's something just growing up, is the claw end of a hammer. Oh, oh, yes. that even yeah. when I was younger, I'm looking at that. I said, "Boy, that's got to be rough to be mm-hmm. to be hit with that." And this movie, I think, might have been, I'm trying to remember. I mean, I can't, it's been, I saw it a while ago. It might have been the first time I saw that presented on film, and it really stuck with me. Yeah, and that's something that, that Josh, that you, I, I know you're going to mention, is the fact that in the TV cut version of, and I'm sure you're talking about Screen Factory's release, Blu-ray. Yes, I am, yeah. Yeah, uh, on that, and that's what I watched. And I remembered watching this, Jay, originally on the TV, of course, not, mm-hmm. HBO or anything. So this was the version I did see. Nice. Have not watched it since I was a little kid. So rewatching it, I was just blown away with how many scenes I had forgot. And one of the scenes is the hammer claw to the head that is deleted in the TV version. Hmm. But there's scenes building hmm. up to it that they added that I thought was really well done. I don't know about you, Josh, but I mean, there was some editing issues in there a couple times with Garrett, right. the, uh, the security guard, but other than that, I mean, you got to see some angles of Michael Myer- Michael Myers making his way to that storeroom area, you know, to where Garrett's investigating, and then you didn't see that before, and now yeah. you got Michael Myers etching and the music's playing. So I kind of dug that. Yeah, I mean, it adds way more tension to the movie. Yeah. The, the downside is it takes away that element the doc talked about is he's everywhere, like he's behind yeah. you, and so. Yeah it takes out that surprise of him just showing up, mm-hmm. but it does add, it does add more conventional tension yeah. as well. Mm-hmm. Seeing that he's the guy turning off the lights and he, you know, like you get to see all those moments, like he's coming for you basically. They needed that though. And, and I'm sorry, Jay, but they no, did need that because there's a lot of scenes when you watch the, uh, the theatrical version of this movie, there were times that when I finished watching the movie, I was wondering, well, why, why was all the lights out at the hospital? That was never explained. Right. Why was this? Why was that? Well, when you watch the TV cut version, it's explained to you. It's like, okay, Michael Myers flipped the lights off. Oh, okay. Yeah. Michael Myers cut the phone lines. Oh, okay. So now we get the, the little hidden things that sometimes you don't need to have in a horror movie, but it, it's just a good take. If you've never watched the TV version, I cannot say it enough. Scream Factory 
is freaking top notch. I love this, but I cannot wait for the yeah. whole Blu-ray set to come out. I've already got it pre-ordered. I'll have it, but anyways. Watch- <laughs> no, you're, you're talking, sorry, I just want to clear. So you're talking about the, the Shout Factory one from 1998, the DVD no, editions, no, no, no. or is this different from that? It's brand new. Because I think like a year old. Oh, okay, you're talking about that one. So you're not talking about, because the 1998 Shout Factory guys, I guess they did that and they included it. But you're saying this is even like a better I know they've released several versions of it's a blue it's a blu-ray right Mm -hmm. yes blu-ray dvd combo the dvd only has the tv version and you can also download the film script that's the dvd the blu-ray has all the bonus features that's amazing nice I mean screen factory is awesome if you don't own it I'd say buy it but now I'm saying don't just go ahead and buy the whole blu-ray set because Josh I don't know if you know this but the tv version will be on blu-ray so this is, I mean, I don't, I don't know what's coming out on the set, but I kind of am annoyed because I own pretty much all the movies except for three on Blu-ray already. So it's like, <laughs> I, I'm the same way. I think, I, I think what? it's just like some of the, some of the later ones I don't have on Blu-ray. What? Have them all. <laughs> oh, y'all guys suck. <laughs> well, to me, it's the, it's like the difference of the special features too. Like I'm already annoyed, like as much as I appreciate, you know, friend of the show, Justin Beam, everything yeah. he's done for Halloween. I love the version of the Blu-ray that he put out for four and five. Yeah. But <laughs> he took off special features that I really liked that were on the DVD. So then I had to keep the old DVDs as well <laughs> when I bought the Blu-rays. <laughs> <laughs> so Greg and Mortis, I assume you're buying this big one that's coming out in um, October, right? Yes, I've already got it pre-ordered, the deluxe edition. <laughs> well, okay, what is it included on that? Does that have resurrection and everything on there? It's got every movie from 1978 all the way up to Rob Zombie's Halloween 2. It's 15 wow. Blu-ray discs total. Uh, um, you're getting Halloween 1. You're getting the original theatrical plus the TV version. You're getting all that on Blu-ray. You're getting Halloween 2, the theatrical, the TV version on Blu-ray. Halloween 3, you're getting all new bonus interviews, commentaries, uh, this this is the set of sets. I mean, this is like the holy grail as far as, so to speak, of horror. I mean, if you're a, fran- a fan of the franchise, this is a must-own. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was going to say. Like, Dragon Morris, we were talking about it before. I mean, you seem to think they'll come out with even another set after this one at some point. <laughs> oh, they will. No, they will, because Halloween, if you've not noticed by now, fans, you should. They're a cash cow. Uh, Cod is a cash cow. If if it can be released, think about it. You got anniversaries coming up of Halloween number two. You got anniversaries of Halloween three coming up. They will always be re-releasing new stuff. Don't fear this, Josh. On the (laughs) don't fear it now. Accept it now. They are keeping a lot of the original bonus materials. They're just adding to it more bonus features so there will be more bonus interviews and commentaries but they're not really taking away what was on the blu-rays they're they're keeping but they're adding some stuff so will it have everything basically all the bonus materials that have been released thus far in the previous incarnations yeah so everything's going to be there plus they've re- did I mean like say for Halloween instance nineteen seventy eight that we're not reviewing right now, but anyways, they did do a new commentary, a recent one with John Carpenter and Jamie Lee Curtis. It's brand new. So it's stuff like that that they're adding. Uh so yeah, fans, you're getting 
it's the essential owner's manual if you're a Halloween <laughs> fan. It's going to have everything from A to Z. So what say you, Wolfman Josh? Are you going to get it now? I'm going to have to seriously like compare the back of my – I'm going to take all my discs to the store. <laughs> if I, if I, if if all the old special features are there, then I'll do. I'll get it. Yeah. Wow. Sell off all what you got. I, I keep it. I mean, I've got literally everything. I've got. You so, have foreign. You have stuff from overseas, don't you? No, I actually don't. Of Halloween, I've got some uh, Halloween one through four coming from uh, Stewart eventually from Australia. But I own probably five different versions of Halloween plus VHS. Is I've got literally a whole two shelves full of Halloween. Moves. I you mean, buy I'll, like the twenty twentieth anniversary edition. Before you know it, you're buying the twenty fifth anniversary edition. Yeah, and, and, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's yeah. just it is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, he he's in love. I mean, I love. I mean, it's yeah. my franchise. I don't so, own the Friday Thirteenth Blu-ray set they just released. I, I have not paid that hundred dollars, but I'm paying the hundred and thirty for the Halloween. Mm-hmm. See, this that's this that, Scream that's, Factory release is so good, though. And the last version of the Hall uh, original seventy eight Halloween. That was yeah, released is amazing. That's such yep. a good disc. Um, yes, it is. You talking about the Digi Pack one? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Beautiful transfer. Just a yeah. side note here. So there's a Shout Factory and a Scream Factory because I because I yes. see that yeah. there's well, Shout Scream, Factory. Scream Factory, I think, is like the the horror. They're the horror uh, arm, if you will, of okay. Shout Factory. It's I like gotcha. Magnet to Magnolia or something. Yes, exactly. <laughs> okay, I gotcha. Yeah. Okay, awesome. Thanks for clarifying that for me. Okay, so you guys, it sounds like you definitely recommend that people watch the TV version. So here's the real question. If people out there, if listeners have not seen Halloween 2, 1981, which version should they watch first for a first viewing? Hmm. I would probably still go with theatrical. Yes. Just because it's the best to flow right into it. Plus... You know, to be frank, it has all the gore and the nudity and everything that you expect. So, you know, <laughs> right. But but for the pure, you know, for the people who are, you know, hardcore fans, you know, I would say the TV versions a must a must see. Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, I'm so glad I watched it last night. Literally, I had not seen it in over 20 years. So, yeah, for me to rewatch, it was amazing. We're talking about the ending, the very last scene. Yes. Doesn't that sort of set it up for what? would happen in Halloween four, I guess sort of it that's you know, interesting. Can I elaborate on that a little bit, Jay? Mm, sure. Please. What Doc's talking about, and this is spoiler, okay? So we're okay with that? Yep, totally. Yep. Okay. All right. To get into this T V version, basically the ending of this movie was set up after the explosions, after the whole nine yards, Lori Strode is is put into the ambulance. Uh She's in there, and then Lance Guest, who plays Jimmy in this film, rises up, and there they are. And it's this touching moment where she grabs his hand, and they're holding hands, and they're basically, you know, she keeps saying over and over, we we made it, we survived, we made it, we made it, and it, they drive off into the sunset. <laughs> okay, now to elaborate a little bit, there's speculation, quote, unquote, for Halloween 4 when the introduction of Danielle Harris's character of Jamie Lloyd is introduced that Jimmy's last name is Lloyd. Okay. So there's speculation that was never mentioned in really in four a lot, but there's speculation that Jamie Lee Curtis's character, Laurie Strode and Jimmy had a child, which ended up being Jamie Lloyd, that that's the father. 
of Daniel Ooh. Harrison, the movie. Interesting. Because <laughs> you never would have gotten true. that from the uh, from the theatrical. The theatrical, you oh, never oh. would have no. made that. G- uh, Jimmy to Halloween 2 theatrical, Jimmy don't make it. <laughs> right, yeah. Which the, ag- which the actor said that he was surprised when someone pointed that out to him. He's like, oh, I thought I survived. <laughs> yeah, it's like, dude, I did. Well, yeah, technically you don't know that he really died. You know he took a hard lump to the head. but <laughs> He just remembered shooting that final scene and thought, what are you talking about? Yeah. It was definitely that Sundance and Billy and the Sundance Kid and all that. It was definitely that moment. They rode off in the sunset in an ambulance. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Okay, so in our first review of um, Halloween, I quoted from Roger Ebert and his feelings on it, and he really loved that first Halloween. So I bet Greg Amortis is pleased with that, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, way to go. But we, yeah, go ahead. Way to go, Ebert. We know where you're going with this, Jason. That's right. So, but uh, he he only gave Halloween two just two stars out of four, and he wrote, "quote It's a little sad to witness a fall from greatness, and that's what we get in Halloween two. John Carpenter's original 1978 Halloween was one of the most effective horror films ever made. A scarifying fable." of a mad dog killer's progress through a small Illinois town on Halloween. Halloween 2 is not a horror film, but a geek show. It is technically a sequel, but it doesn't even attempt to do justice to the original. Now, Dr. Shock, what do you think about that? No, I, I, don't, I don't agree with him at <laughs> all. As a matter of fact, we, we were getting into this a little bit. Um, you know, we were talking about some other movies that... Um, uh, Ebert had walked out on Wolf Creek, yeah. uh, and he actually gave that, uh, I guess, zero stars. Mm-hmm. Um, there was just, I don't know, there was something, I'm, you know I'm an Ebert fan. I, I, I grew up watching his show with Siskel, and, uh, but there was just something about horror that it, it, I just don't agree with probably 95% of what he says on all. I mean, obviously I agree with him on Halloween, mm-hmm. but yeah. when it comes to horror, I, I don't know if he just didn't. If if he's like all the other mainstream Chris, is it that they don't get it? Is that they don't want to get it? It's that <laughs> they don't care. I don't know. Um, I don't agree with him at all. Obviously, all right. I, I I don't. I think this movie is. I think this is a quality movie. I think it's an excellent sequel. And um, you know, it's not like I could see if it was poorly put together. Mm-hmm. You know, poorly shot, poorly edited, poorly acted. You don't get any of that in this movie. Yeah, and I don't see where he comes up with it with a geek show. There's really yeah still just the one killer. Well, I want to comment on that whole geek show thing. I've I've read him enough that I know that when he's referring to a geek show, he's talking about the, the gore in there, and and he feels like you know, and and I'm not putting words in his mouth. That's just that's what he has referred to past movies that were super gory. He just calls it a okay. geek show, and so I think that. As Greg Mortis mentioned earlier, you know, since they were ramping up the gore after Friday the 13th and trying to raise the bar and kind of, mm-hmm. you know, outdo each other, I, I think that that probably put him off, you know, because as Josh has said many times very well, like the first Halloween movie is just very suspenseful and it slowly builds. And then this one is a little more blatant. So you have that blatantness and then you also have the gore. And I think it was just, you know, it threw some critics off okay well to not be too cynical but you know when halloween came out 
they could judge the film on its own terms. By the time Halloween 2 comes out, there's now a slasher genre. And Siskel yeah. and Ebert have taken like this hard stance on it and called out wonderful old women on <laughs> participating in these movies. <laughs> right. And like and, and basically, you know, like taking a public stance. So now they're kind of in this position. I mean, again, not to be too cynical, but I kind of feel like they have a reputation to protect almost. They have to hate the movie. That's, that's part a of the slasher craze. That's a good point. This is a much different yeah. time frame too when he's reviewing this. Absolutely. You're you're right. Well, I mean, it is because you're coming in 1981. You're coming after Maniac. You're coming out after a lot of really gory, heavy, hardcore slasher films that I can see that. But at the same time, Halloween's competing. It's a business. I mean, as much as it is filmmaking, it is a business. And if you're going to survive, you got to do somewhat to try to keep with the the money and money was with slashers money was with gore you kind of had to turn your table a little bit would i'd appreciated this more not being as gory sure but why rehash it we already saw number one that didn't have any gore and loved it why rehash it give us another story you know what i mean and build from it and i'm i'm totally fine with either version but you know i'm a gore hound so i love gore Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, yep. Josh has mentioned this before on previous episodes, but this sequel, it seems to have been, I would say, it probably inspired like movies like Cold Prey 2, right? Cold Prey 2 is a lot like this movie, and you've said that, yeah, Josh. Yeah, definitely. And, uh, and that's also one of those special continuation of a sequel thing where it picks right up. But um, I just want to talk about this being set in the hospital. I had read in trivia or somewhere I learned that this was going to be like in a high-rise apartment building. Is that true? It was going to be set in, in something like that is what I had heard. But they ended up putting it in Haddonfield Hospital. And yeah. I love that juxtaposition. I love that contrast because hospitals obviously are typically a place of, of healing. It is a place of, of pain. There, there yeah. is pain there. There are injuries there. But it's all about healing and the people who come in, you know, the doctors and the nurses, the personnel, they are there to like aid you in the healing process. Whereas you have Michael <laughs> Myers in there just wrecking people. And um, that that's super scary to me, especially as we see uh, Laurie Strode and her condition, you know, as the film in the beginning, like she's trying to relax and unwind. But, but man, she seems really vulnerable to me. And I think that's one of the scariest elements to this movie. <laughs> Well, and that gives you the sense of security, too, when you're in a hospital. You never think of something like this ever happening in a hospital setting. Mm-hmm. But to declare, you know, to kind of emphasize what you were talking about, you know, with the healing, then you're introduced to Ford Rainey, who played Dr. Mixter in this, and he's obviously drunk at the movie, and you're thinking, there's a doctor. That's, <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is the place of healing. Do you really want a doctor that's been at the night or at the... uh country club drinking all night to be given out all this is yeah. i loved it i loved that scene. <laughs> <laughs> you know he's totally drunk i mean you know and he's like yeah give me so many cc's of this and he's like all out of it i loved it and the tv version had way more of dr mixter which i like awesome yeah. well, well here's what i ask you guys about this though i mean Obviously, Laurie Strode keeps asking or requesting, don't let him put me to sleep, don't mm-hmm. let him put me to sleep. And that mm-hmm. that keeps coming up. Now, what do you think the intent was in the film? I mean, in terms of character motivation, 
I mean, she knows he's out there still. So mm-hmm. do you think that she just knows instinctively or she's worried that he's obviously going to come to get her? Yeah. Is that just all yeah. there is to it? <laughs> sorry yeah. to, we're kind of stuck on the TV version tonight, but there is an extended scene where Jimmy holds down Jamie Lee Curtis or Lori so that they can put her under. And that happens. And that's why in the, in the theatrical version, she's all, you know, she's really drowsy toward the end of the movie. It's because she's been under a sedative yeah. in the original mm-hmm. version of the film. Right. Well, right. and also to elaborate a little bit too, Josh, you're right. Cause in the theatrical version, there's that scene where Jimmy walks in and she's in that, that shock and she's just staring off into space. And you're like, well, how did that happen? That was because they gave her too much medication in that scene in the TV version that they took out. So it kind of explained that a little bit more why she went into that shock. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it did. I mean, it's, yeah, TV version. The downside of that is it makes Jimmy way less likable in that, <laughs> in that version. It's right. like, he's like her hero. And then it's like, yeah. her, you know, why is he doing this to her? He's not even, you won't listen to her. He's just going to hold oh, her down. Oh. And, Oh, what about the scene now? They use Jimmy a lot in this movie, and he's talking to her like multiple times. He's coming in the room in the the theatrical version. And this sounds, I'm sorry, but I mean, the theatrical version, you see him like two or three times in there with Jamie. In TV version, you see him like 10 times. And then toward the end of that scene, Josh, you know where I'm talking about. He comes up, he says, I know you don't know me real well, but, you know, I'm making sure you'll be safe. And I'm like, dude, you've talked to her for like two hours now. I think she knows you really well. <laughs> nice. You well, can drink your Coke all night long now with her. One more thing on her vulnerability there in the hospital. I mean, at, at one point, I mean, she's, she's almost immobile uh, for all intents and purposes. And, and that does add suspense. So I think that that's strong. But also, don't you think it's a little risky on the on the screenwriter's part, it's a, it's a little risky to have your hero out of commission for, for a while. I mean, obviously you did it for suspense purposes, but do you think that's risky or not? Yeah. I mean, I practi- for practical yeah. reasons, Jamie, you know, Jamie Lee Curtis is not in this movie very much. She doesn't do much in this movie. And I wonder if that just had something to do with the schedule of how long they were able to get her for the film. Hmm. So they built everything around her. It's, so they, it's the action could take place elsewhere. It's probably, I know she got 10 times as much money to be in this one than she did in the first one, but that's obviously because of where she was at that point in her career. Right. Um, but you're right. She's not in this, she's not as prevalent this time around. She's still obviously a key character, a very big part of it, but she's not, she, she's just not in it as much. You're absolutely right. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I agree. This is weird to bring up superhero movies, but, but you know, superhero movies are, they have an origin story in the first film. Usually the primary film is just set up where, you know, you get to know the character or usually they get their powers. We see how they get their powers and then we learn about them. And then it's the second movie. I mean, for me, it's always second, the sequel of superhero movies that I seem to like the best because you have the origin story out of the way. Well, this isn't quite like that, but... um. One thing I like, I mean, the origin story in Halloween is strong, and and we see that beginning and and all that, but I love how in this film, we can get down to business. And and in some ways, I mean, I appreciate the suspense, and Kyle Bishop and Wolfman Josh, they really helped me in this episode appreciate that, even on a deeper level in the first film. But in this one, Halloween 2 has always been just 
a little bit more fun for me, to be honest, because it, the, the pace, it's a little bit more um, action-oriented. It seems like there are more kills, it's more graphic, and it's just a little more engaging for me. Now, that's probably heresy to Greg Amortis, but what do you guys feel about that? Uh, I, I, well, I'm not going to say I, I, I don't know that I prefer to the first one. I see what you're saying, though. I mean, as far as from like what's going on on screen, you know, what's happening on screen. Um, I think the second one, you know, it follows into the Scream 2 rules. It, it ramps it up. Mm-hmm. You know, it is more elaborate kill scenes and there is more gore. So uh, I see what you're saying, uh, you know, that, that it is, it's a more intense film in a yeah. lot of ways in that regard. Uh, there's still things about the first one um, that I'm always going to, going to prefer it. But this is, you know, what you're saying, it, it does. It takes, the, takes what happened in Halloween and, and just throws a little bit more in there. Now, again, would you say, do you think that has something to do with when it was released? That, that it was released after Friday the 13th and um, a lot of these other movies? Do you think that has something to do with, with what you're referring to, Jay? Mm, it very well could be. The other thing, Doc, on that is... I wonder about um, the budget. You guys probably have this stuff memorized, like what the budgets were. But, um, for example, in this film, it feels more, I guess, like that sleepy little town of Haddonfield in the first one. It's like, it's Halloween, but I don't see very many trick-or-treaters out anywhere. But in this one, it's later that evening, and we got tons of people out on the street on Halloween night. We have trick-or-treaters and stuff, and uh, that's really exciting to me. And so that may have been a budget issue, and maybe with this one sure. they had more budget, and so they had more you know cast and so forth. But Well, yeah, I mean, you're obviously the original's $320,000 budget, <laughs> and they were on a very super short shoot date. I mean, they only yeah. had you know a few weeks to shoot this because they were on super low budget. This one, you know, you're looking at almost $3 million. It's a little over $2 million budget. So, yeah, the budget's, like, way better. Yeah. Uh, I knew he'd know the budgets. That's hilarious. And it looks like most of that either went into uh, Jamie Lee Curtis's pay yeah. Or, yeah. Or, or the lights. I mean, this is this is way more lit, and I probably, you know, a, a gaffer or cinematographer would say this is better lit than the first movie, but I actually – far prefer the look of the first movie in terms of the mood that it sets, you know, it was kind of one of those things that one of those happy accidents where their limitations actually added to the, to the look right. and the feel of the film. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, definitely. Cause the first one you're outdoors a lot. So you're able to see, even though it wasn't shot in the fall, it looked fall it, you know, with the leaves and the trees and blah, blah. And this one, you did have the trick or treaters to remind you, but you're in a hospital with a few decorations up. Other than that, you wouldn't have known this was Halloween. (laughs) One thing I like about the trick or treater at the hospital is it kind of feels like Carpenter put that in there because he was leading toward what he wanted to do with the franchise with part three. Like you've got this little kid with this urban legend of, uh, you know, a razor blade in his mouth coming into the Uh the hospital. And we know who that little boy was, right? Oh, who was a little boy? You don't know who the young boy was? No. No. Oh, my God. Think about this now, guys. This little boy, and his name is slipping my mind right now, but he was the star in Fog. Oh, are you kidding? That's so funny. Really? The same little kid that was the main character in the fog. That's the same kid. (laughs) Nice. 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 Yeah, that's awesome. 
Well done. And I met him, by the way. He's a super cool guy as well. He is an awesome little dude. His name's Ty Mitchell. There you go. Ty Mitchell. Nice. Okay. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I just for the record, I disagree with um, Roger Ebert's assessment of this as well. I think this film has some really nice touches. Um, for example, just a couple things. Like, just the opening, the opening credits and that glowing jack-o'-lantern there, mm-hmm. and then the way that it opens up and you get this freaky skull face that like where the Love skin it. looks stretched. That is incredible to me. Um, another nice touch, I mean, you could tell that there was some time and attention, and I don't know if this is, we could credit this to Rick Rosenthal, maybe, but um, for example, the kid who gets creamed and killed in that crash, who's mm-hmm. wearing the mask, I think it's awesome that he's wearing that um, Michael Myers looking mask because <laughs> within the world of the film in this Halloween universe, it was supposed to be a Halloween mask that Michael Myers stole from the store. So apparently, you know, and I think when a movie takes the time for a touch like that, I'm like, this is this is a well-made film to me. I, 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 do you guys have feelings on that or what? Sure. I mean, you you always got to do detail, man. It's some little details like that that make a movie amazing to me. Stuff I pick up, and we know from Halloween 1 with the whole Laurie Strode wanting to go yes. out with Ben Tramer, <laughs> and then we find out that uh-huh. this was Ben Tramer that just got you know, demolished in his fire. And it's just that whole full circle. And you're like, no way, man, that was Ben Tramer. (laughs) I guess he ain't going to the prom now. (laughs) (laughs) I thought that was a spectacular scene too. That explosion. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. You know, I really, I thought that was excellent as well. And I guess that could kind of point towards a, a bigger budget right there too. Sure. I'm guessing. I mean, I don't know as well. Josh, you might know that a little more. Maybe it doesn't cost anything to blow up a car. I don't know, but. It costs. It costs because you got to block streets off. You got to have fire departments there. And that was something that John Carpenter couldn't afford in the original Halloween was those, those, you know, added little measures. So in Halloween two with 20, you know, 2.5 million or whatever it was budget, almost 3 million, he could afford a little fire department here to make his crash. (laughs) You got Dick Warlock who was an amazing stunt coordinator who, was a master of fire. So, I mean, for him to be in these sequences with fire was nothing to him. So, I mean, you had those luxuries of being able to do extra things that you couldn't do in other, you know, other movies. Nice. Well, you guys can totally make fun of me for this because you're going to think I'm nuts. But my favorite sequence in Halloween two is the Mr. And Mrs. Elrod scene. Love it. I, I, Honestly, and tell me tell me the truth. I really want you guys to level with me. When when I watch that scene, like they've got Night of the Living Dead on TV. It's yep. just very naturalistic. She's asking him if he wants mayonnaise on a sandwich and Coca-Cola there. <laughs> and, no, 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 no. You want mayonnaise on your sandwich? Yeah, exactly. And it, you want mustard on there? <laughs> yeah. And and then you got um the the WWAR special bulletin coming over the airwaves there. And uh, honestly, like that feeling, um, it just reminds me of the way I felt in the 80s when I watched horror movies over at my my cousin's house. You know, like uh, Uh it just captures it for me. And there's just something about that scene. I don't want to call it magical because that sounds hokey, but I just think they really captured a time period. They captured a feeling and it's my favorite sequence. 
Oh, it's an amazing sequence. I love that whole setup because it did introduce the fact that, you know, the neighbor girl that's talking to her friend on her phone and she hears them scream and it just, it was able to bring Michael Myers really, really close there. I mean, he's (laughs) right there now. Yeah. Yeah. And I love it. We've been talking about upping the gore, but for me, the most unsettling shot in the whole movie is just like that blood next to that ham. For some reason, that's like, ugh. <laughs> <laughs> it's just had yeah. to fingers in it and just roll it around like, oh. <laughs> and that's a curling scream. I was watching the Horrors Hollow Grounds um, on Halloween 2, and they, they talked about how they had to take the door off. If you notice, if you watch back that scene, the house doesn't have a door. There's that screen door. Mm-hmm. But um, in order to get the shot they needed, they actually had to take the front door off the house. So he just, you just coast right through, open that screen door, and go in, and you know there's never actually a door there. <laughs> yeah, as much as uh, Sean Clark done a great job, he always does a good job on horrors, hallowed ground. Sean Clark there, and and yeah, when he does these sets, man, that's something I love about Screen Factory because he's attached to that. Yeah. So when he does Elm Street too, and he does all these different ones, you know, it's really cool to go back, but. I love the fact, Josh, what you're saying. I mean, stuff that you don't think about when you're watching a movie, but when you've watched yeah. it a thousand times like I have, I start looking at every little nitpick thing, and I'm like, how did he walk in that door, and how did they do that camera angle? Oh, they removed the door. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's excellent. Well, let's talk about, so let's remember, like, when, when people first saw this in 1981, you know, we didn't have all these sequels afterward, and... The idea that Michael Myers was determined to take out this sister, too, you know, as well, because he took out Judith in the first film. And so, I I just, I mean, obviously, we've talked about this earlier in the episode that um, there was, like, maybe a a sexual-related kind of motivation there, maybe. But, see, it's weird that Laurie Strode is the good girl. She's, like, the babysitting virgin, and so it's extra disturbing to me that this killer would want to kill his family members, apparently his sister specifically. And it's kind of the, um, you know, she's an innocent one. And then there's like the fact that this is the opposite of normal behavior. Most people would protect their family members above all else, but you know, he's trying to take out his sisters. So I just wonder if you guys could talk about that motivation, you know, without, I guess, all the insights of the films that follow. Yeah, to well, me, it's, it's, it's all speculation. I mean, we yeah. don't really know. I mean, we can speculate the whole sexual and in, in no You know, I can't say words. I'm a zombie, but you know what I mean. I mean, it, it, <laughs> right. it's, it's, it's that whole, you can play whatever you want out in your brain. Like I said with Jimmy Lloyd, is that the dad? And I don't know. But in this one... Could it be that, or is it just that, you know, mentally in his brain, before he went to the asylum, he killed Judith, maybe it was a issue with the family, we don't know per se. For me, it could be, it could not be. I mean, there's really, to me, no motivation for Michael Myers. He is the the shape mm-hmm. for me, and it, it's, you know what I mean? Does that make sense, or mm-hmm. did that sound stupid? I know what you're I, saying, I, yeah. I know what you're saying, yeah, and, and there was an, even an interview with with John Carpenter. You know how obviously Halloween's looked at as as one of the, the it was one of the movies that obviously kicked off the the slasher craze. Well, someone had pointed out to him how <clears throat> the characters that have sex die, and that mm-hmm. seems to be a staple in in those movies. And John Carpenter's reaction was, "I never had anything in my mind about doing that." 
You know, I I never for a minute thought about punishing somebody for, you know, for sexuality or anything like that. I never approached it. I never, that never entered into anything. Um, He goes, I guess it's just a coincidence. (laughs) You know, now I don't know with him going after both sisters, it might just, it might be that, okay, he killed one sister. Now he wants to finish the job. Yeah. Um, You know, it's, it's, it's interesting though. I don't know. It's. Because when you think of when you think of Michael Myers, even when he was a boy and they pull that mask off, that blank stare, there's yeah. nothing there. There's no emotion. He's almost emotionless. Yeah. You know, he's, he's just a machine moving forward, doing what he does best. Yeah, and they talk about you know for all the people who say that the first movie is better because there is no motivation. He is the blank slate. Like I totally identify with that. Um, but at the same time, you know, I, I enjoy all of it. It's weird. Like, I kind of separate the first film almost in a way from the franchise, kind of like the way we were talking about on our Proto Slasher episode with Psycho and, mm-hmm. and its mm-hmm. sequels. Like, I, to right. me, the first Psycho was just on a pedestal, but that yeah. doesn't mean I don't love all the sequels. I love them too, but I almost think about them differently than I think about the first film. Like, yeah. I, I, right. I appreciate the blank slate that Myers is in in the first film, but I actually love all the you know, family backstory stuff. I mean, it gets a little carried away eventually in the franchise, <laughs> particularly in six, but you know, yes, but he was definitely was on a mission. I mean, you could tell even in the opening sequence where the little boy has got the, uh, boom box on his shoulder and who yeah. didn't do that back in the day. I did it too. I wasn't listening to freaking news broadcast, but you know, <laughs> I was listening to jam on it, jam on it. But anyways, you know, he's listening to this news bulletin. You see Michael Myers walking and bumps into him and it's him hearing that the body or the Lori Strode had been took to the hospital and boom, he's on a mission. Now I'm going to the hospital. So, you know, same little hidden things. He was definitely on a mission for the sister for whatever reason. Very well done. Yeah, but I, you know, I'm even, I'm a fan of Rob Zombie's movies too. And I like, I like all that added complexity to the character, but I kind of just separate it from yeah. my feelings about the first movie. Sure. And, and for me, I just, I try to take it at, um, just a, a really base level, like, uh, the word I'm looking for is escaping me right now. Cause I'm a zombie too, Greg Mortis. But 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 basically, basically, uh, the the fact that he would want to take out his sibling is, you know, I, it's just it's insane to me, and I I think that makes him kind of scary that he's determined to do that. I it just kind of freaks me out on a level. But oh, oh, Jay, come on, do you got brothers or sisters? No, I don't actually. So, See, you never wanted to take your brother <laughs> or sister out. See, so maybe it would make more sense if I had siblings. Yeah, man, everybody's <laughs> wanted to take their brother or sister out one time or another. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm I'm an only child, but I want to take my wife's brothers and sisters out. So. <laughs> <laughs> and, and in fact, Wolfman Josh would like to take me out once in a while too, huh, Josh? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> usually not on this podcast, but <laughs> on, the, on the other podcast, <laughs> that's true. So, um, okay, another little detail. Sorry, I forgot to add this one in, which I think is a really nice little character moment. Um, so we have uh. <laughs> we have the dad. See the sheriff. His name's escaping me. It's what's her face's dad. Sorry. Oh, you're talking about Lee Brackett. Yeah, thank you, Lee Brackett. Okay. Charles okay. Cyphers. Bam. Yeah, Charles Cyphers. Now, when he when he finds out that his daughter has been killed, mm-hmm. um, the way that he reacts there in public <laughs> is is absolutely, I think, on the money 
for the most part, because I've known I I've known several um, officers of the law now, and the way they are in public around other people that are witnessing them is is different from you know when you're just with them at their house and. The way he reacts there, and he's kind of stoic about his daughter's death. Yeah. Um. Man, I'm like, yeah, that really feels right to me because, you know, most people would, normal people would just break down, but you know, he he's got to hold his ground as an officer. But then he gets mad at Loomis, and he displaces this little psychology there. He's putting this displaces his feelings and he's upset with him for letting Michael Myers out. I just think that is just tremendous character work there because I think that's exactly how that character would behave. Yeah. Charles Cypher's amazing actor guys. I mean, a really good actor in that scene. Do we, is this PG? We don't cuss on this one, right? (laughs) You can do little cusses. Okay. Well, I'm I'm going to spell it out. Sheriff Brackett looked at him and said, D-A-M-U. That's fine. You can say that. (laughs) Just say it. Damn you. And Dr. Loomis says, I'm sorry. And he says, what have you done? And Dr. Loomis says, I haven't done anything. He says, you let him out. (laughs) He said, I didn't let him out. I gave him orders to be restrained. That's that sequence. And that was amazing. You're right. True to the the T. Uh, the the facial expression and what you would be going through emotionally to have your daughter laid right in front of you and you close her eyes, you know that that's exactly how I'd react. He really and, was so great, yeah, in that character. And I he really do wish they would have took Charles Cipher's side note for Rob Zombie's Halloween. I really wish they'd have took Charles Cipher's and let him play Doctor Loomis, who they originally was going to do. I think oh, he'd have done a tremendous job. That would have been interesting. Yeah. So, so that wouldn't have distracted you, Greg Amortis, just because of his previous roles. No reason being there again. Charles Cipher's amazing actor. Plus, by the time Rob Zombie's Halloween came out, and I'm sorry, I'm talking ahead, but he looked a lot like Doctor Loomis. Now he's balding and. He's got that look of Dr. Loomis. I think he, and he knows the franchise. It would have been a perfect fit for me. If Rob Zombie would have tried to cast you as Dr. Loomis. Would oh, you, I'd have nailed it. <laughs> would you <cut> it? <laughs> I'd have even tried to do a British accent. I'd have totally nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been awesome. I would have swept the floors to be in that movie. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, here's something a little bit creepy and unsettling to me. And, and this is interesting, I think. So, I noticed that um, when Michael Myers is in the hospital, okay, we see the um, the nursery, you know, the newborn babies are there, and it's like he he's kind of overlooking or looking through the newborn baby room, and we hear him breathing. We get that subjective killer's point of view, but um, he doesn't do anything to the babies, and we've already said that, you know, he takes out certain people and so yeah. forth. But I think that's interesting that he doesn't take out people like that because. Some faiths, and I always try to bring faith into these Halloween movies, and it doesn't always work, does it? But um, some faiths believe that like evil won't tempt or attack young children. Like, and and I think that's that's interesting because um, you know, since he is evil incarnate, it it's it it also rings true to me that like, oh, okay, well, he's not gonna go after little children that small. Well, it's the innocence. It's the whole and. Bring up TV version again, Josh. Here I go, buddy. Yep. You get to see a little bit more of that sequence. In the theatrical version, you know he's kind of right there, but in the TV version, even more, you know he is exactly right beside those kids. Mm. 
and you hear the babies crying and you, you know he's right there and like you said he doesn't even blink an eye so to speak at those children i mean he's that's not his mission his mission is jamie lee and whoever else is in his way to get to her bar none that's what he's there for the kids are just a side note to him you know t- in my opinion mm-hmm. sure uh-huh. yeah absolutely yeah I, I think so but it's almost like when he's first standing there you're kind of when you first see mm-hmm. you're kind of like oh what's he gonna do here yeah yeah you know, and it puts you on edge. It's like, he's not going to do this. Is yeah, he? They, John won't go there. Rick Rosenthal ain't going to do that. In your mind, you're thinking, maybe he is. <laughs> Look out. <laughs> oh, man. That's hardcore. So um, just a few negatives in this one. I just want to throw these out there. Um, we got a, a cat jump out and scream jump scare here. <laughs> probably one of the probably one of the earlier examples of the whole cat jumping out and screaming, right? I mean, do we know what was the first movie that you had a cat jump out and scream? What was that? I don't know, but Dr. Shock's favorite is always the cat scream. (laughs) Yeah, this is because I owned a cat and I never once, I mean, I've had the thing run out in front of me and never once did it screech. (laughs) Right. Or make any sort of noise. It just ran. Exactly. It just ran across the floor. It's one of those, you know what? Now I don't know when. When did the, the, the boy you want to talk about going to the opposite ends of the spectrum here? When did the hand come out? The horror movie, The Hand, because I know they did that in that movie, and if that was before this one, Ooh. that would be the first time I saw it. But I think they might have been very close to around the same time. Eighty one. Eighty one. Okay, yeah. so that that because I know they had one of those scenes in that movie. Um, but as far <laughs> as if I've seen one of them before. I can't say I can't say for sure, but yeah, that's always my favorite. You know what? Alien. No, Alien had one. Oh yeah, Alien. It happened in Alien with with the, with the cat screeching and running past them. Good job. <laughs> okay. Nice. <Yep. laughs> okay. I'm so impressed. That would be the first time I guess I saw because I saw Alien when I was very young, and yeah, it shouldn't <laughs> have happened there, and it should never have happened again. Yeah, let's make, <laughs> let's stop making cats scream, Josh. Yeah. When you make your horror movie, are you going to have a cat scream just for Doctor Shock? I've actually <laughs> never heard someone say that cats scream before. I don't know what I would say. Well, they <laughs> they I've screech. Never- yeah, that's oh, weird. I've never that kind of took me off guard when you said that. I've been thinking about it ever since you said that. I just no, I hate that. I hate that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. that's a cheap in, Yeah, like in Scream, they're obviously referencing this, but um, you know, in the garage with Tatum, um, when she's in there and getting a beer or whatever, they reference this scare. But <clears throat> at the same time, like I think they're just making fun of how ridiculous that scare is because it's right. immediately followed up by a really like one of the more scary scenes of the movie. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Right. I, I'm disappointed and discouraged that Wolfman Josh is making a horror movie and he hasn't even invited me to be in. <laughs> I, no, Jason's <laughs> just talking. He doesn't know this. Uh, okay. okay. I mean, <laughs> I'm trying to get him to you know, pursue that. So, okay. Okay. All right. I, I forgive you, Wolfman. <laughs> I, I will call, I will definitely call you great. <laughs> yeah. I work for peanuts, buddy. Yeah, that's right. Now uh, they do correct the age uh, discrepancy in this and they uh, correctly identify Michael Myers as being 21 years old in this, which isn't a huge deal, but I'm just saying they, they fix that. But I think, you know, this is weird and I want to know what you guys think about this. This movie for me at least, 
it, it actually loses a little bit of its steam, a little bit of its momentum once it gets to the hospital. Um, and I think it's because I enjoy the opening scene so much where the town is reacting to all the havoc and the murders. And we still see the, the you know, the Halloween night, the trick-or-treaters and stuff. And I love all that stuff. But ironically, or surprisingly to me, when, when the killing gets going, it kind of slows down and loses a little bit of its momentum. Now, I'm not saying it's bad at that point because that's the Michael Myers part. But um, I don't know. Do you guys feel that way with this film or not? Mm, I wouldn't say that it loses momentum for me, but I do like the feeling of that opening more. If I had to choose a part I liked more, I guess. Okay. Yeah. I think you, I think you said that well. The kind of chaos that's happening in the town right. is a lot of fun to, right. to be as in. Peop- as people start realizing – you know, what's going on here. But I kind of like that it becomes contained in a spot that's outside of that. And so it's, it's like mm. a major misdirection for those characters, you know? It is. Yeah. And like you said, uh, Jay, so well that it did take you to that spot of healing and, and comfort zone and, and just totally disrupted that whole air, you know, that whole aroma of being safe and being in that healing. And then, you know, they just flip it upside down, and <laughs> I, I did like that. But I do love the whole reporter thing. I mean, it's like media today, kind of the same sequence. You got reporters on the edge of their seat trying to get the breaking news, and I, I did dig all that. Uh-huh. And, and in that way, I mean, because it's like the the town, and then it's the hospital. It kind of the movie is kind of split in half. It's like kind of two parts, which is interesting because just coincidentally, I happen to be looking at the artwork with the you know the Michael Myers mask, where half of it's black, half of it's white, and I'm like, that reminds me, that looks like the movie <laughs> structurally, but <laughs> that was weird and random. Um, how did you guys feel about this? This is a critique for me, but I, I'm betting that someone like Greg Amortis loved this. You got that X. Ex- extra exposition that where they were trying to incorporate more Halloween lore. I felt like it was shoehorned in when they were talking about Sam Hain and it's the Celtic word and et cetera. And he's explaining all this. Loomis is explaining all that. Now, did you guys feel like that was kind of shoehorned in or not? Me personally, a little bit, but at the same time in the back of my mind, especially now in retrospect, I think they were trying to build a franchise by then. Mm -hmm. And I think they were setting elements in place. It was kind of trying to explain, which they shouldn't, they didn't need to, but I think they were trying to explain the whole aura of why Michael Myers is doing what he's doing with that Sam Hain. They're bringing in the whole Halloween mythology you know, with the oh, that whole scenario with trick or treating and all that nine yards. So you know, yeah, it, did it work? It, I love that scene. I love it in the comic book, the story of Laurie Strode, the comic series. I love all that, but uh, it wasn't necessarily needed. Okay, Josh, did what did you feel about that exposition? <clears throat> I said everything Greg said. I love it. But, you know, I, I understand your critique, but I just like, I love all of that. To me, that kind of plays into the, I guess Greg just said, Greg Mortis just said this. It's the, it's all that, you know, the season of the witch, like it's the Halloween mm-hmm. stuff. So I, sure. I enjoy mm-hmm. that. Cool. Okay. Just wondered. Um, and then, and then one, one more thing along these lines, and then I'll get off the negatives, because it's really all I have to, to pick at it with. Um, that, that file 
on Michael Myers that no one knew about. <laughs> that was sealed by the court after his parents were killed. It's finally opened. And I know that, like, you know, when you're making movies and you're adding sequels, you got to do things like that. So, I mean, it's not super fair to critique this, but I do think that um, that's a little cumbersome in the story. Uh, yeah. What do you mean? What do you mean cumbersome? You mean just sort of... Well, it also feels like um, a, a little bit of retconning or something. It's like, okay, yeah, we got to set this up. There was a file on him that we didn't know about. <laughs> and, he, and he has a sister. And, and, I mean, it, it, it is you retconning, like, but at least it was like sealed. At least it wasn't like it fell on the folds of the couch and we just... <laughs> like. <laughs> it, it makes sense that if this guy escapes you know, escapes that maybe this kind of thing does get released, you know, to help track him down. Sure. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Although it would have been interesting to release it. Well, then again, never mind. It's the same day. Because I was going to say it'd be released <laughs> in the first film, but you know what? It's the same damn day. Yeah. So I guess, it, I guess it came out just when it was supposed to come out. Okay. That's right. That's right. So, so here's something for uh, Greg Amortis, because I know this is one of his favorite aspects. So I, uh, I pulled this here. So, um, I want to contrast what they did with the Halloween theme between the first film and the second film, because I think it's kind of interesting, uh, especially the time period this was released. So uh, for all, those who don't know, I'm sure everybody knows this. This is probably Greg Amortis's cell phone ring, I bet. But uh, this oh. is <laughs> this is the first <laughs> Halloween's theme. Amazing, right? Yes, sir. And and then we have um, kind of a a revamped version of it uh, in this second film, which sounds like um, like this. And and tell me if this if this film had been adapted like to an Atari game, a twenty twenty six hundred <laughs> Atari for people who remember that from the eighties. This sounds yeah. like they took the theme and put it in an Atari video game. <laughs> Doesn't it? Can't you see in it? Super Mario Brothers. Yeah, I, I could. I could definitely see that. Yes, I can see that being an Atari Twenty Six Hundred. It has that sort of. That, I think it was actually an it. organ, though. In in reality. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it yeah. was, but it has that sort of. I don't know, amplified, but you know, definitely. But I'm not dissing. Yeah. I mean, I'm totally not dissing no, no, at all. With the Atari Twenty Six Hundred, I'm just remembering some of the music from those things. But in yeah. case I made people mad on that, I just want to say. The, the, the second version is cool because it goes into this. Check this out. Do the laugh, Greg. Do the laugh. <laughs> See, that's perfect right there. Uh, I it, do love that. It, it's amazing. Yeah. What it does is it adds a more, and they say this, you can see us on trivia anywhere, it gave it more of a gothic feel. To me, it kind of brought it to the Phantom of the Opera esque yeah, totally. feel. It kind of went darker with it. I mean, you had to change the music a little bit because it's a different movie. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you didn't want to lose the fact that. Michael Myers had his own music. Yes. With that, every time Michael Myers is on set, whenever he's around, he had a, a certain sound. Every time somebody was in harm's way, there was a certain sound. So you couldn't lose that. But for a movie standpoint, you you got to amp it up a little bit. So he added that that synthesized organ sound 
And I actually, I mean, kick me, guys. I mean, I know I'm going to be butchered for this. I prefer the second one over the first one for the music. Wow. Mm, I, I have I, something even more controversial to say. <laughs> I prefer the Halloween H2O revamping of of the second ver- you know the second movie's music. That, <laughs> you that you was, love the Creed. You love Creed. That's what No, no, no. But I mean the <laughs> of the theme. I love that uh I love that version of the theme yeah. um better than better than the second movie. Yeah, I just I loved the the synthesized sound of it cuz it did bring me back to Phantom of the Opera and it brought me back to the universal horror sound more yes. of the orchestral. Not yeah. that the first one's not perfect, it is, but this one's just a notch. I like the more of the synthesized sound. It just added a little bit more creepiness to it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Definitely oh. that organ at the end. That was oh, strong. Yes. Okay, so let's talk a little more about the kills, if you guys don't mind. I mean, we've already mentioned the scalding oh, yeah. face, but what about the, the needle to the eyeball <laughs> and then to the temple? I mean, um, that's Ooh. pretty full on. That's pretty intense. Uh, when you see that, I mean, that has always stuck with me, always. Yes. And and it's kind of one of those haunting, I, I, I don't know. Um, but how do you guys feel about th- these kills? Do you, you got any others when you want to talk about? Uh, well, uh, the, the, the hammer claw, yes. I guess that was the one that always gets me. Well, uh, it's that thump. It's that thump. Yeah, <laughs> You're like, yeah, oh. That one always, always kind of... It gets that one always bothers me. Do you know what makes me hurt in this movie for some reason? This is very weird. Do you know that feeling you get when you give blood and there's that tightness in your arm when the needle's uh-huh. still in there? Well, yeah, I yeah. feel that all over my body when they show that bloodletting onto the floor scene, that, yeah. that blood transfusion. I mean, like, man, that makes me just hurt all over. I think that's pretty full on, too. Yeah. My full on is, is how much blood did. Miss Virginia Owls, played by Glory Gifford, having her body. I mean, there was a ton of blood, dude. <laughs> More than, what is it? Um, eight pint, five or eight pints? What's the human body have? Something like that. And, um, oh, my God. Now, not to change, but my favorite, one of my favorite kill scenes, believe it or not, was not a lot of gore, but it was the kill of Jill, who was played by Tony Moyer, when the nurse, where he comes up from behind her and lifts her up, Mm-hmm. And then the feet, you know, the shoes go. Plop. Oh yeah, <laughs> I love that kill. I don't. It's simple, but Jeez. it's effective for me. And it feels more like, like, like again, that first movie. Although even again in the TV version, it's gone. Yeah. Well, no, it's actually. But you get the you get the from behind shot, which is oh, so yeah. great that. But you don't get the hammer claw. You instead you get a like a stab wound in the chest, and you don't have the claw. Yeah. Mm. Stupid. See, I, I'm with you though on that nurse one when she's picked up. But yeah. honestly, like, um, I I wish it had been. And I know, like, you know, he he worked with what was available there, and there was a lot of there was just a lot of scalpel in this, and I missed the yeah. the butcher knife, I think. But oh, sure, sure. But I mean, there again, well, I mean, this is nitpicking, but like Jason, for instance, Friday Thirteenth series, he used. Oh, my God. Everything from the weed eater chainsaw to whatever. I mean, you know, he had like 50,000 weapons he's used in. And you're right. I mean, Michael Myers had what he had in hand, which was a scalpel, which would be readily acceptable at a hospital. But where did the butcher knife go? He had it. Should have. Well, I don't know, though, because he got shot, fell off the roof. So, yeah, maybe not. I don't know. I would have loved to see the butcher knife slice a few. 
I love it that you brought up the weed eater or edge trimmer because I was edge trimming my yard the other day and I thought, man, we need to make a horror movie where that's what the, it's a slasher and that's what the killer uses is the edge trimmer. I mean, right, right, Wolfman, let's do that, can we? And Gregamortis can be can be the killer. Okay. <laughs> because if you look at him in his picture, you can see that he could wield a pretty mean edge trimmer. Oh, boy. Man. You just don't even know what I can do with a weed eater, boy. <laughs> I'm, just I'm, I'm just saying, I'd be a killer killer. <laughs> <laughs> so, one, one more thing on the suspense here, and then we'll move into like any final thoughts that you guys have. Um, when when Jimmy comes and gets in the car and he doesn't feel well and he passes out on the steering wheel, I think that is a tremendous um, use of suspense in a film. I mean, that's that has become in the last, I don't want to uh, see, I'll, I'll put a time on it, I don't know, 20 years or so, that is starting to become a lost art. And I'm sad yeah. to say, even in horror, like it's like they do a lot more shocking and a lot less suspense. But I think this is a great example of that because you're like, get that guy off the car. He's going to hear it. And like every time I see that, I freak out that Michael Myers is going to hear that horn blare. Yeah. Yeah, I'm the same way. Oh, yeah. It's such a it's super effective. I love that. Yeah. Yeah, so much better because the TV version is not there. Yeah. But you still have, and Jamie Lee has said this, the, the scene aggravates me so much and it pissed her off to no end that she actually did ask them why am I being this way but the scene where she's climbed out of the car Dr. Loomis and Marion and Am's coming in and they're going in the door and she's struggling she's clawing at the pavement man <laughs> trying to make a noise and it's not until the door shut that she can actually let her voice out yeah she has said this in interviews that she had no reasoning behind why they would not let her scream she said it made no sense hated that script that she was not able to scream until the door shut. She said it was total BS on their part, but but that whole sequence was amazing. I, I loved it. I just yeah so tense with him yeah. getting that steering wheel, man. You were like, oh, dude, get him off. Hurry, hurry, hurry. <laughs> oh. that, that screaming situation is like a contrivance, and I think, yeah, some that, that it just must be um, a weakness of the script ultimately, right? I mean, don't you think yeah. that that's just just contrived so yeah well what are you guys what are your final thoughts i don't want to um cut anybody off before we move into ratings so if you have final comments or thoughts you want to talk about let them rip oh i i just think it's for me is one of the best sequels you know i mean this actually ranks right up there with me with uh, friday the 13th part four nice. uh which is i really really like that one um but and what makes it so good is it's all taking place in the same time period. I mean, you could sit down and pop in Halloween and immediately pop in Halloween too. And I think it's just going to be like one, uh, almost, you know, like a mini series or something that you, that you could watch. And I think it would flow that well, yeah. uh, and, which is amazing when you can see you got two different directors and uh, three years passing mm -hmm. between these things. Um, and so for me, it, it really is one of the, one of the best sequels ever made. I, I totally agree. Yeah. For me, there's really nothing more to add. I mean, this is just a stellar movie for me. Great sequel. Like everybody said, I mean, flawless as far as going from one movie to the next. I appreciated that. 
for me, scene wise, I can't say this enough, and we haven't really mentioned or we haven't mentioned him at all. But the character of Gary Hunt, who was the other cop when Charles Cyphers is, you know, obviously distraught about his daughter. Well, Hunter Von Leer, who played Gary Hunt, takes over the hunting of Michael Myers. I cannot express how much I enjoyed his character. I thought he'd done a tremendous job taking over that that character, Charles Cypher, so to speak. I loved his acting, man. It was just amazing. Mm-hmm. And, and the whole cast, I mean, this whole cast yeah. was great. Even Bud, played by Leo Ro- Rossi, man. <laughs> Bud was so freaking hilarious. Amazing Grace, come sit on my face. <laughs> I want your pie. I mean, it was just, he had the one-liners that was the good jokes of the movie and all that whole, everybody. I mean, even Jill, all the characters were amazing. Definitely, I, I can't recommend enough to watch the TV version. If you've never seen it, as Josh said, definitely watch the theatrical version. But after you've watched that, pop in the TV version because they have so much more dialogue instead of it just being, and you, I think you'll agree, Josh, some of the nurses only had like one or two lines. TV right. version, they've got multiple lines, and it, it right. works better for me. Yep. The only big downside for me of the TV version is – Actually, the swearing, and not that I like love swearing or anything, but mm-hmm. it's anno- it, it has that TV thing that's annoying where they like change all the words to like ridiculous words, you know? <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Like, like, yeah, you son yeah. of a gopher. Exactly. Yeah. Like if, somebody, <laughs> if, someone was, if someone was chasing me down the hall with a knife, I'd probably let, let go with an X. I wouldn't be like, oh, shucks. Or, oh, yeah. shucks. Well, they say, oh, sugar is what they say. Yeah, oh, sugar. Yeah, no, I, I don't think so. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's hilarious. Okay, well, nobody cares about this, but just for the record, I just want to show that we do keep track of these kind of things. When we recorded our epic Horror Palace special on the best horror movies of the 80s and 90s, I actually ranked this movie, Halloween 2, as um, my number two best horror film of 1981. And for me, it was right behind The Evil Dead. And it was a very close um, right there with, man, Friday the 13th Part 2, which I rated third. But honestly, depending on the day that you asked me, those two could be swapped or tied for second. But this movie is also special to me because Halloween 2 has my all-time, all-time number one favorite horror movie poster art or DVD cover, and I'm talking about the one with the, you know, the pumpkin face with the skull carved into it, the oh, jack-o'-lantern. Yeah. Man, that's amazing. Like, there's something about that. Because uh, I remember seeing that when I was young, and it was all, it always scared me when I was a little kid, and that, that has stuck with me. But, one little side yeah. note again about that mm-hmm. Scream Factory Blu-ray release is that they've got some amazing new artwork for the mm-hmm. DVD cover. Even though that original poster that you're talking about is awesome, Every other release for this movie I've seen just looks terrible. And uh-huh. so it was cool to see the Blu-ray have that new awesome artwork, but it also was reversible and you can have that original poster artwork that you're right. talking about, Jason. Nice. They um, do that with you, a lot of their releases, yeah. If you prefer yeah. it, yeah. Yeah, Nathan Thomas Milner done the artwork and it is gorgeous. Yeah, that's incredible. My favorite, my favorite horror poster ever. Okay, but for me, I'll just I'll just start off with the ratings here. For me, Halloween 2, 1981. This is an 8 out of 10, and I say buy it for sure. What do you say, Dr. Shock? 
Um, I'm probably going to go with a 9 out of 10. And I say definitely buy it. I mean, uh, you know, if you want to see what a, a, what a horror sequel should be, I think this is it. Okay, nice. Wolfman Josh. <sighs> I'm a little crazy about these movies, guys. I don't know. I don't know. I'm kind of like having a crisis, like a personal crisis. <laughs> it's kind of like... Why? I, Tell us. I, well, it's just what that thing I was talking about with the sequels. I love to me the first movie is perfect. There's nothing taken away from it. Even with the sequels, I'm a huge fan. This is my favorite f- horror franchise, you know. And John Carpenter is my favorite director, probably of all time. Definitely um, horror, and his, you know, The Thing and Halloween are my two favorite uh, horror movies. So, so it's weird, I guess, to have kind of mixed feelings about this. The rest of this franchise, like I, I like it, partially in my mind. I combine one, two, and H two O as its own little set of movies and kind of push the other movies aside but then i also really love four and five in their own way and so right. I, I don't know i'm kind of i'm gonna know i'm just kind of messed up but i i <laughs> guess in some ways this is my least favorite of that trilogy that i consider the trilogy that that trilogy with jamie lee curtis in them i guess um so i would kind of I'd give this maybe a seven okay i don't know I don't, I don't know. I feel weird. I feel even weird just saying that. That's all right. You can say whatever you want. Now, is that a rental or a buy or what? I mean, it's it's a must buy, I think, especially for fans of the franchise. And it's such a great sequel. But I again, I kind of think of it as that that trifecta, that triptych of those three films. I think for the for like the casual viewer of the franchise, those are the three I'd recommend. But I, I again, I really love actually I really love three as well. Basically, I love all of them, but six. I'll even sit down and watch Resurrection. But. <laughs> <laughs> okay, awesome. So Wolfman Josh says it's a seven. He says it's a must buy. And Greg Amortis, what do you rate Halloween to? All I gotta say is blasphemer Josh. <laughs> Blasphem No, I'm kidding. No, for me, I I have to go with my rating that I did last year for our Halloween and it's a nine point five for me, just right below ten. I'm with you, Josh. I wish I was on H two O one too, because I really do love H two O. But uh, I love this sequel, man. It's amazing. Not as good as the first, of course, but it's still a strong sequel. That definitely one of my favorite sequels of any series out there. So for me, 9.5, man, it's a must own. If get the box set, man, come on, guys, quit smoking for a month. Uh, don't buy crack for a week. Whatever it takes, man. You know, don't go buy your girls out on the street for a month. Whatever it takes, man. Save up 130 bucks, get the deluxe edition, man, and have it all on Blu-ray. <laughs> well <so> said. <laughs> that, that's right. That's right. <laughs> you are hilarious. So, Greg Amortis, you got to tell us, I mean... But as we wrap up, we're we're so grateful you were here tonight. Um, it was a, you know, it, it's late on the East Coast for you guys, for you and Doctor Shock, and I know that you know your family made some nice arrangements to to, to accommodate this recording. So thank you for all you did, and please tell the listeners where they can find you and hear more of your podcasting. Oh, well, thank you so much. No worries, man. I, I've got a snoring lady over here. I'm good. Uh, now, for me, I mean, you can follow me, of course, landofthecreeps.blogspot.com. Definitely follow us there. Facebook, uh, you can follow me at Facebook. It's Greg Morgan. I think it's like GregMorgan.796 or whatever it is. But 
anyways you can follow me there on twitter greg amortis uh got a youtube channel if you haven't watched my youtube definitely subscribe to that uh definitely pumping out dvd blu-ray updates try to do them every week i'm doing my mini review each and every sunday so i do a movie review each week uh a lot of other cool i've been showing my horror figure collections off i've done three of those got two more videos to do to finally get all them done so i'll be doing that but other than that i mean that's pretty much i mean i'm i'm pretty accessible just don't forget about land of the creeps <laughs> that's right and and as you mentioned you guys did this whole um all the halloween franchise like last year right yep yeah we did so we, do you, we, we attempted to do it we attempted to do it the year before when we was with the horror palace but mm -hmm. that kind of got brainwashed and we kind of ended up talking about every movie but halloween oh, so we decided right. for yeah, the, oh. the, the, the mega the mega 12 the, the hour, 12 hour megathon that we really never even really talked about the halloween <laughs> franchise but you know we did cover all of them last year on land of the creeps so you can definitely check that yes. out but nice i'll link that in the show notes for this episode i'll, I'll oh. find out which which episodes we're looking at and then and then people can hear that too because yeah you and haddonfield hatchet and uh kenny caperton uh i mean josh and doc are huge halloween fans too but right. uh, of the people i know that are obsessed with it <laughs> you three are the ones that are the most obsessed of, of the people that i know at least I would like to think I was number one, but I honestly, guys, have to say I have to totally take Sackett's seat to Kenny Caperton. I when mean, you live in the Myers house, there's not much else right. that can be said. There's, there's right. nothing right. else you can say. I mean, a man builds <laughs> a actual replica house of the Myers house and lives in it. I mean, dude, you can't get no more bigger than that. Or that didn't sound right, but you know what I mean. He's, yep, he's huge. Yep. I yep. think I'm two. Yep. Yeah, I'm number two. I, I, I'm going to build like. I think I'm going to do Laurie Strode's house or something. I, I'm going to do one of the other houses I'm going to build. Oh, I love it. I told Kenny I want to do a, like a little short documentary, but like really high quality documentary about his house. Oh, dude, he would love that. We're, we're going to discuss it, but we haven't been able to touch base on it yet. So. Well, come to North Carolina. Can I plug something real quick, Jay? Do it. Do it. To all you horror movie podcast fans, October 18th is on a Saturday night. If you're in the North Carolina area, Durham, North Carolina is the place to be. Go to MyersHouseNC.com, Honey Spider, whatever. Kenny Caperton's film, Honey Spider, which he wrote and co-directed along with Josh Hasty. I got a little part in that movie. Uh, I get to be a devil in it. I'm wearing a devil mask, so it's freaking awesome. But that movie <laughs> will be airing. Our world premiere will be there at the Durham. I can't remember the name of the theater, but anyways, October 18th. I think it's 7.30 p.m. in North Carolina, Durham. Definitely be there. I'll be there. Kenny will be there. A whole long line of people will be there from the movie. We're going to be doing the Honey Spider world premiere movie. Also, Night of the Living Dead, the original, will be airing. This is on the big screen. To know a little bit about Honey Spider, go to Facebook or check out Kenny Caperton or Myers House NC and know about this movie. It's freaking amazing. The lead singer and all oh, Billy Corbin, I think his name, lead singer from Smashing Pumpkins. His name's slipping me. But anyways, uh, he put a stamp approval on the movies, allowing his song Honey Spider to be represented awesome. in the movie. So oh. I cannot speak enough volume about this movie so october 18th north carolina durham please be there man for the world premiere of honey spider and you can see greg amortis i will be there <laughs> hopefully red carpet and all baby 
Nice. Very cool, man. That's awesome. Congratulations <laughs> That's awesome, to all you guys. Yes. That's awesome. Congrats. That's we'll, great. We'll link all that in the show notes as well so people can look it up. Yeah, come see Greg Amortis, please. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Josh, if you fly to North Carolina to film this, can I just ride in your luggage and because i'm supposed to watch a horror movie with uh, greg amortis and miss mystery and yep. we're gonna have ice cream at their house i got yeah. plenty of ice cream <laughs> now, i got hired to do this other documentary series and so what i've been trying to figure out is if i because every time i've flown to new york all my layovers are in charlotte so i'm trying to figure yep. out if i can extend my layover and just stay there for like a couple days you know nice <laughs> Dude, maybe Kenny will let you sleep in Judah's room. It's freaking amazing. <laughs> it's the creepiest room in the world. That's cool. Do it, Josh. Do it. Yeah, that'd be cool. All right. Well, thanks again, Greg Amortis. It was great having you. We really appreciate you being on Horror Movie Podcast. Oh, thank you, buddy. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I love you guys. You know that. Wolfman. Ow, ow, ow. And of course, Dr. Shock and Jay's awesome, man. Yeah, very cool. All right, buddy. You have a good night, Greg. Thanks, thanks man. That's awesome. Right, Thank you, sir. You I'll, talk, I'll talk to you soon. <laughs> Take care. Right. Goodbye. Bye. Okay, and at this point in episode 27 of Horror Movie Podcast, I'm still joined by the Wolfman, Josh Legary, as well as the amazing but subtle Dr. Shock. And um, I'm just so excited. If I seem giddy, it's because we have um, a really cool special guest on tonight. This man, I've actually been listening to him on podcasts for a number of years, dating all the way back to the Creepshirt feature horror show, he was on one of my all-time favorite episodes, actually, and that was uh, Greg Amortis's best films of the aughts of the 2000s. Dr. Shock was on that. That's a killer show. And this guy is maybe most famous for his house. He is the owner and operator behind the Myers House NC in Hillsboro, North Carolina. It is a life-size replica of the infamous Michael Myers House from John Carpenter's Halloween. And it is located, as I said, in rural Hillsboro, North Carolina. And it is his personal residence. And so we welcome to the show the Pumpkin King himself, Kenny Caperton. Uh, that was a pretty good introduction, man. I appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I am, I am that crazy guy. Yes. Now you've got a couple things to tell us about. Like this month, October is a huge month for you. So tell us what's going on at the Myers House, real quick. Wow. Yeah. Every October is crazy, and this year is no different. Um, we're having our sixth anniversary Halloween bash. I cannot believe we've been in the house for six years now. It's crazy. But uh, we're having that on Halloween night and it's a huge party of all things Halloween. I set up like a 10 by 20 foot movie screen in the front yard. We're showing John Carpenter's Halloween, House of a Thousand Corpses. Uh, we're going to have like food trucks and a big DJ and jack-o'-lanterns and just good old Halloween fun. Yeah, and then I'm, um, I actually wrote and produced a, my first full-length feature film called Honey Spider that's coming out this October, nice. which I've, I've been working on for about a year and a half now. I'm so excited about it, but we're premiering it um, in North Carolina at this old theater. It's awesome. We shot part of the movie there. with um, We're showing it with the original Night of the Living Dead. And then the day after Halloween, um, we're showing it at a local drive-in theater with um, House on Haunted Hill with Vincent Price. So. Oh, man, that's awesome. That's yeah, great. That's a, so I'm really excited. It's going to be a, it's a huge, huge month for me. So best time of the year. Wow. So you've got to tell us both about I mean, the story you've told, I'm sure, a trillion times. But since we are on the Halloween format of our podcast, you've got to tell us about 
your inspiration uh, and a little bit of the backstory for building your house. And then also tell us more about Honey Spider as well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. The, um, my house is, I mean, as most, most people know, I'm a crazy, crazy Halloween fan. Ever since I was a little kid, it's been my favorite movie. And just like a lot of people, I grew up watching on cable television. And me and my brother, we would go out to the local video store and rent, you know, Halloween one, two, three, four, five. You know, we didn't know what we were renting. We just wanted to watch, you know, Michael, Michael Myers. But yeah, it's been my favorite movie forever. And um, back in, God, it's been so long now, in 2008. Well, actually, I guess 2007 is when Rob Zombie's remake came out. And at the time, I was working for him and Sherry Moon Zombie. I still work for Sherry, but um, they invited me to come to the world premiere um, of his remake at the Chinese Theater in L.A. And every time I go there, I have to go to the original Myers house <laughs> just to go look at it and kind of stroke the railing and, <laughs> and just stare <laughs> up at it. But, <laughs> but uh, we, me and Emily, we were in the middle of house hunting at the time, and we were just so discouraged by everything we were seeing. And, you know, if I was going to spend all this money on a house, I wanted it to be something, you know, that I could really see myself living in. So when we got back, we were looking at our pictures from, vaca- you know, from, from going out to LA and we were looking at the Myers house and I was like, I wonder how much it would cost to, to just build this house and live in it. And li- literally in like five minutes, I was on the phone with South Pasadena, um, <laughs> California, trying to get blueprints uh, for it. But that's how it, that's how it came up, man. Just an absolutely crazy, crazy idea and sort of a love for the movies and amazing. and and just yeah. for the Halloween season in general and and, and now I'm living here I'm podcasting from it right now which is nuts. Awesome. <laughs> and, and you and you really are in the middle of nowhere, right? I mean, you're kind of a well off the beaten oh, path. Yeah. If I remember talking uh, talking about it uh, with you before, you know, yeah, I remember I remember you were you were saying that uh, if anybody's going to <laughs> come walking up in a Michael Myers mask or something that you are armed. <laughs> um, well, we it, it would not be a good idea. <laughs> but um, yeah, we're in the we're in the middle of of nowhere. I mean, we, the house is located on five and a half acres, and we're surrounded by woods and country farm, you know, country farmland, which is a great place to have a you know a party and shoot movies and stuff like that. But we had one neighbor that I always refer to as my crazy redneck redneck neighbor. <laughs> He's a really cool guy, but unfortunately, his house got foreclosed on. So our only neighbors are now gone so there's a vacant house that's you know sort of near us but now i have like zero neighbors wow. <laughs> and we live in the middle of nowhere but um. it's fun man we've had a you know we've had so much fun with the house i've met people from all over i mean i just posted you know my uh, information about my halloween party and already someone from canada is driving from Canada <laughs> all the way to North Carolina just to spend Halloween at my house and people from That's Philadelphia. Awesome. I mean, it's That's amazing. Awesome. So it, yeah. is. it sounds like a great time too with the, with the movies and just getting oh, to see yeah. the house and everything. Yeah, it's fun. I try to keep it, you know, like the true tradition of Halloween with, you know, trick or treat candy, tons of jack-o'-lanterns and, you know, straw bales, s'mores, you know, campfires and stuff like that. So mm. it's awesome. And it looks like you're a, a movie super fan in general. I just recently saw on Facebook you posted some photos of you going to like all the Adventureland uh, <laughs> locations. Well, yeah, I just that's something I love doing when I whenever I visit someplace. I love going to check out movie locations. Oh, it's a huge, huge thing like that I've been doing for years and years. Like me and Sean Clark were some of the only people going to filming locations. Um, and would post pictures publicly for you know for a long, long time. But I finally just took a 
a quick weekend trip up to Pittsburgh and I got to see, um, mm-hmm. we went to Kennywood, uh, amusement park, which where it's all, all of Adventureland was filmed, but I also I got to go to place. all of, uh, all of George Romero's stuff and got to see the oh, oh. night of living dead cemetery and the, you know, oh, Monroeville wow. mall and, and everything. So Aww. making me homesick. <laughs> now I grew up going to Kennywood. I love that place. Oh really? It's a, it's so much fun. It's such an old school amusement park. <laughs> yeah. <it's> nice. <laughs> Now, a uh, couple questions here. Now, I just want the, the listeners to know this because I watched the YouTube video where they interview you. And you said that you weren't actually able to find blueprints for your house. And so you ended up just watching the films a lot. And like you kind of ended up putting it together, right, from your own study and just your love of the films, right? Yeah, that was the, oh my God, you're, you're taking me back to like flashbacks to Nam, man, to dark, <laughs> to dark times. But, um, but yeah, that was like the biggest obstacle was the house, the original house is built, was built in 1888. I mean, it's a, it's a historical landmark in South Pasadena, but come to find out, like I talked to everyone you could imagine, the city, the tax office, everyone that's, you know, that I could get a hold of that's lived there. Or, you know, it's now commercial office space. So people work from from that house. I talked to all of them, but (laughs) the house is so old, just no blueprints um, exist for it. So I had to literally watch the movies over and over again. And a lady who used to work in the house, her name was uh, Carol Zorn. She doesn't work there anymore. But I would send her like literally list and list of measurements that I would need. And her and her two college sons, they climbed out on the roof and measured every single thing for me. So yeah, just with that, watching the movies, I've taken a ton of photography of the original house because I've been there at the time. I'd been there like four or five times. (laughs) And then, uh, you know, and then my, my friend was studying to be an architect. So I just put all this media together and got a lot of opinions from a lot of professionals. And we put together, you know, the blueprints, they literally started off on a sheet of paper that I drew, which is incredible. You know, that I'm now living in the house. Yeah. That's (laughs) tremendous. Well, congratulations. Inspiration to us all. (laughs) Seriously. (laughs) The the biggest dork of all time. No, one one day guys, we gotta, we gotta go there one of these days. Yeah. When are we going to yeah, go man. visit? I, I, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, I'm closer than, than all of you guys. I'm going to have to get there at some point. I know. You know? Yeah, come spend the night. We'll podcast from the roof. There you go. I think Greg Amortis <laughs> said he stayed in the room where the original murder took place, the, the young Michael Myers. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Kelly Judith's sister. As we refer to it, Judith's bedroom, a.k.a. my bedroom. But yeah, all, like everyone who stays at the house, they um. <laughs> Because Emily won't let anyone stay in her room. So everyone kind of stays in my room, which that's where they want to stay anyway. But Right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like Greg was geeking out the whole time, as you could, you, you know, you can imagine. Uh, I can imagine, right? He, he probably didn't get any sleep. <laughs> right. <laughs> How could you? I should have I went in there with a mask and scared the shit out of him. But. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're glad you're here. I mean, we you're definitely... Uh, qualified then to discuss these movies i mean rarely do you ever movie jason come on man if i could build the silver shamrock novelties factory in the backyard i'd have that too but that's slightly out of my budget that's right and and in fact the you know i i would be willing to bet i don't know this for certain but i would be willing to bet that this man loves all of them as long as they have halloween in the title well i don't know i wouldn't go that far oh really okay that's interesting (laughs) Well, I'm, I'm learning things about Halloween fans during this. This is really good. So, listeners, 
let's get down to it then, the, the matter at hand, Halloween 3. And without any further delay, let's move into our feature review of Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. You don't really know much about Halloween. Halloween. The barriers will be down between the real and the unreal. And the dead might be looking in. The last great one took place 3,000 years ago when the hills ran red. Halloween, the children. You have to know anything about this Cochran? All I can tell you, mister, is watch out. Season He's watching you, friend, I guarantee you that. Trick or treat, trick or treat. Hey, Mr. Cochran, just what is the final process? Fellas, I was just kidding. Witchcraft. To us, it was a way of controlling our environment. Hey! Halloween 3. Season of the Witch, the night no one comes home. So Halloween 3 was written and directed by Tommy Lee Wallace, and this time I'm going to use the premise here from the IMDb because it sums it up just really succinctly. A large mask-making company plans to kill millions of American children with something sinister hidden in Halloween masks. And Dr. Shock will appreciate this. I have Leonard Maltin's uh, movie guide book, and I really love his books because... Ah, yeah, that, that's right. The last one printing this year. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Absolutely. But I have the one from 2008. Anyway, he has all the Halloween films in there. He's got thousands and thousands of films in like mini capsule reviews. And here is his little capsulation of the plot for this movie, which I love. First of all, he calls it a bomb, which is like the worst rating he gives. Whoa. Yeah. And then he says genuinely repellent 80s style horror film with gore galore after a slow start about a maniacal plot to murder millions of children on Halloween. Nice, huh? (laughs) No relation to either of the earlier Halloween films, but owes more than a bit to Invasion of the Body Snatchers. So anyway, to kick off this discussion, I want to turn it over to the Pumpkin King himself. As everybody heard, he's an expert on these matters. And Kenny, for those who are uninitiated, could you just talk about why this film (laughs) is the way it is and why Michael Myers doesn't even appear in it? (laughs) Okay, for all these these Halloween 3 haters, let's sort of explain the backstory. (laughs) So, (laughs) Halloween 1 and 2, Halloween 2 wasn't even supposed to be made to start off with. No one wanted to make it. John Carpenter, Deborah Hill, Deborah Hill, all these people were forced to sort of do it from the success of the original. Um, you know, which was great. Halloween 2 had a lot of success as well. So therefore, we have to do Halloween 3. By then, everyone was 110% bull, uh, burnt out on this whole concept. But the franchise, even though there was only two installments, had quite a bit of success you know, at that time. So the idea was um, to make a horror film that takes place on Halloween that's sort of centered around the Halloween holiday, and they were going to release one every single year. And through that, there could be spinoffs from those Halloweens, you know, or not. So it was this huge idea that could go on forever, and they could keep making movies, um, more and more movies. But unfortunately... You know, Michael Myers at the time wasn't this huge iconic character, so no one really knew the importance, you know, of that just 
of the shape, you know, that simple mass that terrified people. <laughs> they would but learn. at the time, it had only been a couple years. So they found out very quickly <laughs> after this came out, I think a week, and it was pulled from theaters, that um, <laughs> that the audience, they were like, where's Jamie Lee Curtis? Where's, you know, Donald Pleasance? Where's Michael Myers? And everyone just completely turned their back on it. It was totally panned by every reviewer and kind of just sort of swept under you know swept under the rug but here it is i don't know how many years later and in the past five years it has built up a more and more cult following and people are starting to appreciate it i've i've championed this film for since the 90s i've been (laughs) i've been just like trying to convince people this is a good movie so finally people are um coming around to it but I think it's an amazing film. It's probably in my top three of Whoa. favorites of of all of them. Um, let, let me stop you so. right there for just one second, because <laughs> I'm Come a on. huge I'm a huge fan of this movie too. I am, but I don't know if I'd ever say it's an amazing film. I think is there are you are you going to stand by that you think this is actually a great movie or is it just one that's very enjoyable? Because that I think that's going to be. A major point of jumping off for this conversation, depending. No, on I do. I honestly think this is. I think it's a a great movie. I mean, everything down to the <laughs> story. The you know, we don't have to jump to the ending, but I think at the time they did some pretty ballsy stuff, and and like the the cinematography from Dean Cundey <laughs> yeah. is amazing. That's true. But, That's true. Um, You're welcome to talk about the ending even right now if you want. Whatever you wherever you want to go, Kenny. Well, no, I'm, I mean, I, just in general, Okay. overall watching it, I think it's a solid, solid movie. And if it wasn't called Halloween, I think it would get a lot more, um, you know, a lot <laughs> more respect, obviously. I agree with that. And, and actually, there was a time when I was extremely Michael Myers obsessed that I refused to call this Halloween 2. I was calling it simply Season of the Witch. But even that's not really a great title for this movie, if we're, <laughs> if we're being honest. No. Um, but, but, I, but, you know, I like the idea of this uh of John Carpenter's to kind of create a horror anthology based around Halloween. I think most horror fans would be down for that idea. But, um, and, and I really do like this movie. As you said, I think it is beautifully shot, but I would say it's pretty poorly acted and uh, written, sorry, written and, and, and in some ways executed when it comes to the acting and, mm-hmm. and some of the production elements, like particularly the props and, and sets. But. You don't like the sets of the props in this? <laughs> oh, well, okay, I'm, I'm, of two, I'm of two minds about it, to, to be honest. But Okay, this is the thing. I appreciate it on it, but I find it comical. I love this movie, but I, but I think of it almost as much as, of a comedy as I do anything else. And, um, and I think that's the way I'm appreciating it. I'm, I'm, I'm laughing at this movie more than I'm getting carried away in, in the scares of the movie. But not a true comedy, right, Josh? You're talking about a quirky type of film, right? Quirky, yes. I mean, it's not, I mean, I don't know if it's the so bad it's good level, but I do think it's a parody in some ways. I think it's created in some ways as a parody as well, I would argue. The, the Tommy Wallace um, you know, built a lot of these. It, it's clearly referencing a lot of horror movies, including um, Halloween and Invasion of the Body Snatchers, but, but a lot of others as well. And, and I feel like it's one of those movies that wears its movie knowledge on its sleeve. And to me, it's, I don't know, I feel like it, it operates in, as kind of a homage from beginning to end. Hmm. Now, see, I've wondered about this because, um, and I'm not second-guessing 
Kenny's feelings at all, I promise. But like, I wondered if the reason why um, Halloween fans, like hardcore Halloween fans still like and accept this movie is just if for, for no other reason than it's just kind of a bizarre little novelty. Like it's, it's the weirdest thing in the middle of this franchise not the middle proper, but I mean, I'm just saying it's just so bizarre that it's in there. So do you think that's part of it, um, Kenny, that it's just kind of novel and bizarre and or, or not? It's for, while, while the small group of fans likes it, you think? Is that what you're well, asking? Yeah, I guess I'm just wondering, because um, honestly, when I watch this movie, I've really held my tongue on this for a while because I wanted to keep my cards close to the vest. <laughs> But um, when people watch this, I'm like, I'm just astounded myself that people can love it. Because I did ask you, you know, before you came on the show, I'm like, hey, do you like Halloween 3? Because I wanted to make sure I found somebody who liked Halloween 3 so they could really talk about it here and and, and teach the uh, non-believers <laughs> like myself. But but I just wondered if, if you were, if it's the fact that it's novel or you just genuinely, truly appreciate the film itself. I mean, I do. I mean, I, I've been defending this film when everyone hated it, you know, which is, it's still very hard, you know, today to, to find a lot of people that appreciate it. But I mean, I'm coming from a place definitely, you know, built with n- nostalgia and, mm-hmm. and I have an insane love for the hollow, for the Halloween season itself. And I think this is one of the movies that captures that a lot more than the other ones. I think they're more focused on, you know, Michael Myers and sort of Halloween is, is sort of the backdrop for those films. But hmm. this specifically goes into the lore of Halloween. It goes into, you know, Whoa. all the masks, the, the trick-or-treaters and stuff like that. So, That's good um, point. I mean, I, I, I would definitely it. say, I mean, Connell Cochran's speech in this about Halloween to me is some of the best dialogue and well acted and said scenes and lines in the entire series personally. I mean, next no, to Donald yeah, right. Pleasance. I mean, well, he, I, I mean, I good. really put it right next to Donald Pleasance when he delivers that whole speech about Halloween and the history. And I have that speech right here. You don't really know much about Halloween. You thought no further than the strange custom of having your children wear masks and go out begging for candy. It was the start of the year in our old Celtic glens, and we'd be waiting in our houses of wattles and clay. The barriers would be down, you see, between the real and the unreal. And the dead might be looking in to sit by our fires of turf. Halloween. The festival of Samhain. The last great one took place 3,000 years ago when the hills ran red with the blood of animals and children. Sacrifices are part of our world, our craft. Witchcraft? To us, it was a way of controlling our environment. It's not so different now. It's time again. In the end, we don't decide these things, you know. The planets do. They're in alignment. And it's time again. The world's going to change tonight, Doctor. I'm glad you'll be able to watch it.
and happy Halloween. So the question here is, is Silver Shamrock eventually morph into omni-consumer products? That's what I want to know. Is this, are the robots we see in this film eventually leading us to the RoboCop technology that we'll someday <laughs> see from this guy? Uh-huh. Yeah, uh, now I think you're taking it a little too far. <laughs> you got, I mean, that's the thing. You got to have a little fun with this this movie, but uh, but I but I it does play it pretty straight. I will agree that some of the um the more cheesy and laughable moments in the film are the relationship of Ellie um, and um, Daniel's character. It sort of comes out of nowhere. This relationship and some of the parts. You know, with Tom, yeah, I mean, it's totally creepy. With Tom Atkins, is it's ridiculous, but at the same time, those (laughs) parts to me, they give just that little bit of cheese factor that I know if Greg Amortis is listening to it, he loves just as much as I love. But I think the rest (laughs) of the movie, other than you know, than some of these over the top characters, is played pretty straight and pretty believable. I mean, you know, I mean, the whole story concept. is is kind of crazy, but as far as how they're playing it, so on screen, convoluted. The plot of this movie is like one of the most convoluted things. <laughs> like to get where they're trying to get, which is kill everybody. They they take one of the most complicated paths to that goal. That's true. Imaginable, but, but it's fun though. It's interesting. <laughs> and that's the it thing. is and fun. They, they don't explain it, which I think is nice. Like the whole thing with Stonehenge. I just, I don't know. I just find it very interesting. <laughs> I also love that it's Irish, that Stonehenge is Irish. I think that's hilarious too. <laughs> so, Doctor Shock, we haven't heard from you yet. Let weigh in. What do you think of Halloween Three: Season of the Witch? I am completely with Kenny on this one. I got to be honest with you. I, I, I saw this on, on cable when I when I was younger, and yep. it it scared me. I mean, when, you know, it, there there are scenes in this that um, there are some some jump scares in this that I think are the of the effective variety. You know, not the the cheap variety, um, and they worked on me when I was younger. Uh, I really was into the story. Um, I will agree that the whole Tom Atkins, but then again, in the fog, Tom Atkins got Jamie Lee Curtis into bed. You know, within minutes, he's the you man. Know, I, that's <laughs> right. I think I, I think that's just I, th- this guy's got something about him. Maybe it's the mustache. I don't know. <laughs> he's got something about him that that he can get these these young girls into bed real quick. Yeah, but he wasn't uh, like a weird drunken doctor who was ignoring his kids. And then, like, the creepiest thing about about him in this movie is that he sleeps with her, and then afterward, he's like, "You seem pretty young to me." Is basically what he says. <laughs> like, after that doesn't I'll even give it to, to you. Yeah, but those <laughs> scenes, those scenes are are the weakest of the movie. Yeah, but they're 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 ridiculous and fun though. And I'll and <laughs> I'll me. agree with you. I'll yeah. agree with you there oh, me too. too. Me when, too. But when he sleeps with Jamie Lee Curtis in the fog, he doesn't even know her name. They don't introduce themselves till they're in bed together. Well, you know, so I guess not. This guy moves fast. But um, no, this, this, is a, this is a film that, you know, and each time I see it, I do enjoy it a little more. Okay, this, the Stonehenge thing, yeah, it's a little, yeah, how did they get the stone? All right, yeah, you've got that whole thing. And, and, and you've got... Um, Certain aspects of it, but that's there's a certain there's a scene here that takes place in a what they call a test area, you know, with this family that they brought in who had sold the most masks, 
that, wow, I mean, that seems to me still just, it, it works. And I remember, maybe I'm immediately transported back to when I was a kid and watching this on cable um, because that scared the hell out of me the, yeah. the first time I saw it. And, but it still works for me. I, I think it's still a good scene. And I think this has other ones. And let's, the, the, there's, there's another scene set in, in a motel room where a woman's like toying with this little contraption. Mm-hmm. And you can you know, talk and, about it more if you want, because we're in spoilers. Okay. So go well, for she, it. She, she to- she's toying with what's a little chip there. And all of a sudden something happens. First off, that's a jump scare that, that gets you because you're not expecting that to happen. Yeah. Okay. Then I think the way that she, looked afterwards you're like wow i mean this is yes i I can see where you might be thinking of comedy but i agree i think this was played very straight and and i think effects were terrifying okay well seconds afterward that effect looks incredible i give him that like i love Mm -hmm. the way i love the way it looks right when she gets hit and you're like what the heck but then like the follow-up scene where the bug crawls out of her mouth that's um like that looks so bad. It's one of the worst movie special effects. It's not even it's because it's not even a mask. It's just like on this obviously it is not that bad. I, mean, I don't, think it's, the, yeah. I don't the, think it's I don't think it's that bad either. I, it is I, I, bad. I mean even now I think it is a pretty gnarly looking head. No, and, it and looks that, great, but it looks like it's on a dummy. And so, you know, yeah. like there's no integration with an actor or I don't know. I see. It, uh, I, I, I see what you're saying. It's there, obvious. Well, there it is. It does. It pans back from that to her arms and her like jiggling and stuff. But yeah, I mean, the, with <laughs> with the I mean, with the bugs and crawling out of the mouth into the head. I mean, it's. I mean, I think it's a pretty like, and it's some pretty innovative kills that that I don't. I mean, I had never seen before. I mean, like mm-hmm. snakes and bugs crawling out of a kid's head and you know and and then then the snakes killing his parents i mean that scene (laughs) i mean that that that, you know that scene that um the shock was just talking about in the in the stage room um you know when the family is killed i mean that's probably one of the most effective kills for me the entire series i mean it is Mm -hmm. such a bizarre um it just and you can just feel the pain. I mean, they show real snakes, you know, biting this guy's leg. Yeah, that's which, right. disturbing. Big yeah, and snakes are like my worst fear in the world. So <laughs> every time I see that, I'm just cringing. And, and and the fact that this is all aimed at kids, and the guy's initial reaction is like, "Oh, it's a great joke," you know. I mean, <laughs> yeah. obviously, there's more to it, and we hear that when he <laughs> gives his speech about, um, you know, Halloween, the roots of Halloween, and so forth, which I agree is extremely effective mm-hmm. you know but that whole aspect too that this is kids and you know they, they kind of leave that hanging at the end and, and let's be honest how was he going to possibly stop this <laughs> you know i mean they leave that sort of hanging at the end there it's like did did he stop it didn't he stop it but i can't imagine that he did and 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 you know that's what's even more just imagining what happened after the credits I think you know, it's, it's or, one of the best endings ever. I mean, I'm I'm oh not even kidding God. me. I I mean, yeah. I absolutely love it. Well, hold well, on. What part of the ending are you referring to? Yes, the part that was the lifted directly call. from the. Well, that's just straight yeah, from the Invasion I, of the Body Snatchers. Well, no, I understand. Yeah, well, now let's be honest. The, the original Invasion of the Body Snatchers, they tacked on that crap happy ending okay. to it. Now, okay, see, even the even the '70s though version has the same. 
Well, there's there's no escaping it that Tommy Lee Wallace Wallace was inspired by that. I mean, they did yeah. they they named mm-hmm. the town Santa Mira, which I think is the same town in. Right. Well, yeah. they filmed in the, they filmed most of it in the same town. That the oh, movie that's movie. right. It was filmed at right. the same town as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is an which is yeah. an amazing location as well. But let let's go back to that phone call real quick because that's one of my my biggest problems with this. I have this thing that I do, Kenny, where like if I rent a low budget red box horror. Usually there's a really funny like quote or dialogue and like this movie to me, Halloween three is like if Redbox had existed back then, this would have fit right in to me, I think, because like listen to this quote from the phone call. I mean, guys out there like how does this grab you? Take off the third channel, the third channel. It's still running. Stop it, please. For God's sake, please stop it. There's no more time. You've got to... Please, stop it. Stop it now. Turn it off. Turn it off. Stop it. 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 But Tom, Tom, Tom Atkins signs autographs all day long. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. So, see, right there. That'll tell you. But in context of the movie, with that song playing, by the end of the movie, everyone hates hates that song yeah. and just in reference to that and what i would argue going on by the, the movie, beginning of the movie everybody hits that song. i love it <laughs> I mean, I think it's, it's, it was a little earlier than than the end but um but yeah by the you're end. right yes by the end you're 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 done with it and you're just like i agree with you yeah but how is that not a terrible i mean he just says stop it stop it stop it over and over and it gets to the point where it's comedic unintentionally. Well, how would you have written? Yeah, this? I will say what else would you Well, <laughs> clearly if you say stop it like 30 times and they haven't taken it off the air, that's not convincing them. So maybe try other things by saying like, "Hey, this will trigger a device in these masks that make these kids head turn to mush and oh, erupt snakes. That. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, <laughs> okay, well, by the time you got that out, they're all dead. I, yeah. Well, or I could say stop it 150 times, but like, it's well, just like, it's, he's not getting think, anywhere. I mean, it, was, it was just getting, I, I, all right. I, <laughs> personally, as when, like I said, when I saw this originally, I didn't have a problem with that. And mm-hmm. I still, maybe it's just because that I still don't have a problem with that ending. It's still, for me, it's like, you know, you want us to almost see what happened, you know, after the fact. Well, yeah, know? I mean, that that my biggest problem comes with what do they do next year for their sacrifice when everyone is dead? I mean, just this is just the <laughs> end. And Or here's the other question. Is this only for the West Coast time zone? Because it's pretty late in New York for kids who are. Oh, I've been on. staying up See, to midnight. You gotta have, mm-hmm. you gotta have a little fun with these movies. This is 1982 horror. Like, <laughs> like part of it is just like letting go and watching, you know, like it just a, a simple horror film. But, but as Shock is saying, like at the end of it, there are. It is implying that they're gonna kill millions of children. I mean, right. I think it's a pretty ballsy cool ending for a horror film yeah. i mean sure but, they might have different dialogue or or you know or, or whatever but i mean it just an ending in general it's it's pretty yeah. damn so and i mean if you th- that's what gets you more than anything is the fact that this is all geared towards kids and you got to see what's going to happen 
Exactly. You know, in that in that one scene. And I think it's like, you know, you're like, wow. And and they set it up by showing all the different towns of, you know, okay, obviously I don't think they actually went to those towns, but of all the different towns where the kids are walking around in these masks, just to give Which you an idea. Which is an of, amazing montage, by the way. Yeah, it, mm-hmm. it gives you an idea of how popular, uh, of how widespread this could possibly be. And with that montage, we learned that the uh, kids on the cover art there are actually in Phoenix. Arizona. I took note of that this time around. But, oh, right. yeah. <laughs> but by the way, like th- that's one of my problems with the ending, actually, is that it didn't go far enough. There needed to be one more scene, and I would have been a lot higher on this film. I disagree. I wanted I to see... 110%. I wanted to see his kids' melted heads, yeah. and then that <laughs> that witchy... What? Well, listen. Please. Because obviously, Please. that's supposedly what happened, maybe, uh, you know, and, and then his witchy wife, who wouldn't listen, I wanted to see her, like, flipping out. Which is Nancy Keys from yeah, the original. Don't talk movie. about Nancy <laughs> that way. Yeah. <laughs> but she's witchy in this movie. So, I'm just saying. I like what that rhymes with. <laughs> <laughs> right, well, season Actually, of the witch. surprisingly, I, like... I love her in the original, but I, she was totally miscast in this movie. Yeah. That's mm. one role that did not work for me. It was nice seeing her in the film, but her being, you know, wife to Tom Adkins, it just, it was bizarre, but it was still cool seeing her in the movie. So, Kenny, why didn't you want to see the next step? I, I thought it was kind of the opposite of ballsy as you say i thought it was kind of a castrated ending because i wanted to see them go all the way people again i'm one of those people who i love you know the blair witch project which everyone hates and and i just i just like the implied horror and using your imagination like shock said we we saw that kid's head melt in his mask and snakes (laughs) and bugs crawl out of it and that's all we need to see you know and and the rest um we can just imagine which I mean, to me, like in the Blair Witch Project, is is all the more horror because nothing they could put on screen could really, you know, go with what you're, you know, what you're imagining is going with what on. you're with what you're thinking is is yeah, going to be going on and what you're imagining is happening. I, yeah, well, we've I, already well, seen it in this one too. So I mean, and you're right, we have it's just seen a more it, so. sophisticated ending, Jay. Exactly, and you know, I remember getting it. Very sophisticated. I I remember the 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 book I have about Prince of Darkness, the interviews with John Carpenter, where he's talking about the thing, and there was a screening of the thing, and and he, um, you know, he's fielding questions afterwards, and there was this one girl, a teenage girl. Who raised her hand and said, "Yes, but what happened to them? You know what happened at the end?" And John Carpenter said, "Well, we're kind of leaving that up to your imagination as to what you think. You know, is are they this? Are they that? Or what it is?" And the girl's response: "Oh God, I hate that." Well, you know what? I mean, <laughs> to me, that's the best. That I mean, this was like this is where I think it ended exactly where it had to end. You're going to show all the kids. I mean, you want to know, hey. Maybe he did, and now you're building it up in your head. You look at the scenario. Maybe he stopped it here, but maybe there are still certain towns where it happened or whatever. But you're building it up in your head. I don't know that they needed to go any further than that. They had done that, like, you know, Josh was saying, and Kenny was saying, they showed you what happened. They showed you what was going to happen. Why show it again? I mean, I think they would have, I think it would have even, I think it would have weakened the movie if they took it to that extreme if they instead of ending it when they when they did oh man well, okay. and another thing this movie does really well from the very start that opening music that dreadful um you know music that comes in which i think is some of the best music in the franchise and i think this 
movie does a great job from the beginning building tension with the characters and the themes throughout it to like that climactic end, you know, ending where he's just yelling stop. And, you know, to me, it's, it builds and builds and builds and it, it really works. For me personally, I think the big problem that, that fans had with the, and maybe I'm, you know, uh, Kenny, you, you'd know this a little bit more than I would. It's not even that the name Halloween was in it. I think it was the number three. You know, because we had one and two with Michael Myers. You throw number three on there, and obviously they're expecting something more with Michael Myers. If it was just Halloween season of the witch, yeah, you'd still have a few of that. But it's putting the number three on there, you're telling people, here's the third movie in Halloween. And I think that might be what got people upset. And I, I don't know who had made that decision to do that. Because honestly, I would have loved to see them continue doing what John Carpenter wanted to do. A new story every year. That would have been awesome. Not that I didn't enjoy when they went back to Michael Myers. I like those as well. But for them to do that new story and come out with something new and possibly continue other ones, that would have been great. Yeah, I agree. I mean, honestly, when I, when I really... And it's, and look, people, I live in the Myers house, so I'm a crazy Halloween fan, but I struggle with like what movies could have came out of that to the movies that we got after Halloween three, which I think there's some great ones there. But I would just I would have loved to seen so much so many more original movies that take place on Halloween because like my feature horror film, Honey Spider, it takes place on Halloween. I like it's my nice. favorite subgenre of horror. Like I love stuff that's yeah. centered around the holiday. But. Well, and let me ask you that, Kenny. What's your opinion on this? Why do you think that there aren't more horror films that are actually set on Halloween or have the backdrop of Halloween? Doesn't that just make sense? It's amazing to me how relatively few horror films are set on Halloween. Well, I mean, there's there there are a ton of them. A lot of them are on the indie level. I have like a huge list that I that I've compiled, and and more and more have been coming out in recent years. But I mean, a lot of the mainstream movies just wouldn't do that because it would be associated with Halloween, and it's hard. You know, it, I think it's hard enough to stand out, and it's. I mean, mm. I is mean, it it's cliche? Sort of a tricky thing. I mean. A lot of people would see it as cliche, but at the same time, um, you know, everyone, that's when they watch horror movies. They watch in October right now, right? you right. know, it, it is when they do it. I mean, it's just sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. And a lot of it has to do with, you know, with budget too. like to, to make a movie look like it's, just, you know, takes place in Halloween. It's just a whole nother thing that you have to, you know, you have to do. That list you've compiled uh, would you be willing to share that with the horror movie podcast audience? Because I'd post it in the show notes. Oh yeah, sure. I yeah, post it on the on the Myers House stuff. But yeah, there's there's a lot nice. of good ones, man. Um, nice. And yeah, I think I I told you like there's a movie All Hallows um, Eve that came out last year. That's Ooh. a solid little indie movie. We love it, um, don't we? Yeah, yeah we, we we reviewed that. Yeah, and I I really enjoyed that with that clown. Yeah, that's, that to so, me is that to me is one of the creepiest clowns I've I've seen in in, in a movie, and I think that guy did an awesome job mm-hmm. uh, portraying that clown. Yeah, I don't know. It's a good question. I don't know why why more don't take place, especially like you know the big movies. But um, I don't. know. Hopefully, we'll start the recent, seeing the recent Trick or Treat is uh, is excellent. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah, I mean they're out there for sure. I mean, there's some there's some good movies. Well, let's talk about the the themes then in here that you guys were referring to. Like, for example, um, the concept of 
killing children like or the idea of genocide period is uh any sort of genocide is scary and we don't really tackle it there aren't a lot of movies that tackle this kind of thing and maybe that's due to the holocaust and stuff like that but in this movie um i i think that's an awesome and bold move as you've said but i think because the motivations are a little bit murky and not very well established it turns our villain here um, it, it, this Cochrane character, it turns him into a little bit more of a James Bond villain where he's like, well, I want to conquer the world, you know, I want to kill all the kids, you know, versus like some deeply disturbed sicko. What do you guys say? I mean, I think it, it, it rides that line of, you know, fantasy thrown in with a little bit of sci-fi with the realistic element that works. Cause I mean, I think a straight movie just about killing kids is pretty bleak. I mean, who wants to watch that? Let's be honest. <laughs> you know, but with the way they do it here, it's kind of, like you said, I mean, it's it's kind of a guy just, you know, it, sort of, you can see it as just wants to take over the world or whatever, but there's this whole killing kids backdrop to it, but it's it's not explained. It's not in the forefront of the movie, which I think works for it. It's, it's a lot of it is left to your you know up to your imagination, except for that one um, scene with that you know with that boy, which is it, you know it's horrific and it's memorable. That's what people uh-huh. talk about. But do you do you think they made that kid's personality obnoxious on purpose so the audience would swallow it a little bit easier? Well, I I don't know. Look at his parents. I think it was just sort of a natural extension from the parents. I, I didn't think the parents were all that great either. No, I, I know, but yeah. since these are fictitious characters, Dave, well, I, mean, I think they, <laughs> well, yeah, I think but, he was really influenced by those people. So, so he was obviously written that no, way, but, but the character was influenced by those characters. And that's right. why he was written that way. But that's what I'm saying. Do you think they wrote them obnoxiously so we could handle it better? I mean, in other words, he wasn't this cute little sweet little boy that they took out. <laughs> oh, I'm sure that helps. I mean, it's like, um, it's, yeah. from, from what I've like read in interviews and stuff, that family was kind of, it was kind of the comic relief of the film. You know, they they were dressed more outrageously. They were over the top driving their Winnebago, really loud, you know, family. And yeah, and I'm sure it, it didn't help, you know, in the end that they were annoying. So, you know. It also helps that okay. we know he, he doesn't actually love his wife or children. So like it's <laughs> You got you got that. You learned that pretty quick, didn't you? We don't feel too bad about it when his kids die either. <laughs> <laughs> That's terrible. Oh, that, that cracks me up. Now, it's interesting to me. I mean, obviously, this is set in California. And unlike the previous two films, this is another thing that kind of strayed. Is like the previous two films took place on Halloween. And this goes from like October 23rd to Halloween. And it leads up to Halloween. And um, do, do you guys think that made any difference? Do you think it weakened it or strengthened it that we spent time leading up to Halloween and not on Halloween? If, if there was any, if there was anything I, I would have, it's like some of those days were very short. Mm-hmm. You know, like you got one or two scenes during the day and maybe they could have started it a little bit closer. But no, I think it worked all right. I, I, I you know, I, I understand why they did that. Instead of just having it on Halloween, like the previous two movies were, mm-hmm. you know that that there was this buildup because you you would you would need that buildup to explain 
why these characters, how they got out there, you know, the research and everything like that. I don't think you could have pulled that all off in one day. So you had to back it up a little bit. Maybe they backed it up a little too much. Yeah. Anything they could have backed it up more because they need to explain how they're making enough masks for all the children in the country when they're hand pouring the, 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 <laughs> the silicon for these masks. They're back. <laughs> We're all worried about time zones and production efficiency. They had a whole, they had a whole army of robots making masks. They just totally justified. Yeah, let's talk about those. So, um, you know, I, I, I would be tempted to say that this movie you know, borrowed or stole a lot from Terminator, but this preceded the Terminator. And and it's so interesting because like even the soundtrack is very similar. So it almost makes me think that the Terminator was a little bit influenced by this, but those uh, automaton people, it's like, um, those were, well, this is about body snatcher movie. And you know, that's uh Stepford wise basically, Mm -hmm. but it was a huge weak weakness for me for this film because uh, I just, um, number one, they weren't scary. Uh, and I picked up right away. It's like, okay, they have them stand and stare kind of like we saw Michael Myers do, you know, they would like watch from afar and they'd be this quiet force, you know? And I wondered if they were trying to like riff on him or maybe draw upon Michael Myers a little bit, but I, I really felt like the robots were, um, a huge weakness because actually this film it really starts getting juicy. It starts getting good at about the 70 minute mark. But I'm like, wow, that first hour and 10 minutes, it's a long way to the well, I think. I disagree. I really enjoyed the whole lead up. (laughs) Okay. Tell me why. Tell me why. I think all that stuff is great at the beginning. I think you've got some awesome kills. The kill in the hospital room is Amazing that really awkward kill that starts out the movie is hilarious uh, with a slow moving vehicle. Um, there's I, I like the kind of hang, I like hangout movies, so I love this idea of them kind of being on this case and trying to figure out the mystery and hanging out in this weird little motel with these other guests and trying to con the front desk guy. It feels like a scene from Psycho at that moment, and so I, I think it's a fun little adventure. I you know that's that's that doesn't enter into my many problems with the movie but i i do you know I, for me my, my biggest problem is i love body snatcher movies it's, they're my favorite subgenre probably and so to see it kind of bungled here i think in terms of just plot um that that's annoying um for me you know i think i think it's obvious for me that they got the robot thing from um from the stepford wives though i mean that's mm-hmm. a yeah it's a pretty similar look and they clearly were referencing a lot of these body snatcher uh, films. Um, yeah. What do you say, Kenny? You said you disagreed too. You like the automatons pretty well. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I think they work from the, you know, from the very beginning, it's such a interesting like opening when you watch it, you know, a guy's running with a Halloween mask and you have these kind of guys standing still in suits. It's such a weird, um, sort of contrast to this grungy area that they're in and um you know and, and like the way uh, josh said like the first kill this guy kind of just gets crushed by a car and falls over <laughs> then you yeah. go into this hospital you know and you have this crazy you know commercial coming in these guys in suits come in the hospital and that kill is just again it's one of the best kills to me i mean he just kind of yeah. reaches in this guy's eye sockets <laughs> pull, comes behind his nose and pulls and breaks his nose i mean it is so effective and mm-hmm. yeah. just 
and then and then he goes out in the parking lot and he lights himself on fire and the car blows up. I mean, I think that's a pretty gnarly opening, you know, yeah. to a movie. Yeah. It's very interesting. It's like, you know, what is going on here? But I would and agree it establishes that, the mystery. It establishes the mystery of yeah, you know what absolutely. what what exactly yeah. is happening here. And then I love the way the movie opens. It just throws you right in this guy running down, you know, this guy running from something. You have no idea what, you have no idea what's going on at this point. And it's just basically saying, okay, we're going to, we're going to show you, but we're going to start it here. And you just got to sort of keep up. And then eventually, you know, it'll, it'll explain itself. Yeah. And I'll agree. Like the robots, they weren't very creepy, but I think there was enough going on and, and with the way people were killed and the mystery with the music, um, you know, that was effective. It was interesting. It never bored me at any part. And then especially at the end when, you know, he starts like pulling it, you know, in their insides and, and they have like this, like orange goo coming out of them. <laughs> I mean, it's, uh, I think at the, you know, at the end it works really well, but I mean, they're robots, mm-hmm. they're standing still. They're not going to be that interesting. They're kind of just um, supposed to keep your attention, which I think this movie does, you know, throughout nope. the entire film. Now, yeah. one thing, one thing I will say is that he had probably the best, or probably the luckiest toss with that mask. Yeah, was <laughs> they, they did. I think they did over. They did over forty takes to get that to really? get him throwing that on the camera. <laughs> wow! So they actually did it as a, an actual take where he. he yeah, made they it. did. Yeah, I think they did it over forty times. It took him. And to was, do now, that. did they do it from him sitting in the chair? That's what got me is his hands were even still kind of constricted. I'm not, yeah, I'm not sure. Part. It's, it's <laughs> funny. When I was younger, I didn't even think twice about it. <laughs> it's like, oh, perfect. Right. <laughs> wow. But it, and, and, and I really love in the movie when, when there's that sort of aha moment with the robots is when, you know, uh, Tom Atkins' character, he's broke, he broke into the factory and he opens this door and there's this old lady like knitting, like knitting a sweater, and she, she's like lit, you know, just really. It's very interesting. It looks very bizarre, and she's moving in this weird way. And he starts mm-hmm. like yelling at her, and shakes her, and her head falls off. And she's a robot. And I just remember that as a kid, it was just such a creepy little scene. And then right mm-hmm. after that, the robots come in, and that's when you know his character finds out what's going on, which I thought was a great sort of way to. Just you know, just sort of lay that out in the movie. Mm-hmm. That is a creepy scene. I'd definitely give you that. I mean, after Psycho, when you see an old lady sitting in a <laughs> a, a rocking chair, that's always kind of creepy. Yeah, no, like and it's in the middle of this factory. It's just it's really bizarre. Just the way it's revealed, I think, is is really nice. And then you know, Con- Connell Cochran's sort of attitude after that. He doesn't even sort of look. He's so disgusted this guy broke his his antique his antique robot but again and and his acting i think is i mean there's not the you know uh, stacy neilkin who plays ellie her acting isn't you know 100 percent solid through this movie i'm not gonna say it is but um you know dan o'herley um who plays connell cochran i think it's just he's flawless he he makes such a good villain in this movie Absolutely agree. Yeah, me too. Okay, so I have a few other things I want to ask you guys about, and um, you know, or at least comment on. No, number one, I like how they managed to slip in a harbinger of doom, 
so to speak, in this film, the guy who is running in the beginning with the Halloween mask, he kind of serves as that harbinger of doom. And a lot of horror movies have that. And I just thought that was cool that they worked that in. Another thing that I love that I want to really do some research on this one of these days, maybe write a nerdy paper on this or something, but um, I love it when cartoons are in horror movies and this has cartoons in it. And um, the guy's sitting in a bar watching cartoons and man, I I, I can't even explain it, but the contrasts when I see that in a horror film, I get really happy and excited because it just, it, it totally takes me in a place where I'm vulnerable to the horror because you know I, I watched cartoons big time when i was younger and so when i see cartoons on you guys i'm ready to watch cartoons you know <laughs> so then it's a horror movie they kind of trick me with that so what do you got what do you guys think about them you know doing a nod to halloween so people cannot say that michael myers is not in this film because he is in this film. <laughs> yeah. so self-aggrandizing you know, I, little moment there but yeah i mean do, like do you think like in in retrospect i mean you know and then they were trying to do a nod and be like okay you know we love halloween one and two as well but uh-huh. we're trying to do something original here i think you know in context of in context of what they were trying to do like showing those clips you know, I think it's cool. I don't I, like looking back out on back at it now. I don't really think it needs to be there, but it's a nice wink to the audience. Yeah, I, mean, I don't. I don't think it hurts anything. You know, uh, mm-hmm. having it in there. And you're right. It's it is. It's it's just sort of people saying, okay, we're this is the series. You know, we're continuing on with it here. And uh, I don't know what other movie. Well, I guess you could have put any other movie in there, but yeah. uh, I think I think it's fine. I think mm-hmm. it works okay. You know. Yeah, I guess it helps tie it together, and I do like the fact that they were, you know, giving tribute or whatever, but it is a risky move if you're not going to have a Michael Myers in the film as an active character, because it's like reminding people what they used to have, but what they no longer have in this movie. (laughs) I'm just saying. I see see what you're saying, but no, I think for me, it just all for me comes back to that number three. I mean, if if this was just Halloween season of the witch, I think it might have softened the blow. Just putting that number three on there. Yeah, had I think it might have softened the, the blow. Yeah, going into the theater thinking, oh, good, this is the third movie because one and two were about Michael Myers. So you throw the number three on there, you're making it part of the series. Mm-hmm. You know, even though it's it's part of Halloween and yet not is what they were shooting for. They wanted Halloween themed movies, just different, you know just carrying them forward with, with different ideas and, and putting that number three on there. And I could see somebody, I mean, I don't know if you know, Kenny, who, whose idea it was to put number three on there. I'm thinking it would have been one of the money guys. Yeah, you know? I mean, it, it had to have been a, you know, obviously a strategic sort of promotion. You know, I mean, if, if Halloween one and two is successful, from a money standpoint, you're going to put three no matter what the movie ends up being. And that's what it, and then... And then, unfortunately, it killed that idea by doing it's that. It's funny it, that they say that this movie was a, a, a complete flop because, I, I mean, it was only in theaters, I think, a week. But the, right. I think the budget was $2.5 million, but mm-hmm. it made like $14 million yeah. in, in, right. in the opening week. I mean, so, I mean, I see that, you know, as a financial success. So, I, I guess it just got panned critically, so. It was also just the least successful of the series so far. So yeah, that's true. Well, Josh, when when we had when we were talking about planning out these episodes and so forth, 
you had actually mentioned possibly skipping this film altogether, and I oh. just wanted to get your feelings on that, Josh. Why, why did you um, suggest that? I mean, I kind of touched on that in the beginning. It's not that I don't like the movie. I love this movie, actually. But it's just I don't I've, – I've had a kind of a tortured <laughs> backstory of inc- trying to figure out how to include this in my appreciation of the franchise. And as we found out on the last episode, I have very convoluted ways I try to make sense of some of the inconsistencies <laughs> in this franchise. So, um, it, yeah. Go ahead, and- and I was just interestingly enough on on my blog, I have covered Halloween one, two, four, and five, but I have yet to get around to Halloween three. And again, yeah. it's not because I don't like the movie. I was just going forward with the series, you know. And and I will eventually get around to covering this movie because I do enjoy it that much. Um, but I skipped over it as well on the blog just from a series standpoint, trying to continue on with the Michael Myers. Uh, mm-hmm you know, uh, uh, story. Yeah. Uh, but, um, but that doesn't take anything away from the movie, you know, and it's not, and it is, it is one that will eventually be on there. Yeah. And I mean, you wouldn't have Halloween four if you didn't have Halloween three. I mean, this movie shaped, you know, I mean, shaped. It, for, for good or bad, it, it brought the shape back to everyone. So, right. um, <laughs> I like what you did there. That was great. I mean, for me, the I actually thing- didn't do that on purpose. But I appreciate <laughs> that that's a good point too, because there would have not, there would have, they would have let Michael Myers die in an explosion, and that would have been the end of it. There would have not have been Michael Myers' return if Halloween Three did not, if the reaction to Halloween Three wasn't what it was. You're right. There would have that Michael Myers would have been done, and it, we would have. Uh, I don't know that we would have ranked him alongside uh, the the Jasons and the Freddies because yeah, he would have been in two like, films. There was no huge, huge franchise, so it's, right. it's you can't really fault the people. I mean, they were trying everything about this movie. They were trying to do something good and positive and original. It just you know back then there wasn't these huge mega franchises. I mean, all that came in the mid, you know, late eighties. So mm-hmm. but, yeah. Well, and speaking to the Michael Myers thing, um, I noticed, of course, John Carpenter still does the music for this. And you can see, I mean, you can pick up some of the, I guess, the lesser known themes. I mean, there are still familiar little riffs in this movie, but it doesn't play the main theme that that I detect. And, and it's I think that's because that's Michael Myers' recitative. I mean, that's his calling card. So right. is is that why you guys think it's not in there? I think he was going for something completely different. Yeah, he was just yeah. trying to give this movie its own sound. Okay. But at the same time, it I mean, it it sounds, you know, straight from John Carpenter's music of the time. Oh, yeah. Escape to New York, The Fog. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's all sort of right there. But but again, I'm glad they do something different. This is one of my favorite sound, I mean, probably actually my favorite soundtrack. Of and I and series. I do love when when John Carpenter does the music there's just something about the the type of music he does for the movie that that fits it and uh so drives it a couple more gripes you guys some i mean i'm not i'm not here to attack this film but honestly i would love to hear from the listeners what the listeners think and maybe this is a good poll question when you know do do you love or hate halloween three or middle of the road i don't know i i it's just interesting to hear how people react to it Mm-hmm. But number one, did you guys think 
that in the surprise battle with Ellie at the end, when you ended up having the arms and all this, like, did you think that that got to be comedic? Because I'm like, this is um, funny to me, but I think it's unintentionally funny. No, it. I mean, it is. <laughs> I yeah. that is what well, is one scene that that gets pretty funny. But <laughs> I'm just not sure if it's unintentionally funny. I think I think that all the humor that we detect in the movie, I think, is intentional. I mean, that's yeah, that's so. just. Yeah, I don't. But, I don't think it's. I think it. I don't think it's an intentional. Well, think about it. I mean, you've got. <clears throat> first of all, this is coming out around the same time as Creep Show. We're talking about like a horror anthology. Um, you know, I think this movie feels more like it belongs in the creep show world than it does in the Halloween world, um, just offhand. But also Joe Dante was signed on to direct this movie initially. Like if you imagine Joe Dante so directing this movie. That would have been so <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, but I you wouldn't them. even you wouldn't even think twice <laughs> about the comedy being intentional if Joe Dante had directed it, right? I, that, that's I think they were aware. Yeah. Absolutely, of what they were doing. I mean, uh, an arm is crawling and, and and stuff like that. Yeah. But I don't think it was meant to be straight up horror comedy. I think it's supposed to be, you know, kind of a, a little lighthearted and over the top. But when you look at the the rest of the movie as a whole, again, I think it's pre- played pretty pretty straight. But I mean, that Shamrock sh- song, just for starters, it's so over-the-top ridiculous. I just feel like there's no way you write that song and put it in your movie 15 to 20 times without realizing, like, this is funny. Like, this is, we're getting, we're mining this for a little, yeah. for a little annoyance, right. funny factor. I See, I interpret that song a lot differently than you do. I think they were going for kind of creepy, you know, because when you have a childlike kitty song, you know how clowns can be creepy, it, it's a similar thing there. It's like, it's this cutesy song and it's either childlike or it's creepy and weird. I, I think it's both. I, I mean, yeah. I think it's both, but. Okay. Oh. Okay, Josh, now you can, you can at least back me on this, I hope. Um, <laughs> I have this huge complaint in movies and it happens in this movie too. Um, so in that big scene when we see the demise of Cochrane, where you've got this, the, the giant stone hinge stone and then you've got this beam of blue light around the circle and then it goes to his head. Here again, we have a big inexplicable explosion of power in the end of our movie to try to resolve everything in them. And that's, that's one of my pet peeves in films is when they try to like um, just wrap it up with this weird explosion and it's like, what? To be fair, they didn't wrap this yeah. up that yeah. Oh, and they did have the misfire at the beginning with the same sort of ramifications. Yeah, ram- well, yeah, like a small explosion. So it and he threw in all the computerized chips. So it, I mean, <laughs> it would be a large blue <laughs> '80s tastic CGI explosion. But that's true. I'll give you that. But as with other movies that end in a big inexplicable explosion, it ended up taking out the bad guy, quote unquote. You know, so. But to really no effect. I mean, it, that's the kind of the point is it doesn't stop the bad guy. Again, like the ending of, um, you know, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the threat is basically unstoppable. Hmm. Right. Interesting. Okay. Well, but yeah, that is, that is a total cop out when movies do that. But I think this one was, give it a little credit. It was written a little bit better than just a giant explosion at the end. And everyone's all happy. and Yeah. yeah. 
you know. Well, I think you're being generous, though, uh, because the whole Stonehenge <laughs> thing is right. I mean, that's funny. It's but so bad. Oh, the Stonehenge the Stone- thing is so bad. The Stonehenge thing, I, I, I will admit now looking at it, it's a little bit like, okay, <laughs> I don't know that that was necessary. I don't know that the Stonehenge thing it's is so, necessary. It's totally not necessary, but it's it's interesting to me, you know, that they're using the. I mean, I can't help it, man. I, I like, it's, and, and it's it kind of even goes back because I think uh, John Carpenter and Deborah Hill got the idea for the fog when they visited Stonehenge, yeah, in England. You know, when they saw the the fog rolling over, and I've been to Stonehenge before, Ooh. um, and it's an interesting. It, it is a really interesting place to visit. Now, see, when if I was been there, there, wouldn't they know it's not in Ireland? Well, yes, yes, I would. I would think so. I would think they would know that it, it's it's in England. Um, but uh, no, it's a fascinating thing. I mean, when I was there, and I'm sure it's the way it is now. Is it's sort of, you know, uh, it's roped off. You can't really approach the stones. You can't touch the stones. You're just around the perimeter of it. Um, and they gave you this little walkie-talkie that you would hit number two. You'd stand there at where the, the sign on the ground's at number two. You'd hit number two, and you'd hear a narrator telling you about it. And Telling you, you about know. Halloween 3? No. no. <laughs> <laughs> or, or I don't think they mentioned <laughs> that. Or did they tell you about like, I think he mentioned how they lent, um, how they lent the production of that movie one of their stones. Uh, they're still waiting yeah. for it to come back. Yeah, <laughs> <Nice>. now, <laughs> but I mean, at least in Halloween 3, that they did tie it back to the Halloween folklore and a place of sacrifice, which I think was pretty cool. I mean, at least they did. Right. I mean, they don't know exactly what Stonehenge is, but yes, there is ideas of, of you know, it's, it's obviously, I think, I think really what it is is a, is a, what is it, a calendar, you know, because the moon really does fit into those slots <laughs> at the different times of the year. You know, mm-hmm. each month in one of those uh, areas of of, but um, but still, it there is a, a mystique to it, and there is a a bit of a creepy mystique to it because I think it used to be in the middle of the woods. Yeah, and you know, you know if you haven't felt. heard it, the uh, on the fog DVD, Deborah Hill tells the story about coming up with the you know the idea of the movie The Fog while being at Stonehenge, and it's a really she tells it really well. Actually, it's a, kind of a creepy story but um nice. so I, yeah i don't i like the idea of them trying to tie it back to well sam hayne as they say here again and um and i like the i don't mind i like the idea that stonehenge is a creepy place i would just suggest that maybe it's not the most organic fit into this other story they're trying to tell about the production of these masks yeah especially and, since it's so difficult to get that giant stone over there well it's just <laughs> Jay, come on that's not what this movie says. Sorry. <laughs> and he and he even did say you'll never guess uh, you, you won't yeah. believe how we got it <laughs> it's i mean it, it's it's not necessary it's hard to to defend for sure but i mean one thing i like about you know this movie and i like about a lot of other films is just the fact that they didn't try to explain every single little, you know, detail of the plot and what they're doing, you know, that just to leave it up, you know, to people's, you know, imagination. I mean, I, I don't know. I think it was, I mean, I liked the way it was written. I think it flowed well. You know, the build was good. I think this is a solid movie and I'll defend it forever. Let's think about, let's think about the next horror film to tap into this rich Stonehenge magic. Yes. Um, I believe it's Troll 2 is the next one that really goes for it. <laughs> wow. Oh, that's great. <laughs> I love that. Uh, okay, so, um, so are you guys ready to wrap up with our final thoughts and ratings here on Halloween 3? Sure. Because sure. I don't want to cut anybody off because 
Miss Kenny, we can talk about this as long as you <laughs> as you need to, as you want to. No, that's good. Okay, I'm fine. <laughs> He's like, I think, I'm, I think I'm, I've, I've convinced a couple people out there. Please, like, send me an email if I convince you at all to rewatch this. That's awesome. All right, well, let's. Um, I'll, I guess I'll go first because it sounds like I'm the I'm the most negative. I think that's what Josh likes me You're to so do. Negative. Yeah, I'm so negative. I'm such a mean <laughs> meanie. Anyway, um, I, I will give this credit for a, a at least one thing is I love here again, yet I love this poster art. It's one of my favorite covers when I was little. I um, I actually had this experience with this film where if you look at the art, you've got that face in there with those, you know, the streaks going up. And it's like, oh, that, that was in my head for so long. There were a number of years, I don't remember how old I was, but that image was in my head with those freaky looking trick-or-treaters below, but I couldn't place what the movie was. And so then when I rediscovered it again and found it, oh, Halloween 3, of course, um, it was pretty neat. So I've, you know, the cover resonates with me. So I, I do love the covers of Halloween 2 and 3, which I've said. But I will say, I don't think, I mean, even if you completely remove this from the Halloween franchise and Michael Myers and stuff, I think that it's not a great, it's not a great horror movie. It, it's, it's, I think it's really has a flavor or a feel of a made for TV horror movie. I, I really, I don't know if you could have done some of that stuff on TV. That, that they no. were doing this well, movie. I, and I think Dean Cundy's cinematography alone is yeah. leaps and bounds above what you're yeah. going to see on TV. Well, Okay, both of those points are good, but I'm just saying it has that flavor to me. It has that feel. It looks made for TV esque. I think it's the actors that bring the, bring that. Yeah, and the song and the kind of maybe a lot of that might yeah. play into the TV. Maybe about yeah. So and and so I mean, if people had never seen this ever, and if they asked me as a horror fan, they said, you know, is this really worth watching if you've never seen it? I'd probably say, no, not really. I mean, it's only a Halloween movie by name, and and like its association with the holidays in the film, and I do appreciate that. I, I love the plot about taking out the kids and how they do it, but man, we don't really get to that until the 70-minute mark. At that point, there's only like 28 minutes left of the film. If it had started right there, and then we had a feature film, we'd be in business, and I'd love this thing, but... I mean, it's just as much a part of the Halloween franchise as something like Trick or Treat or Trick or Treat or anything else that's set on Halloween. Um, it, yeah. I just want to say again, it really did bug me. I know you guys were totally vehemently disagreeing with me on this, but it bugged me that they stopped short at the end and didn't show us a final blow. That, that, that ticks me off a lot about this movie. And so, I mean, for me, this is a three out of ten. And I say, uh, I say, avoid Halloween three, season of the witch. (laughs) So that's me. What do you say, Wolfman Josh? All right. Well, um, I almost go the opposite of you. I think as a standalone horror movie, this is a lot of fun. I think a lot of my problems with it historically have come in because of its relation to what I really consider to be the Michael Myers franchise. You know, that's that's what I love about the Halloween movies. The other thing I love about the Halloween movies are that they're set in all American towns around Halloween 
And, you know, okay, sure, a lot of them weren't actually filmed in the fall, but they were able to ship in some fall colors a lot of the time. And uh, there aren't a ton of trick-or-treaters, but, you know, you get your trick-or-treaters. And for me, the weirdness about this movie is for being what they hope to be the first and kind of a continuing franchise of Halloween-themed films, it's really pretty far removed from any kind of organic feeling you know, you get at Halloween time, like the t- part we all talked about liking when it shows the trick or treaters for a few moments, like that's pretty rare in a movie that has like these weird businessmen and robots and factories and all this other <laughs> stuff. But I, I do like, you know, I do like this idea of the masks. Um, I feel like, I, you know, the actual ramifications of that with the snakes and, and bugs and everything is really cool looking. There's amazing kills in this movie. The Dean Cundey photography is awesome. There's a lot to like about this movie, but it's also ridiculous. And I think it's pretty terribly written, if I had to say so. And I think everything that's well-written about it basically is just stolen straight from Invasion of the Body Snatchers, including that ending. And I think everything else um, is really poor. Uh, so that that's kind of my biggest critique with the movie. I, I'm not somebody that... I give horror films a pass in terms of my own personal pleasure, but I can still kind of talk objectively about them. And I think it's a pretty poorly written film uh, generally. Now, again, separating that, I think my objective rating for the film is probably about a 4.5, but I still think it's a must watch and it's a buy. And I think um, if you like stuff like Creepshow uh, or like Joe Dante's films, you might enjoy the theme, you know, the uh, the tone of this film. I think that's kind of tonally where it's at. And you know, I like movies like The Stuff, and I like yes. even Troll <laughs> Two, and I like They Live. And this movie is very similar to those. And to its credit, it predates those movies. So even though it's ripping off Invasion of the Body Snatchers, it's you know, it it predates all those other movies that seem to riff on it a little bit. So. Um, yeah, I mean, if you like the stuff, this is better than the stuff. It's not quite they live, but you know, it's a, it's a solid, fun horror film that you can like. Uh, like, uh, you know, we said it's it's got a bit of that cheese factor, but um, you know, it's it, you can laugh at it. I probably laugh at it more than anything else, but it's also got some pretty gruesome kills. It's got some really cool, um, mysterious moments, and and I like it a lot. Hmm. Hey, Wolfman Josh says four point five out of 10 but it's a must watch and he says buy it okay dr shock what do you say all right well first let me address you uh, one of the things jay when you throw out the <laughs> 70 minute mark that well, nothing mm-hmm. happened until the you know when you say 40 <laughs> minutes 50 minutes 70 minutes you give the impression that it's my dinner with andre until we get to the <laughs> 70 minute mark and that's not the case with this movie there's plenty mm-hmm. happening there are kills there's mystery Heads are um, popping off. I, I, exactly. I never. Atticus ass. No, no, no. Right there. <laughs> on the screen. Wait, wait. Mysterious lingerie showing up for no apparent reason. Here's the thing. I There's never a said. Suck. I mean, that's pretty nice. <laughs> I never said nothing happens. I just. No, I know, but you're saying. Okay, well, exactly. Give me your quote one more time. I just wanted to say I didn't like the automaton part, the robot part. Okay. So the okay. first 70 minutes with the robots, I didn't like those. But okay. I, I love the film when it became about the kids and the masks and, you know, the last 28 minutes. Okay. All right. Fair enough. But uh, to me, I did I enjoyed the beginning of the movie. I enjoyed the middle and I enjoyed the end of it. 
Um, yes, there is a cheese factor to it, but I love that uh, about this. You know, it's, a, it's a, a lot of those type of movies from that, that time period, like The Fun House. You know, to, to Toby Hooper's The Fun House. That's a very cheesy movie, but there's something about that that I enjoy as well. And I actually <laughs> like Halloween 3 more than I like, you know, The Fun House. It's a nostalgic. I watched this a lot when I was on when it was on cable. And I remember seeing it and I remember really being affected by that scene uh, with the kid in the mask with his family and, and that test room in particular. But also just the whole idea that they're going after kids. And that's what the, the whole plan is. Um, so is it a perfect movie? No, but it is a fun movie. I enjoyed it and I'm going to give it, I'm actually going to give it a 7.5 and I'm going to say, yep, this is something that you can buy. And I think it's a shame what happened to the movie because I would have liked to have seen the idea, the, the plan of what John Carpenter wanted to do continue. I'm not upset that we got more Halloween movies with Michael Myers, not at all. But I would have liked to have seen maybe the two series sort of branch out like Michael Myers continue in one way and still have these every Halloween, a new sort of movie come out with with a new story. I would have liked to have seen that happen as well. And I think it's a shame that that we didn't get that. And a lot of it is, I think, just that number three. You know, it did just it, it really affected what happened with the movie. So I'm going to go 7.5. I do enjoy it, and um, I say it's a buy, and I think you, you definitely got to see it. <laughs> okay. Dr. Shock, 7.5 out of 10, buy it. And now for the Pumpkin King, Kenny Caperton. Straighten us out, buddy. You tell us. All right, man. Great <laughs> music, great kills. The masks are amazing. It's beautifully shot. I love the story. It has a great ending. The song's catchy. has robots. It has an awesome build. It's a nine in my book. Get the um, the Scream Factory Blu-ray. It's amazing. And you know what? I agree with you on that one. Definitely get the Scream Factory Blu-ray because that's what I have, and it is amazing. I like that one. <laughs> that is hilarious. Nine. Nine out of ten, and he says buy it, but buy the Scream Factory Blu-ray. Okay, there you buy go. Buy the VHS. Buy, buy whatever. Yeah. <laughs> so, buy every other movie that Tom Atkins is in first, though. Yeah, Night of the Creeps. Get that too while you're at it. Night yeah. of the Creeps, The Fog, absolutely. Even like Escape from New York and Lethal Weapon, probably first. <laughs> so, so that is our feature review for Halloween 3 Season of the Witch. And seriously, we would love to hear the listener comments on this, like specifically for this film. So in the comments, um, for this episode please you know weigh in and tell us what you think that would be two awesome. questions do you like it and is it good those are the those are the two things i want to know do you like it is it good okay. those are different <laughs> right as we can tell by your interesting rating split there yes okay well at this point we're gonna let our friend kenny caperton go but before you go buddy will you just tell us all your plugs where can people find you where can they catch up with you and just run through it again in case they missed it absolutely well first thanks so much jay for having me on the show my favorite time of the year i love doing stuff and talking to other horror fans when i built this house i mean that's how i met all of you guys i've met a ton of amazing people through living in this house and it's still happening so i love it but but yeah check um everything out myers house nc on um at myershousenc.com like for all the parties and everything that's going on and please if you like halloween horror films check out my movie honey spider that's coming out this uh october at honeyspidermovie.com so, all right buddy 
Well, thanks for being here, and we hope you'll come back. Will you join us again in the future? Absolutely. All right. Well, I hope you had a good time. A lot of fun. (laughs) All right. All right. Well, it was great talking to you, and you have a good night. Bye, guys. Happy Halloween. Okay, we have a special giveaway that we're running this month to celebrate Halloween and our Halloween extravaganza. I think you're going to dig this. If you listen to our precursor podcast, the weekly horror movie podcast, specifically episode 22, there's an interview on there with Ben Scrivens, who is the mastermind behind Fright Rags, which is a company that makes very nice horror t-shirts. You can find them at fright-rags.com. Anyway, I contacted them and I asked if they would like to donate a couple of t-shirts to help us celebrate this Halloween extravaganza and they kindly agreed. I thought that was super cool of them. Now, I don't know what they're sending us yet exactly, what kind of shirts, but I told them, you know, Halloween shirts might be good since that's what we're reviewing and so we'll see what they send. But I'll tell you right now how to enter this drawing, which we're going to hold on Halloween Day. All you got to do is email us two things. Number one, where you're listening from. And the reason we want to know that is because we can put your city on the back of our horror movie podcast t-shirt, which will be forthcoming. And number two, your top five Halloween franchise movies in order. So like the best at number one. And remember, you can just look at the sidebar on our website if you want to see the list of the movies. I'm sure you have them all memorized. And just email that information to horrormoviepodcast at gmail.com. And then in episode 31, when we do our franchise overview that releases on Halloween Day, we're going to announce our winners. And so we want to give a special thanks again to Fright Rags for donating those t-shirts. And check them out by visiting fright-rags.com. We'll have it linked in the show notes. Okay, well, that just about wraps up episode 27 of Horror Movie Podcast. You can join us again next Friday, October 10th, for part two of our five-part Halloween series, when we'll be reviewing Halloween 4, The Return of Michael Myers from 1988, Halloween 5, The Revenge of Michael Myers from 1989, and Halloween The Curse of Michael Myers from 1995. And once again, we want to thank our guests for joining us, Greg Amortis of Land of the Creeps and Kenny the Pumpkin King Caperton of the Myers House NC. We'll have all their links in the show notes here for episode 27. And you can find all our episodes at HorrorMoviePodcast.com and follow us on Twitter at HorrorMovieCast. Wolfman Josh and I have another show about films at moviepodcastweekly.com and you can follow Josh on Twitter at Icarus Arts. You can find Dr. Shock's incredible movie blog at dvdinfatuation.com and follow him on Twitter at dvdinfatuation. And remember, he's doing a new horror film every single day for the month of October. By new, I mean 2000s or newer. So check that out. And you can find Dr. Walking Dead, Kyle Bishop's book, American Zombie Gothic. It's at amazon.com. And you can follow him on Twitter at Dr. Walking Dead, Dr. Walking Dead. And we want to thank Fred Ingram for the use of his music for our theme song. You can find Fred's music at frederickingram.com. And that's it for episode 27. So we thank you for listening and join us again next Friday for Horror Movie Podcast, where we're dead serious about horror movies. 